Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Kia ora, everyone, and welcome along to the show. I'm glad you could join me for this bonus episode, which is one of those epic ones that goes on for a very long time. So I hope if you're listening to this, you've got a long road trip planned, or you can skip to the bits that you want. What do I mean by that? Well, in the show notes, I've listed all of the speakers, and then I've put where they started talking and when the next person started talking, as well as a little bit about each person's topic. So you can jump to a particular speaker that you want to hear by checking out the index. If you enjoy this episode, then you might want to check out some of the earlier episodes I've done on related topics. For example, Cheryl Doig on the future of learning, Jason Swanson on his role as a futurist, as well as Dr. Masamo Hagig, and we talked about the future of AI and learning and encouraging women in technology. Also, two of the speakers on this long episode are Jessica Tribus and John Baelish, and be watching out for their episodes because they'll come out in a few weeks. And a big thank you to the Future of Learning team, in particular Hamish, Cheryl, and Louisa. Well done to everyone involved in the event. I thought it was really fantastic. And it's great to be able to share this resource now with people who maybe couldn't attend. Because based on what I heard talking with people, it's one of the only conferences in the world which is really focused on what the future of learning may hold. And it had really world-class speakers who attended. If you enjoy what I'm trying to do with Seeds, which is to tell good stories and get information out into the world, then you might want to check out some of the earlier episodes because there's more than 130 in the back catalog now. Generally, what I'll do is interview a person about their life, where they're from, and what they're doing now. And the interviews go for about an hour, so they're deep dives into people's stories. There's also a website at theseeds.nz, and there's a newsletter you can subscribe to there. Now let's get into this first session at the future of learning. Uri uri tihei nako nako kātou hā whakatou ko te raki e tū nei, kātou hā whakatou ko te papa i raro nei, kātou hā whakatou ko te mātuku mai i rarotonga, ko i ārukuhia mana wapau roto, ko i ārukuhia mana wapau waho, whakatina kia tina te more i Hawaiki, e pupū ake ana, e wawau ake ana, tārewa tū ki te rangi, aue kia eke, Eke pānuku, eke tangaroa, whānō, whānō, tūmai te toki, haumie, huie, tāiki. Tuko mai kia piri, tuko mai kia tata, tuko mai ki te poho tōku tipuna, ko tahu pōtiki, piki mai, kake mai, haere mai, tāuti mai. Kia whai kororea kia iho to tata matua ki te raki, mau kāroko ki te whenua, aroha nui ki ka tākata katoa. A tuarua kia rātau ko pane atura ki toa o te tatau paunamu, Rātau katoa ngā manu pīrau wā tāne, ko wehe te tiro hanga kanohi, moi mai rā, moi mai rā, e kore ware waretia. Nō reira ka waiho ake ko rātau, kia rātau, ka tahurinei kia tātau ngā kanohi o rātau mā ko wehe, e te pito ora, nau mai, nau mai, tāuti mai, haere mai rā. Tēnā koutou e te iwi, nō ku te maranganui ki te tuku i te reo o mihi kia tātau katoa, i tēnei kaupapa kā meha meha, Nā reira nau mai tauti mai i raro i te poho o tahu pōtiki, i raro i te maru o tō tātou hapū a ngai tuahuriri, ngai tahu whānui, māmoi, waitaha e karangatu nei kia koutou katoa, tēnā koutou katoa. Kia ora everyone, my name is Eriwera Tārena and it's my pleasure just to offer some words of welcome on behalf of our iwi, our local people ngai tahu, our local hapū a ngai tuahuriri, 
and uh, just uh, offer words of a karakia, a prayer just to start us off this morning, and it's a karakia for instilling light, uh, positivity, and potential, uh, so it's a perfect fit for our kaupapa. Nā reira, uh, i mua i tira, uh, ka mihi ki o tātou uh, kai kōrero i te atanei, uh, kia koe jen, nau mai hoki mai, uh, Sam, uh, me tō tātou tino tangata a uh, kindle. I uh, just have to say that the Young New Zealander of the Year was Ngai Chahu and Ngai Chahu Riri, so uh, very proud of that, our iwis. Uh, mihi hoki uh, kia koe Hamish, uh, uh, Cheryl, uh, uh, me ngā karangatanga ki Wanganui a tātou, uh, tō tātou tino hoa uh, Cheryl, ngā mihi kia koe, e te rangatira. Uh, so to, to start us off, uh, tokuna te rangi e tū nei, whakatika tika te tuaranui o pai o kōrua tipu o kōrua tawhito, E tāne ko toko mau ngā rangi hikitia, rangi hapainga e tū, ko te rangi e tū nei. Tū mau mai te rā e tū nei. Ia tama i waho ia tamo o ko tahi, te putanga mai a tama i te rangi tā more more nui, te putanga mai a tama i te rangi tū, hā hā heke iho ki a rangi e tū nei. Fiti fiti nuku, fiti fiti rangi, fiti fiti papa, fiti fiti tau, tū te māhoro nui, tū te māhoro roa, tū te māhoro nui a te a tū nei. Tāwhia kia rewa, kia tama i waho, whānō, whānō, tū mai te toki, haumie, huie, tāike. Kia ora tātou. Tēnā koutou katoa, e rere taku manu ki te tihi o Auraki. Rere iho taku manu me te awa o Waimakariri. Tauana taku manu ki te whenua o Waitaha. Ko... Kaitahu te mana whenua, te iwi whakaruru hau. Ko koti rāna oku tipuna, ko Cheryl Doig tōko ingoa nō o tautahi a hau. Ko Hamish Duff tōko ingoa nō o tautahi a hau. Ko Opuki te maunga, ko Waimakariri te awa, ko Philip Lang te waka, ko Pākehā tōku iwi. Nō reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Welcome everyone. At last we've got 200 amazing people in the room and it's our pleasure uh, to welcome you. Uh, I'm Cheryl. And I'm Hamish Duff. Uh, and uh, <laughs> together we are the co-hosts of the uh, Future of Learning. Um, thank you Eru for welcoming us. We'd like to acknowledge Ngai Tahu and uh, Ngai Tuhuriri for the work that they and you do on behalf of learning and um, just uh, the, the um, support that you give to us, both in the conference and in the, um, the Waitaha um, region. Cheryl and I uh, met some three years ago at the Singularity University Summit here in Christchurch, and we pretty quickly recognised that we had a shared interest in technology and technology change, and also a shared concern that education did not see the technology change coming and the scale and scope of the technology change that's coming and weren't prepared for it, weren't doing anything about it. So uh, we've essentially bet, uh, we've worked, uh, collaborated together for the last three years and have essentially bet our businesses on catalyzing the change that's required within education, within learning, across the board from schools to business, uh, to tertiary to business. Um, as a massive change that's coming and we need to prepare now. 
So last year we had our first Future of Learning conference, Fall uh, 18, and after that conference, Learning City Christchurch was born, a charitable trust to look at developing a learning ecosystem uh, across the city, and I'd like to acknowledge the work of, of Jason Swanson, uh, who was uh, one of our partners last year and is back this year um, to bring that together. You'll hear a little bit about that later, but Fall 18 generated a whole lot of discussion about what learning might look like, and it also created some seeds of positive deviance. And some of you positive deviants are in the room today. Thank you for coming back a second time. Um, and this is about the change that's happening in, in schools and tertiary and business, the whole works, not in one specific industry. Uh, that's the conversation that we want to carry on for this year's event with the theme of redefine and transition. Of course, we'd like to acknowledge our sponsors without which we couldn't uh, run an event like this. First of all, the Ministry of Education and the Christchurch City Council. Um, I'd like to thank you for your vision and forward thinking in assisting us to catalyse these conversations. It's been incredibly important to us. Um, we'd also like to thank Signal ICT Grad School um, for supporting us for a second year running. They've been fabulous as well. We've got a few speakers from the States here you'll hear from in the next couple of days, and they're supported by organisations already doing everything they can in this space to, to facilitate change in this critical area. Um, specifically, KnowledgeWorks, Jason Swanson, and Carnegie Mellon University, John Balash. Thank you very much for your organisation supporting us. We've got a great team of channel partners who have been supporting us this year as well. Uh, BOMA in New Zealand, uh, ARA Institute of Canterbury, EdTech NZ, Seeds Podcast, 21C Skills Lab, Christchurch NZ, the Christchurch um, uh, Canterbury Employers Chamber of Commerce, the Ministry of Awesome and PB Tech. Uh, it's really fabulous to have such a great team of people supporting and helping us to get the word out about the event. Lastly, but certainly not leastly, I'd also like to thank St Margaret's College for this beautiful venue. They've um, been wonderful in supporting us for this place. So having a diverse audience in the room is what this conference is all about. When people say, so is this for schools? Yes, uh, but it's for much more than that. Uh, so this, this is the opportunity for us to move outside our silos, and, and that's what we think is really important and why we seek to have diverse views in the room. So let's just check out who we've got. So this is your opportunity, your, your minute of fame. Um, could you just put your hand if you're in, in business? Okay, excellent, thank you. Uh, if you're in schools? Great, tertiary. Looking good so far. Um, if you're in not-for-profits or community groups, isn't this amazing, all these different, uh, different people? If you're a student, any age, but you're a student of some sort. If you are youth under 24. If you used to be youth under 24. <laughs> Woohoo! Go team! Um, if you're from outside the South Island, it's okay. <laughs> Keep your hand up if you're also outside of New Zealand. Well, let's give those people a special round of applause. Welcome. And anyone that hasn't put their hand up yet? Iwi. Iwi, aye. Local government. Local government, yeah, that was on my list. I was getting to that. Too. Yeah, yeah. All right, so you can see that we've got an amazing diversity uh, in the room, 
and we'd just like to give you a warm welcome, one and all. All right, so the idea of tuakana teina underpins uh, the conference, so uh, all teachers and all learners working together. You've come to this place to learn new ideas, and maybe you were attracted because there was an expert or a speaker that you, were, you, know, you, you particularly wanted to hear, but uh, there's much more than that in this conference. The expertise isn't just on the stage, you are the experts. I don't know if you realised that when you registered, but thanks for coming. Uh, you'll see that there's a gap on your name tag, my ex exhibit here. Underneath your name, there's a, a little white gap. And when you registered, you were given a felt pen, or if you were, if you were from Australia, a texter. Um, so that uh, is the magic wand for you in the next couple of minutes. So you see there's a gap on your tag, and this is, this is to allow for you to share your tuakana role. In other words, a strength or a superpower that you've got. So just carefully take your um, lanyard off. So it sort of works like this. The invitation is to fill in that gap now um, with your super strengths, your tuakana, your things that you are able to share um, that are your areas of expertise. Now, don't panic and think, I haven't got one, uh, because uh, this is about celebrating the strengths that we all bring here too. So um, people can connect with you over the next two days, not just for your name and where you come from, but also because of the strengths that they'd like to talk about. So it goes sort of a bit like this. Um, Trisha Carter. Uh, is, is one of our people. Hello, Tricia, nice to see you here. Uh, Tricia lives in Australia, but she's really one of us. Um, Tricia has expertise in cultural intelligence. Amazing, amazing strength. So she might write on her, uh, in her little gap, cultural intelligence. Um, Anthea Maddell has a passion for sustainability and living a zero-waste lifestyle. So she might put something about that in her gap. Uh, Andy Masters knows heaps about blockchain. Or you might just be an amazing snowboarder and want to share that strength or connect with other people who want to know about uh, snowboarding. Absolutely up to you, but there's an opportunity now to write one, two, maybe not sort of 22, but you know, what is it that is your tuakana strength or superpower that other people can connect with? So please just take a, a minute to quickly write in big letters what your tuakana strength is. Go for it. Okay, I'm going to let you finish that off while I'm talking to you. Um, we've got a real focus on sustainability for this event. Uh, if we want to survive as a species, then we need to all start taking action in any way we can, and that includes conferences. Um, no one needs another conference satchel filled with glossy marketing material or a special cup or a water bottle celebrating the conference that you have for years to come. Um, we're committed to reducing waste from this event and eliminating plastic wherever we can. Instead, we've gone completely digital. We've set up a folder, link there for a digital goodie bag, which we'll be putting the speakers' presentations and, um, and notes and materials and readings from them uh, after the conference. We'll send that link out to everybody so you've got that there. Um, so that's our digital goodie bag. 
Uh, we've also set up a collaborative notes Google Docs. So please, if those of you who are connected, and you want to start taking notes on the presentations and on the breakouts when we get to those, then um, jump into that collaborative notes up the top there. I've already structured it with, for, with all the speakers and all the presentations, so just start adding notes in the right spaces there, and it will create a great resource to be able to share with the community after this. Um, we'll circulate the links, as I said, um, and one small point, uh, we won't have uh, time for questions after our keynotes today. We've got an action-packed schedule, um, but most of our speakers are here for the day, if not two, both days, uh, and they're lovely people, and I'm sure they'd love to connect with you and talk about their, their presentations more afterwards. If you've got any questions for the panels, however, uh, we ask you to please use Slido, um, the code there, U224. Um, once you go to sly.do, you'll be able to um, enter your questions and vote questions up and down um, that will be fed to our panels. Twitter hashtag is uh, folnz19, and the most important information of the day, of course, is Wi-Fi. You'll see uh, there's a uh, Wi-Fi SMC visitor. Uh, it'll take you to a login page if you enter folnz19. Um, you're up and running on Wi-Fi. We've afforded ourselves the luxury of 10 minutes each um, to uh, introduce the, the, the next two days. And I'd just like to start my, oh, my uh, short part of fame by talking about some of the bubbling conversations, the patterns that uh, are emerging in the idea of, um, of learning. So some people talk about the I-shaped learner with a, a whole lot of, of knowledge and um, depth of understanding, and then some people say, no, no, it's about a T-shaped learner, knowledge is important, but also there's the space of being able to communicate and, and collaborate across teams or organisations. And what I'd like to focus on is a slightly next phase of the X-shaped learner, and it sort of um, looks like this. So when I'm talking about X, I'm not really talking about the letter X, I'm talking about X as a place of strength. And if you live in Christchurch, or if you've been wandering the streets of Christchurch since arriving, you may have noticed buildings that look like this. Uh, they're there with an X for a very good re reason, and it's to do with strength, but it's also, in my head, to do with the future-proofing, the, the looking at the possibilities of, in our case, an earthquake and being really, really strong and prepared for the future. So we're going to just take a few moments to talk about an X-shaped learner and what that might look like. So here's my version of a, an X-shaped learner. This is a place of transdisciplinary learning, so it's much more merged than just having knowledge and um, skills. It's a place of clusters of learning and learning flows. Uh, that doesn't mean that knowledge doesn't still have a place, but it's not one separate um, a curriculum area or area of expertise. It's a place where there may be small chunks of learning and larger chunks, where people are collecting um, some of their learning in different ways and putting them in a portfolio or creating their own mosaic of learning. So Heather McGowan, um, one of the people that talks about X-shaped learning, she talks about this as being the end of the occupation identity, that rather than have an occupation, uh, it's much more about the, the skills and the, the, the purpose that we have that brings our learning together. Um, so it's, if you like, it's a much more blurred place. You'll see that in the X, 
there's a bit of humanity and a bit of technology. And for us, that's one of the reasons for this conference is that we see the rise of exponential technologies and, and know that some people don't even know that it exists or what place it might have in the future of learning. So as the technology increases, it can have a really important part in the future of learning and you'll hear from speakers talking about that in their areas of expertise. You'll also know that there's a huge upswing in things like edtech. But of course, if you have technology and learning, that doesn't mean it's always good. And so, you know, what is it that keeps us focused on, an, as an X-shaped learner, on sort of filtering our way through that technology and using it for the good of humanity to, to move into areas that we couldn't have done without the technology or where it makes sense to use the technology because it's faster or does the, the job better. The other part though, you'll see in the middle there's a, a tree and I'd like to uh, also hat tip to the, the work of David Clifford who also talks about an X-shaped um, learner but from a, a, a very much a point of um, relationships and equity. And so in the X-shaped learner that place is a, a critical place for us all to be. If we don't have the uniquely human part in the X-shaped learner then what are we here for? So each of us is learning in different ways. And if we're looking at a, a much more sort of merged way of, of thinking, and we consider that that X is us, so what does that mean for us collectively? Well, maybe it looks a little bit like this. Someone tell me what this is? A fence. Could be. Yep. Yeah. So it's a tukutuku panel. It's a, it's a Maori form of art. Um, and this particular design is the potama. And a potama is the sort of the levels of learning or um, achievement and um, I guess the, the lifelong striving to, to move upwards and forwards. I think this is a really important um, shape for me. It does require persistence to complete a tukutuku panel and a heck of a lot of patience. So if we just look at that a little bit closer though, you'll see that if you were an X-shaped learner and you put yourself together with a whole lot of other X-shaped learners, that, that it forms something much stronger. So this is the story that's created through the, the tukutuku. And if you imagine that you're one of those crosses and that um, this, to create the tukutuku panel, you've got someone on each side of the panel threading um, the, the thread through and working together, having conversations as, as you're doing that and building the knowledge and strength together. This for me is the power of an X-shaped learner, but of an X-shaped learner collectively, uh, that's where we have our strength. Um, so that's, that's one, of, one sort of pattern of, um, of an X-shaped learning, but let's just look at another pattern. This one's a technological pattern from the work of Holin IQ. So completely different, moving into a, a future space. In this space, um, this, is, this is a, a learning taxonomy and that I quite like, that comes from Holin IQ, uh, 
Polar IQ out of Australia, and the reason that I like it is because it's a taxonomy that's available for you to use, but it's also a taxonomy that's available for you to contribute to. So you can go onto GitHub and you can contribute, so it's a living, growing uh, part of learning rather than something that's static. Um, what I also uh, like about this is this started using machine learning. So it was the machine learning that crunched the data and looked for um, big patterns and did that piece of work. But after that, it was actually the, the humans that, that then made sense of the patterns from a uniquely human perspective. It was the humans that made it fit for the context of a particular environment. And so for me, this, in terms of X-shaped learning, represents the mix of humanity and technology. And if you look at those um, patterns and you, you go onto the site and click on one, it gives you a lot more information about that particular learning trend. So it's always um, up to date. But there's more to that. And at the, the top of each um, area, each one of those colors represents, I guess, a different um, pattern or trend um, from the, the research. And I think, for me, um, that's a really important thing, because you may have come because you've got a particular interest in, in experiencing learning or assessment and verification. So you might have some sort of depth in learning. But actually, when I looked at these patterns, this was sort of what it looked like for me. I'm interested in a whole lot of things in a, a range of different areas, and I'm sure that's the case with you today. And that's why it's really important to be able to connect with other people and have a chat about what are your strengths? What do you see in the particular area of micro-credentials uh, and micro-learning? How does that connect to this piece of learning? So again, looking for the patterns, I think, is a, a really important part of the, the um, X-shaped learner. So just to come back to the X-shaped learner, and if you think about this as, um, as being you, um, I, I just want to uh, finish by talking about, you probably can't see it very well, but from the X, it creates a really different shape. Can you see that? Just, if you look really closely. Uh, this is the important space uh, for me, because this is about the expanded now. This is the, the place where we bring the past. So if we go back to the past over here, the, f the, the extended now is the place um, where we connect from the past. In other words, in our tuakana strengths, our stories, our history, the things that we bring to this place. Um, and we think about that in terms of the tukutuku panel. But it also connects through our core centre to another place. And that's the place I'm really interested in today. It's the place of the future. It's the place of listening to the speakers today and looking for the opportunities, scanning the future, and taking on the, the Taina role, the, the role of the student or the learner to find out things that you didn't even know existed. And this is the place maybe of, of technology, but pushing into the future so that we continue to learn together. And bringing that together, for me, is that center point. That's the Turanga Waiwai, the place um, of centering that we have as our, our belonging place, 
Again, this was from recent TEDx, where uh, TEDx and Matapulpuri uh, combined and created this uh, beautiful uh, tukutuku panel that is behind my Tūranga YY in this place. So my hope for you over the next two days is that you become deeply ingrained in your Tūranga YY, that you have your own strengths to reinforce because uh, you bring those with you, but also that in particular you stretch into the future uh, and learn some new things that hopefully you can take away uh, and um, maybe become a, a positive deviant in, uh, or, and certainly some new relationships that can form like Hamish and I um, formed uh, to bring you the future of learning. So enjoy the, the next two days, have lots and lots of conversations, and um, uh, I'm going to hand over to Hamish. Kia ora to repeat, Ko Hamish Duff Toko Ingwa. My name is Hamish Duff. I'm a technologist, a futurist, a permaculturist, and a scientist. My roles put me at the intersection of two major megatrends which are going to profoundly affect our society in the next decades. That's accelerating technology change and climate change. I grew up in Christchurch, the garden city, the earthquake city, and more recently, the self-proclaimed city of opportunity. This is an aspirational vision from the Christchurch City Council and Christchurch NZ, which I wholeheartedly subscribe to. There's no reason why everybody here doesn't have access to the same opportunities in life. Something I've really committed to um, since learning about it. Ko Opukita Maunga. Yes, Mount Hutt is my mountain, not just because I'm a born-again skier, but also because I've spent most of my life in Canterbury, and I've always been thrilled to catch sight of Mount Hutt across the Canterbury Plains on a clear, frosty morning. Beautiful, beautiful mountain. Ko Wamakariri Te Awa. I live out in um, Canterbury Plains now, uh, and I'm con constantly reminded that uh, the Wamakariri created this place. It's flown across my land, my patch of land, uh, many, many times. Ko Philip Lang Te Waka, Ko Pākehā Toku Iwi. I'm a Pākehā, not a European New Zealander. Um, my family immigrated here in the mid-1800s, but I identify as a Kiwi, not as a Scotsman despite my name, certainly not as a European New Zealander. That just seems wrong to me. I'm proud to come from these tiny islands which have the population the size of a small international city, but which constantly punch above their weight on the world stage. Um, I'm, I'm keen to, to explore the opportunity that New Zealand has that we are small enough to change, to adapt to the future, and to set an example for the rest of the world. Norera tenakoto 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 katoa. I'm not a teacher and I have no formal educational qualifications at all. Although I have had some brilliant teachers in my time, teachers who have taught me to think laterally, to think critically, to understand uh, scope and complexity and probability and uh, to be a systems thinker. All perennial skills which are going to be incredibly important in the world that we're entering into, a world of rapid change and uncertainty. Why am I up here talking and fronting a, a conference, Future of Learning, you might ask? Well, because I'm a learner, I've spent most of my time, uh, most of my life in and around education, working in education or learning. I've got multiple qualifications across quite diverse disciplines, from uh, biochemistry and plant biotechnology to technology to business management. 
I've got uh, two master's degrees, neither of which I use in my day-to-day life. <laughs> I enjoyed university and I've spent far, far too much time in the book stacks at UC Library, obviously. The opportunity to learn is a critical differentiator for us and our success and opportunity in society now. And I feel that this, very passionately feel that this should be available to everybody within our society, and it's not at the moment. While we may now teach the fundamentals of learning in some schools, that certainly wasn't the case when I was at school. I was taught stuff. I was taught knowledge. I wasn't taught how to learn. Um, and that means that it's probably not the case for billions of us who are alive now who haven't been taught to learn and to love learning. The lack of critical thinking and uh, scientific literacy uh, and the intolerance and fear that that creates is evident around us. This is clearly a huge issue for the survival of our species in the future. So I've spent the better part of 30 years exploring what I wanted to do when I grow up, uh, which hasn't happened yet, thankfully. <laughs> uh, I've spent years learning about the things that I think are important to our future, uh, the things that I think uh, can, I can contribute to that creating that future. We live in a world now where, um, for the first time in humanity's history, the sum total of human knowledge and endeavour is available at a click. You can learn about anything you want to, if you want to, if you put your time and attention and energy into it. If you want to be a world expert on any topic, the information is there. You can go out and learn everything there is to know about it. Most of us, unfortunately, spend our time being distracted by consumerism, sports, politics, reality TV, and social media, rather than taking the opportunity to learn that our technology provides us. Well, some might say that I speak from a position of white middle-class privilege, and you are probably completely correct. I maintain that the key privilege I was given as a child was that I was taught that if I studied hard and worked hard, I could essentially do anything with my life. And I know lots of people who feel the same way. Of course, I was also lucky enough to grow up with loving parents, mum somewhere here, <laughs> our comfortable home, and I was well-fed, as you can tell. I had no disprivileges, if you will, but to be honest with you, I find it incredibly distressing that um, these things are considered privilege in the society. How did we get to that point? It's just completely wrong. We're living in a time of profound change and ch challenges to humanity. Uh, rapid climate change and technology change uh, loom over our current way of life, and yet we're terrified of change. Our inaction now risks greatly exacerbating the inequities of our current society, and it risks our very survival on this planet. We need to take action now to learn new ways of being, new ways of living lighter on this earth. Learning is obviously the best opportunity for us to adapt to change. Um, the entire success of our species to this point has been because of the accumulation and dissemination of knowledge through learning. Now, I'm unashamedly optimistic and idealistic, and I think those mindsets are also critical to our future. Uh, we desperately need to create a vision of something better and unite action across society towards that future. It's only through collective action uh, spread out through society that we can hope to survive on this planet. We need to focus on what we agree on rather than the divisiveness that we subject ourselves to in our current society. However, it seems that 
this isn't going to happen with our current education systems. The systems were created a long time ago for circumstances which are no longer relevant to our future. I've heard it said before that education systems were created by old white guys who are good at education, who are good at teaching other, other white guys, and that's um, something that needs to change. From working with educators across schools, tertiary and business sectors, it seems to me that many of you understand that there are issues in the system. Many of you are working very, very hard to create change, to create a transformation in education, and that's wonderful to see. But for many others, it's simply too close to the truth, too close to the status quo for them to accept that we need to change. There are deeply entrenched views and investment in the status quo which are causing resistance to change, even if that change is for the better. But change we must. If we want to adapt, to be successful, to survive as a species, we need to lift the standards of education across the board. Uh, we need to uh, make the same high quality of education available to anyone anywhere in the world. We need to prepare students for a world of rapid change and uncertainty, to retrain staff that are being displaced by technology change, and to, at the same time, help educators to adapt and adopt technology to help their incredibly important role in shaping our society. There are many, many people working towards this, and I believe that uh, we can be successful by embracing the emerging technologies and using them to augment teaching, to augment learning in new ways, and to make the opportunity of learning available to everyone at a scale we've never seen before. That's why I'm involved in the future of learning, to bring together the stakeholders who have the expertise and experience of learning, teaching and technology, that's you folks, to figure out and to make the changes required to the systems to get us moving forwards in the right direction, to create a vision for a better future for everyone, we need to remember that the future is not a fixed place. It's ours to create. Fundamentally, I believe that we should be teaching students of all ages, or anyone who'll listen for that matter, that they can, um, what they can do to make a difference, that teach them that they can do something to make the world a better place, that they can contribute to creating a better future for everyone, that collectively and individually, their ability to change is powerful. Look at Greta, for example, that they can have hope for a better future. That's incredibly important to us. And that's a future that I would like to see. And learning is absolutely essential to that. If we embrace the emerging technologies that you'll see examples of in the next two days, we will transform learning and transform society for the better. Thank you. It's now my pleasure to introduce our day one panel. Uh, they've been listening closely to Jan's presentation and I know they'll have some personal insights to share around learning work and the implications for New Zealand. So please welcome to the stage Kendall, Sam and Mia. So while they're getting uh, settled, let's just talk about some of the organisation for this panel discussion. On the screen, um, maybe, 
we'll have the access code for Slido. Uh, right. U224, so if you go into Slido, for those of you that might have a question, we probably won't get to uh, ask all of the questions, but just on Slido, if you go there and type in U224, you can ask a question, and if it doesn't get answered today, then it's certainly something that we can come back to. Uh, if you see someone else's question and think, oh, that's a really good one, you can upvote it by uh, clicking onto the, the thumb. Uh, we'll also, um, Aishvarya's uh, in the, the front here, she's going to be monitoring the questions, and um, so we're ready for action. I'm so looking forward to this. It's my pleasure to introduce you to three extraordinary young New Zealanders. Uh, all who happen to come from Christchurch as well, so um, that's even better. Uh, you'll have read their, uh, perhaps their bios on the website, they are there, but just to give you a little snippet about who these uh, people are. So Kendall is the co-founder and CEO of Banker, the financial education platform named 2018 New Zealand High Tech Startup Company of the Year. And she's also the 2019 Young New Zealander of the Year. Welcome, um, Kendall. I thought you were going to leap up Edu and say, and she's, she's Ngaitahu. Um, uh, Mia. Mia, is the, is, Mia Sutherland is one of the Christchurch organisers of the school strike for climate New Zealand. She's in her last year at high school, and she's also a regular guest editor on stuff uh, and things to do with climate change. And Sam Johnson is a social entrepreneur, founder and executive director of the Student Volunteer Army. Uh, Sam was New Young New Zealand of the Year in That's 2012. Year. So, Kendall, this is what you're going to look like in seven years. I'm happy, <laughs> I'm happy with that. Uh, yeah, so um, welcome to the stage. We've got some um, questions, but let's just start by... Do we have the microphone or your mic? Oh, cool. Um, let's just start by sharing a little bit about who you are and uh, your work. So maybe we'll start with you. Sure. It's really nice to be here. Uh, I've been inspired already, you know, and we're only, what, an hour and a half in or not even that. Um, so, yep, I'm co-founder of Banker. My journey has been one of those curly ones, so a lot of um, what was spoken about this morning really resonated with me. Um, I now sort of spend my days fulfilling a purpose, which is to ensure that we're all prepared for our financial future, sort of have a vision of a world where... None of us are financially misled or deceived, and actually we're, we're thriving. Um, we're thriving in communities that we're contributing to, that we're challenging, that we're building. Uh, and, and I think that is something that's really achievable here in New Zealand, and it's, it's not just going to be me and Banker solving that, but it's going to be a really uh, a collective solution. Our little piece of, of that solution is the software that we built that sees 85,000 Kiwi kids learning about managing personal finances every day. So uh, Banker itself is a platform that lets kids start earning money, fictitious, uh, earning money, paying bills in the classroom, uh, investing in term deposits and properties, um, being part of a t progressive tax system and talking about what that means and, and what that um, allows them. So these are 10-year-olds with mortgages, basically, is, is what I do. Um, <laughs> And just a couple of weeks ago, we've launched uh, our high school platform as well, which was really exciting. 
And they're just little tools we've got as part of that bigger vision for a, a financially secure and sustainable Aotearoa, which, which I'm really excited to be committed to and hopefully uh, give me a couple more decades. But I think we're going to make some real inroads. Thanks so much. Uh, Mia, over to you. You've had a really busy uh, last week uh, in, in Christchurch as, as part of the, the um, climate strike day. Yeah. Um, so... My name's Mia, and my journey is only really just starting. So I'm in my final year of high school. Um, yep, so on Friday was the third climate strike in New Zealand, and we joined a global movement. In New Zealand, 170,000 people um, took to the streets to protest for climate action and in Christchurch we had 8,000 people come out which is pretty insane to see that all happen. Um, yeah, now there'll probably be what are you going to do next? I don't want to talk about it. I just want to have like a weekend and a week <laughs> where I can live my life. Um, but yeah, I'm just getting through being 18 and also doing some climate change stuff on the side. So, yeah. <laughs> beat that, Sam. I, I, I can't beat that. Um, well, thank you, firstly, for the introduction of being young, Cheryl. Um, I've reached 30, and I've, you know, I remember soon after the earthquakes with Student Volunteer Army how you know, it was always young leader, and now they don't normally introduce me with that title, so thank you. Um, <laughs> Uh, pleasure to be here, and, and really what my job is with Student Volunteer Army now, I um, lead our primary school and our high school-based programs, as well as supporting the club at the university, and um, it's, it's easy just to do show and tell, so basically we make at primary school these little, these little boxes that teach um, uh, primary school teachers how to teach volunteering, and so um, kids go through a process of, um, we give them high-vis vests and little badges and stuff, but they go through a process of um, finding a project, building a team, running their project and reporting on what they do. And so we try and teach them. It's not so much about what they do, so we're agnostic whether it's doing, you're doing elderly visiting or tech help or you're doing climate change or you're doing financial literacy, whatever it is the kids want to do, we're providing them a framework to go through to do that. Um, and then this year, uh, similar to Kendall, we've just done um, a project at high school, and it's all around um, recognizing and recording what volunteer activity happens at high school, but matrixing it to the sustainable development goals and putting it on a pre-formatted CV. So how do we take, say, the 170,000 young people that did uh, a volunteer project, uh, like a volunteering last week, which is striking, and that's an act of volunteer service, um, contributing towards uh, climate change and the sustainable development goals, Let's put that on a, on a CV so that people who striked are more likely to get jobs than those who didn't. And that's what we're trying to do. So to matrix the, the activities of whatever type of volunteering to a CV so that when it goes, you go to apply for a job or a hall application residence, hall of residence or whatever it might be, that we're actually using this, the incredible work that happens in the community to help people progress their careers. Great, so you can see we've got three amazing people uh, as our panelists for the morning. Um, You've sat and you, you've, you've been inspired, no doubt, as I was, by uh, Jan's presentation. Uh, just what was it that connected with you? What, what are your, your opening thoughts um, from that? doesn't matter who would like to go. 
I'm happy to yeah. start. I mean, one of the things, um, uh, it was awesome to hear you speak again, Jen, and I've spent a lot of time with Jen over the years and, and, and learned a lot from Australia, but the thing that I always come away with right away is we can learn a lot more from what's happening in Australia. Um, a couple of weeks ago, there's Australian New Zealand Leadership Forum, and, and, and it's talking at business and trade level what we're learning from Australia and what Australia can learn from New Zealand. And one of the interesting observations I think I always come away back from Australia learning is that, wow, there are 23 million people there doing what we're trying to do, but they're doing it in a different way. What can we learn and what we can, can we bring back and what we can share? I think um, the, the really important thing, the, the outward looking and, and, and ability for the two countries to actually identify what's similar and what are the similar challenges and what are similar approaches that have been tried and tested. And a lot of the work that I've done with the Student Army team and other projects in our elderly visiting service over the year, years are literally projects I've seen in Australia and, 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 are try, and trying here um, and, and adapting them. Um, and then on Jan's presentation, I, I think the, um, the, around the, the skills and the universities and the politics, and I think what we're seeing, and this is like ironic because I, University of Canterbury, of course, are a big supporter of ours, but we have overcooked university education in New Zealand in the last however many years, and that, that, that what you learn in university doesn't equal jobs right away, and that's why I'm such a, a big believer that we've got to prioritise service and volunteering and community-based learning more, and to credit that back to your, 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 your career and leverage that to be able to help people get move forward. Thanks. Yeah, look, it really resonated with me as well, um, not to be too self-indulgent, but um, sort of the transition between ladder and, and jungle gym, I feel like I've personally traversed that, having kicked down the, the corporate accounting ladder um, a few moons ago, uh, and now entering what is very much so the jungle gym. And I guess one of the, the words that stuck with me in, in one of the earlier slides was flexibility. Uh, I really value freedom and choice and flexibility, um, but also I value certainty and a little bit of predictability and security. So I thought Andy's question around mental health also comes into play there for me around how do we ensure this during this transition period that we really are equipping our young learners and our uh, rangatahi and our leaders of tomorrow for coping with that uncertainty that innately comes with flexibility. Um, the, the two sides of the same coin, in my opinion, and I think there's real risk of anxiety and being overwhelmed by choice and overwhelmed by flexibility and freedom uh, if we don't create the right framework and build up the capabilities to be able to traverse that. So I did listen to the rest of it, but that really stuck in my mind um, quite early on. Um, so what really stuck with me was when Jan talked about how we need multiple actors all coordinated, because um, as a young person involved in climate activism, I'm not tackling the strikes, I'm tackling climate change as a whole. So in order for us to successfully do that as a generation and as just the world, we need everyone with all their skills to contribute to that. It's not just people like me who can stand on a stage and talk, it's people who are involved in business and people who are involved in encouraging service. It's everyone, everyone has a skill that they can add to the mix and it will all contribute to change. And so I actually get really excited when I see people doing something really interesting to create that change. Like Anthea, where is she? She's run away. Um, she does, I won't spoil too much, but she does really awesome stuff with business and recycled plastic. Um, 
So there's always something to add and there's always something to involve in whatever you're doing. So that really stuck with me. Let's pick up on that. Um, uh, with you, Mia, uh, you're obviously in your, your last uh, year at high school and so you're going through a, a, a traditional system and be uh, seen as, as successful in that system. What are the implications of what Jen talked about for the schooling system, do you think? What, you know, what key messages would you say about what might need to change from your observations? I think education has changed in a good way so that people are able to take courses and learn skills which are relevant to them, but there's still not enough flexibility, I feel, for people to actually take that on. Um, we're becoming more aware of the different ways people learn and the different uh, inhibitors that prevent people from learning. And so to take that on and challenge that and make sure that the people who maybe suffer through traditional learning actually have an option and they have a way that they can learn differently. Because at the moment it's all sitting in a classroom and watching someone talk, which is great for me. I do well in that setting, but I know a lot of my friends just sit there fidgeting and then don't do anything out of it because they are a doer, they're a doing person. And so I think we need a lot more channels of learning that cater to all the needs of all these different people. Yeah. Well, can I ask you a question? What did you learn from organising the strike? I learned how to take rejection really well. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Persistence, I would reframe that as. Yes. Persistence. Yes. Persistence. Um, standing up for what I believed in, in something that is either, you've got a spectrum, either they love you or they just hate your guts, like hardcore. <laughs> um, so I guess I've learnt a lot about standing up for something and how, I guess within the school, they've been pretty good about it, as good as you can be when you're encouraging people to literally leave. But, um, <laughs> um, yeah, I would say that the biggest thing I've learnt is the world's a scary place. And, and you, you organised it all yourselves, didn't you? Yeah. Which, and, uh, and the, my, my parallel that I was interested to make around education is that with, with, with student volunteer, I mean, the same at the university and, and with our primary school program, um, is that it's, it's about students organising their own project and own activities without adult, like, with adult advice and help on the, on the side, but not that being at the centre. And the, so after the first year we did this, this primary school program, we sent a thousand boxes out to, to teachers. Um, the biggest piece of feedback we had from teachers was that they said they underestimated the students' ideas and underestimated a six-year-old's ability to come up with an idea, understand what their strengths and weaknesses are, whether they're good at planning, whether they like details and lists and, and the more boring activities, as, as actually some people have told us, or, or they like the ideas or they like the promotional part of it or they like going to talk to people in the community. But, but giving it, kind of taking away all the hierarchy uh, away from... Um, project organising and organising an idea and letting students do things, um, I think is what we've got to do a lot more of. So how do you do that in your work um, with, with Banker to have, to have not learners just at the centre but create it so that in some respects the teachers help 
but keep out of the way and let the young people do the mahi yeah. themselves? We very much so believe in experiential learning as well. So again, that resonated um, from Jen's presentation. Uh, the financial system it is, for better or for worse, focused largely on the individual. So it's an individual's experience and how they traverse that. So we've tried to mimic that, not through gamification, but through allowing the students to have a platform to play in the financial world. Um, so they may create a company and bring it to life in their, in their classroom on their own, uh, or they may <laughs> go bankrupt uh, due to several misfortunes, um, but we're allowing them the space to have the agency to take charge of their personal finances, and the teacher does play a role in that, in, in progressing the classroom th through certain financial concepts, but once they're alive in the classroom, they're, they're really alive, and we hear awesome stories. Well, actually, I think they're awesome, um, but we hear stories of one of my favourites is an Auckland-based student who decided to set up a classroom lottery, a six-ball lottery for 30 kids. I, I'm not great on the maths, but probability is that's never going to be one. Um, so he, he's on to something there. The teacher did shut it down after a few weeks of kids um, putting in $10 tickets a pop. But, but to me, I, I can't get mad at that student because they've sort of thought through that, they've reasoned through that, um, and they've also marketed their idea as well. Um, so I think often it's creating space for students to, to learn and experience and live. Great. Thank you. I'm just going to go over to Ashvari. Have we got any questions coming through? Just microphone, please. Check. Yeah. We do have uh, some questions. It's not targeted at any of you in particular, so maybe either of you can choose to answer or maybe all of you. Yep. Um, if you could add one thing to your secondary school education, what would it be? You could add one thing to your secondary, secondary education. education. What a great question. Can, I want to know who asked that. That's awesome. That's a great question. What is your background? Yeah, cool. Cool. Awesome. I'm a big believer of like no regrets. So I've, um, I'm on my third industry, third job, getting through them. What is it? Five, seven? Yeah, I'll get there. Uh, but I, I don't really regret necessarily the path I've taken because I think it's all additive to who I was. But one skill set I wish I'd developed at secondary school, and it's not a subject, it's a skill, um, negotiation and persuasion. I think that's something I'm still learning because when you've got big ideas and big visions that are big boulders to try and move, one set of hands aren't going to move them. So you do have to have some sort of level of persuasion to be able to coerce uh, others to join you on that journey. Uh, and I very much so I'm still learning that art, but it would have been awesome to have, to sort of flex my muscles uh, at school. Mine would be concepts of money. H how much is lots of money and how much is not much money? Sam, we can talk later. Yeah. <laughs> We're in the same business of trying to sell, like hustle and sell our products to corporates and, and trying to figure out how much money have you got in the budget and how much money would you like to spend and what's the value of 75, 80,000 students involved in these things. And, 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 and of course there are metrics that work these things up, but I'll never forget um, when the, the very start of Ministry of Awesome, um, Kyla said to me, her, her advice was, whatever number pops into your head, double it before it comes out of your mouth because my concept of money was quite small. I thought such and such amount was a lot of money, but it, it wasn't necessarily in terms of the people we're talking about. And often I think, and I look at through our programs and look at other projects that, that I'm, I'm involved in, um, our concepts in New Zealand of money are often too small. We're not ambitious enough with 
with money, and we don't, we, we, it's, we, 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 we're not, um, we're in a sort of flavor at the moment where we're not talking about money enough as a, as a lever to make things happen. And it's almost like money is parked, like with capitalism over here as this dirty thing at the moment. And it is a worry because you do, you need to get the money to make the things happen, but we just need different people driving the ship and, 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 do, and doing money. So that would be my one, and, and the second one, not to be bullied at the start um, of school. That would have changed my life. Um, still recovering from that. So it's, uh, yeah. do, you think that, do you think that helped? In your, I'm not advocating bullying by any means. But no, it probably did, did actually. Like, as a 16-year-old, what, 14, 13-year-old young gay guy who had no idea how to, and went to a, um, a private all-boys school, and it was pretty difficult, and I come from a farming background where, where all, most of my worldview wasn't, wasn't supported or accepted, and, and, um, uh, and I didn't know who I was at that stage. So I think it did have a huge role in forming who, who I am, um, but I think there's, uh, there's much better ways to do it. Sure. And, um, <laughs> and I, it's like you seem pretty great, so no, I, yeah, I don't well, know. Well, thank you. Um, <laughs> um, but on that front of like developing masculinity and, and that di whole dialogue, there's a great project in Australia, which I'm um, a good friend of Jan and I's, uh, Hunter Johnson, no relation to me, he runs a thing called Man Cave, where they go into schools and they get um, fathers and sons together and they facilitate amazing conversations about masculinity. Uh, and, and it's something that just needs to be uh, brought here in some sense and adapted to our cultural con context and, and, and just to be able to have those, those, con those conversations in a more facilitated way. What about you, Mia? Just trying to think, because I'm still going through it all, so I don't really want to add anything, to be honest. But, um, what would have been helpful for the climate strike? What would have been helpful... <laughs> Um, I think, oh, I don't know how to phrase this nicely, but I think I would have been like to have been not as bubble wrapped, to be honest. Because sometimes I feel like I'm going through school and it's then I pop out the other end and suddenly there's like three guys with axes and I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> um, because I've definitely gone through and... You know, I've had experiences now where I've thought, oh my gosh, I cannot believe someone just yelled at me down the phone for five minutes straight. I've never, I've, no one ever teaches me how to deal with that sort of thing. How do you deal with confrontation and how do you, no one, no one sort of says to you, people are going to be mean, <laughs> you know? So I think it would have been really great to have had some sort of just help with that sort of thing and help with how to deal with lots of different situations rather than it's just sort of saying, oh yeah, it's fine, just pat you on the back and go on. So, yeah. So some of your colleagues, um, your, your um, fellow students at school will still not have um, really experienced that I think your work uh, has brought the best and the worst out of people, and we've talked about that a little bit, about those people who are the, the haters and the trolls, and um, you know, that must be a really difficult place. Hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of sort of... I think where it comes from most is sort of the cyberbullying angle, because they're always sort of going on about how you know, cyberbullying's terrible, and if anyone ever cyberbullies you, you've got to, like, sort it out. But what do you do when your article has 500 comments saying that you are a smug cow? Quote. Never read the comments. <laughs> yeah. I know. Never read the comments. But they're so interesting. <laughs> Get a loved one to read them for you and just pull out five or ten grey ones. Yep. 
Hey, Barry, another yeah. question. Um, what would be your advice for the introverted, shy young people who struggle to have the confident mindset that is key for the future-focused workforce? I missed the first part. What was... What would your advice be for the introverted, shy young people who struggle to have the confident mindset that is key for the future-focused workforce? Mm. Um, yeah. Um, well, uh, I think it's, we, we, don't, we don't teach understanding of what's the difference between extrovert and introvert. Um, I hit myself on the head earlier in the year, and um, I, I discovered introversion after that because I had a really bad concussion. Being with any people like sucked my energy low very quickly, and so I had a whole understanding of intro like people who are introverted differently because I became one, um, and I'm really extroverted generally. Um, so I think we've got to start by teaching the, con the basic concepts of different people and different skills, and what 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 gets other people excited and what what takes it what what um, what makes people unexcited. We don't teach that. I was never taught that. I've, uh, if you don't have a professional development budget at your job, that's helping put you onto a course to learn something. But that's a skill, a, a key, key trait, which is why in our, in our kits we have 32 different roles in the class. And we've got every different student having a different role. And we, we, we focus on giving, every, giving permission to every single student that you have something valuable to contribute. It doesn't matter if you're the, the person at the front or the person at the back, but you, 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 you are valued you are valuable and you've got something to do. And sometimes I think we prioritize too. It's the wrong, the, the, we don't prioritize everything uh, enough. Um, and we, we celebritize, and I'm a victim of that, so is Kendall, celebritize a certain person at the front of something um, when actually the people behind it generally make the whole thing work. Um, I really like this question because I think it's quite relevant to my experience sort of growing from being extremely shy to sitting in front of a stage of, what, 200 people? Um, so when I was year eight, no, year seven, eight, nine, and 10, when I gave my speech at the front of the class, I cried throughout the entire thing. So as you can imagine, it was probably a really awkward experience for my class, so I feel really bad for that. Um, <laughs> yep. just tears streaming down my face as I talked about something really not that emotional um, and really just very anxious, very shy young person. But as soon as I found a purpose that I valued speaking about more than I valued what the person in front of me thought of me, that is when I stepped out of that shell. Because as soon as I think if I educate one person in this room and influence one person in this room to research climate change or think about their actions or think about how they can make a difference, that is so much more valuable to me than what the other 199 pe other people think. Because as soon as you give someone a purpose and give them a reason to stand up and talk about something or do something, that is when that they will value that so much more than whatever is stopping them. Yeah. It was, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say what Mia said. Yeah. <laughs> she said it so eloquently, so I'm just going to stop. Great. Um, so I guess um, this is a question for you, Sam, in terms of um, the, the question about influencing up, especially if we're some of the work that you're doing with the, the service awards and so on, and 
helping employers to really value and validate those. Um, what's your, your key message in that direction? On, on influencing up, yeah. Um, I mean, I think the, if I've learned anything last five years or the last two years, you've got to influence for momentum and movement for influence. Um, but their biggest challenge was how do, we, how do we keep this going and how do we influence the people who, who, who can support us to keep, to keep this going. And um, so for us, where it came back to is that if, we, if we're not recognising, whether it's a micro-credential, whatever you call it, if you're not recognising the, 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 the basic learnings that come out of whatever opportunity, um, then it's hard to step, take a step forward. And we've got to start. Um, and our, the way we've designed our programmes are um, a high, high touch, sorry, low touch, high impact. So we want to go for, for breadth across the nation. We've got 7% of primary school, 12% of high school and school signed up this year. The goal is to get to 25% in four years. Um, and and the, the reason why that is is because it's, it's a, it is, that I guess, influence across, across the board and giving everyone the opportunity to be involved in it. Um, it's interesting hearing Jan talk about um, home carers. We've done a partnership with Carers New Zealand uh, um, just on recognising mahi aroha and young home carers. So that's a whole area. There is no, no one has a database in New Zealand on young home carers. How many of people are looking after someone sick, elderly, or unwell, a person living with a disability, and who would do that as as 12-year-old, as, as an 8-year-old? I've got no knowledge of that, no recognition. So we've got to create these frameworks, which is, you know, you've created a platform. Kendall's got an amazing framework, and what we're doing is a framework as well that can recognise and push these ideas forward, and that's enabling the collective influence. I think we, we, we do undervalue collective influence and, and you, the, the influence of you just doing that as a one-off project last week, if you do nothing else, which is also totally fine, um, um, that you've made a huge difference. You have absolutely made a massive difference. Yeah, so your work is, is really um, starting to, to ramp up and get to a, a wider um, group of, of young people and in different directions. Kendall, what about you? What's your... Um, you personally or your organisation, the, the, the next big thing that you'd like to share with us? Mm, yeah, so we've <clears throat> been going and growing for five years and our focus has primarily been <clears throat> the primary and intermediate school space, cleaner slates, you know, not as messy. Um, and, and also there's some science around like financial behaviours forming by seven, that was also uh, a reason we picked that. And we're, we've now hit more than 50% of primary and intermediate schools, uh, 85,000 kids a year use our software, which is really awesome, but um, really excited to be moving up into the, the high school space. Um, obviously, financially, this is a more relevant time for them. Uh, they're starting to engage with the financial world, be it the first car, the first job, um, the first credit card, God forbid, but it, it is a, a probability. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited about that tackle of, of financially educating people who otherwise could be engaging in a financial system totally blind and naive and victim to influences. And, you know, if we look at the data that came across from the Australian Commission, uh, the Royal Inquiry into the, the banking sector, and we can extrapolate some of that behaviour may be happening here. Uh, it's totally not, you know, that's not evidential at all, but we can make some assumptions given the, given the four banks have their subs here. That's a really scary outlook for our young people, uh, and I'm really excited about the challenge of moving into that space. Um, and something else we've been working on over the last, I feel like it's two years, sort of intertwined with my personal journey, journey as well, retracing um, my whakapapa 
has been engaging with Kurakopapa Māori Immersion Schools. We've got uh, our platform out, Pekakar, as well, that serves Māori learners. So it not only is obviously translated for Māori learners, but it also is starting to consider money in a di through a different cultural lens. Uh, and I really want to push the boundaries on that, not only for Māori, but also to see as a society whether we can stop, not stop, but whether we can push and um, extend our views on, on money from not only the capitalist individual self-seeking approach, but whether we can be more societal in our, in our wealth, in our vision of wealth. So those are a couple of things I'm pretty excited about. Just a few little things? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a really exciting space, and, and Kendall was uh, going to be here uh, during the, the day and upstairs, or we are upstairs, but um, in the in the, um, the the room at the the top on the left in the lunch hour, uh, Kendall will be there um, with with Banker and some of the other the, the latest developments for those that want to engage and have a closer look. So that's that's fabulous. Yep. So it's nearly morning tea. The sign's <laughs> fallen down. Um, so um, Mia, I'm not going to ask you about what next for, for for you because you know you've sort of talked a little bit about that. But um, what's next for you tomorrow at the conference? Can you just tell us what? Oh, yeah what we can expect? Um, so tomorrow during the lunch hour, I believe, um, I'm going to be here with some of uh, the girls who have helped organise the strike. Um, on Friday, they're a real integral part of our team and we are going to be here just to talk about climate education, climate activism, why we need to take action and hopefully just engage in conversations on how you as educators, most of you, can make a difference to whoever you are educating because it is something that we do need to intertwine into our education at the moment because it will impact us. It's meant to be the biggest thing in our lifetime. So having that education, having that awareness and the confidence to be able to tackle it is so important for all students coming through schools and universities and anywhere at the moment. So um, it'll be awesome to talk to each and every one of you about how we can build a relationship and how that can happen. So yeah. Great, so our panel will be here during the, the morning tea break too to uh, have a, a deeper conversation with you. Um, it's now time to have a break for morning tea. And um, again, there's, there are the coffee carts outside. It's time to uh, explore some of the other amazing people in the room and have a look at each other's tuakana strengths. Uh, the invitation is to be back in here ready for another action-packed session after morning tea. Our, our start time is 10 past 11. We are ready for action. So enjoy morning tea and the conversations. Please join with me in thanking the panel. Uh, welcome back, everyone. Um, our next speaker comes to us from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, John Blash is the Director of Educational Engagement at Carnegie Mellon University's Entertainment Technology Centre. John holds several degrees, uh, ranging from graphic design to fine art, education, and is seeking his PhD in instructional technology. His career spans roles uh, throughout K to graduate school spectrum, 
uh, creating curricula from the ground up and establishing new programs which will evolve around the emerging technologies we're seeing today. It's my pleasure to welcome to the stage John Balash. Thank you very much. Uh, it's, it's really a pleasure to be here and to see all the work that is happening here in New Zealand. Uh, and so we're going to sort of time travel uh, and see what it looks like across the pond in a little bit of Pittsburgh, PA. Uh, so welcome to Small Bets 20 years later. I apologize in advance uh, for those of you who are sensitive to time travel, as we're going to be zipping in and out of timelines uh, quite often, and of course, looking towards the future. So a quick note of housekeeping. We should hopefully, potentially, again, breaking a rule, uh, have some time for more questions at the end, and also perhaps slipping a few more people into a demo. Uh, so we'll kick this off with a quick introduction, and thank you, and just a little more in depth. So John Baylash, Director of Educational Engagement at Carnegie Mellon's Entertainment Technology Center, uh, after and throughout the conference, please feel free to contact me. Uh, our department's URL is right there. And then also, if you're feeling social, please reach out to Remake Learning and, of course, of course the Future of Learning New Zealand 2019. So I come from, from a family of teachers across various fields, my grandmother and my sister in early childhood education, as well as my father and mother in secondary education and my brother as well. So long lineage in education. My personal XP or experience points uh, really include projects working with clients ranging from DARPA, which is the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, which is a branch of the US military, um, to Disney, as in the mouse ears, Disney. Uh, so pretty wide gap in there. Uh, and then I also work in the K through grad, grad school levels uh, with close to a decade of formal classroom teaching. I also share time at the Museum Lab, which is uh, part of the Children's Museum of Pittsburgh's campus, which is the US, the, the largest cultural campus for children in the US. So on the, uh, uh, on the side, I also enjoy building with Lego, which is my superpower, or one of them. Uh, and my wife and I just finished a Voltron set, which is really, really amazing. Uh, and in my younger days, I was actually a, uh, a national finalist in a building competition. And uh, if you find me after the talk, you can ask me what I built to get there. Uh, but it, it was really, when I look backwards, it, I think it was a sign that I should be in academia. So the idea of my talk is about a series of small bets in terms of innovation and education in the Pittsburgh region, which can be exported anywhere. And we already see that happening here today. Uh, the name of the talk mentions small bets. So to practice what I preach, I'm going to take a big time gamble, big time gamble, uh, and do a live demo here. So can I have a brave member of the audience Come down and join me. I saw your hand fly up super quickly. So come on down. Thank you. 
So I hope you can project, otherwise you can lean in. What's your name? Sam. Sam, pleasure to meet you. Too. Where are you coming from? Uh, ben and Jerry's. Ben and Jerry's, okay. But I'm from Christchurch. Okay, wonderful. Well, it's awesome to have you here. Uh, what I'm gonna have you do, have you ever been in augmented reality? Not, uh, yeah, sort of. Yeah? I've used um, the Oculus. Okay, okay, very good. All right, this, this will be a little bit different. Um, so I will have you have a seat. Uh, you might have to flip your cap backwards uh, or take it off, that's fine. Um, and I'm gonna explain what I'm gonna strap to your head uh, and then we'll sort of go from there. You still in? Yeah. All right, and so fair warning too and, and very much a gamble. Um, this is not optimized for laptop usage, but we made it happen. Uh, so just think about that while you go through it. Um, so five week prototype. Off we go, and so I will have, oops, I can click. Aha, you see the audience, wonderful. Um, so I'm gonna explain the contraption on your head. So, the, aha, we see hands now too. Um, so what you're wearing is actually an Oculus Rift. We have a stereoscopic camera that is allowing our guest to see the audience. And then we also have, uh, you might have to hold them a little closer to your, to your head, yep. We also have a leap motion here, uh, which will allow for um, AI to track hands. So we get gestural tracking as well. And so we already did the natural thing, and when you see that you flip your hand over, you see a menu pop out, and so you can use the other hand to pinch and sort of grab one of those spheres, and you'll have to, I'm sorry that it's not mapped right to your hand, uh, but you'll have to use sort of like the wireframe hands uh, to grab it. And it'll turn yellow when, yep, you got one. Bing, 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 you let it go. It'll stay in space and you've pulled out. Oh, I should have mic'd him. And, you could, um, and so what you can do is you can pull out anything else. We can see that the, the learning curve is actually quite quick. And then if you pull out, say, another, well, you can do whatever you want, actually. Um, so if you, if you use both hands, you can grab one in one hand, one in the other. That might be a slightly out of your reach. Like, so the beauty, beauty, beauty about technology is that it's so immersive that he doesn't care that he's just grasping at nothing. Uh, so grab one with one hand. Oh, you might have to take a look right back down here, and we'll see if they pop back up close. Or you can always pull another one out. So the idea, though, is if you pull one with one hand and one with the other, then you can start to make bonds and different molecules, okay? So the idea behind this is that uh, our students were checking out what augmented reality could do in the future classroom. So obviously this technology would probably never see the classroom. Fast forward 10 years and they might start to look like your eyeglasses. Um, and then also what's, what's interesting about this is that not only are the students in our departments looking at, <laughs> looking at, looking at the different um, the, the different technologies, but they're also basing it in sound theory. So the theory, if you are able or when you are able to uh, connect a bond, um, is actually rooted in the valence shell electron pair repulsion theory, or VSEPR. Uh, and so again, after the talk, talk to me about Lego and maybe not valence shell electron repulsion. Um, so, you want to keep going, or? 
Yeah? So, yeah, uh, we're close. Yeah, a little bit lower. Oh. Oh. This is, this is, yeah, yeah. And then pluck another one. Ta-da! Yay! Thank you. I'll pull you out now. <laughs> Thank you. Again, a big round of applause. Thank you very much, Samuel, for being a guinea pig. And then we'll switch, switch back. So as you can see, <laughs> technology is really interesting. Uh, in, in classic presentation form, there was a Windows update. Uh, so what you saw today was, uh, and right here, and again, thank you, uh, was Project Pupil. And so this was a 15-week uh, project that was exploring the future classroom. And in the photo here, you also see that uh, other folks can actually join in and play, whether it be remotely or local. Uh, but I'm not going to bring too many of these overseas. So uh, that's happening today. This is uh, a talk about 20 years, so off we go to 1999. So 2018, real-time language uh, with the, um, the, the Google Pixel Buds. <clears throat> 2017, we have affordable 360 cameras available on the market, and they, they stitch their own images together at an affordable cost. 2016, we have reusable rockets, which is just sort of a silly thing to say, but it's true. Uh, 2015, we have unicorns. Unicorns are born, so a half of a billion dollars is invested in one AR technology group, and, and plenty more after that. 2014, Boston Dynamics gives us a glimpse of the future demise with their agile robots, so we get uh, some really interesting, and I think just recently we saw one doing a gymnastics routine. In 2013, we have the, uh, the appearance of temporary social media, and, and so things like Snapchat. 2012, we see a growth in crowdfunding where coffers are stuffed and stuff is made. Uh, and so Kickstarter and Indiegogo. And then we have a severely underrated piece of hardware in 2011. And the Connect 2 is still going very strong today. And then also the, the latest model. Cloud computing gives us the ability to process very, very, very quickly. And in 2009, we have a Siri co-founder saying, is, Siri is always going to be just a tool, not a rival to human intelligence. We have a new challenger in the ring in 2008 with all the flavors of Android uh, being introduced. We have smartphone frenzy, 2007, all the rage then, all the rage now. We have the winner of the console wars, in my opinion, which is the Nintendo Wii offering uh, really innovative controllers uh, compared to just the standard um, input devices. We have the introduction of video sharing via YouTube and all the stories and information uh, and tutorials that can be found on that service. Uh, if you haven't heard of these folks, they've heard of you, every single one of you. Uh, in 2003, we have uh, Skype, which connects families via video over the internet. Um, the Roomba, still sucking today. Uh, 
And, and so we have a talk about the, uh, the natural language processing, uh, bing, 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 coming up later. Uh, and so really, really fascinating how that has evolved uh, since 2001, A Space Odyssey. Uh, in 2000, we have um, a, a sort of a revolution in gaming through the, the PlayStation 2 and all their glorious titles. And that brings us to 1999, uh, which was the year that the Entertainment Technology Center was founded. The, the ETC was really founded to mash together small teams to solve real-world challenges. The ETC is warmly referred to as the world's best playground with an electric fence. In short, the ETC provides context, processes, and best practices for the design and development of creative experiences through project-based learning where something must be made. So again, Project Pupil, which we demoed, is one of those. Uh, if you've never seen the last lecture, I, I strongly suggest that you do. It's, it's from one of our founders, and it could be found at that, that URL. And so we're going to get back to the good stuff, a graduate department that makes cool stuff, and it sounds like something out of a movie. So the success of the program grew. One project became four. And in 2007, another small group of folks from various disciplines in the Pittsburgh region gather over breakfast and start making small bets. And this is the start of the Remake Learning Network. And separate from our timeline, here's a quick glance into their timeline since 2017. Again, all starting over some pancakes and coffee. And this is a true cross-sector ecosystem. And there's a, a bunch of players in this, which we can see in the, uh, in the next slide, with a common goal to where the region, we want learning in our region to be the most equitable, engaging, and relevant so it can be the best place to be a kid. And it's important to note that around the table at the early stages were community members, universities, philanthropic groups, and businesses. And then we start seeing the education systems and the, the, the lower levels jump in. So here's a, a quick little map of everything. It's a little bit hard to read, but you can see us down this way uh, and a number of other universities and initiatives. And this culminates in a celebration of education known as Remake Learning Days. In 2018, 206 free and public events were held over a week's time, seeing over 50,000 youth and adult participants. Rewind to 2009, the ETC runs 26 projects, including a project known as CP Elevated. CP Elevated worked in the Chicago Public Libraries, and eventually U-Media was formed from that work. The philosophy is to hang out, mess around, and geek out. Since 2009, there are now 19 U-Media sites in total around Chicago. The year is 2011. Uh, another community of practice is formed as the ETC project MakeShop kicks off. The ETC would run 35 small bets in 2011. Fast forward, the Children's Museum of Pittsburgh now sees over 300,000 guests annually, including nearly 25,000 students. So now you can start to see the effect of the, uh, the multiple small bets over time. 
And while pillars are solidified, more small bets continue. Still in 2011, a, uh, a younger and bristlier John uh, takes a bet and applies to Carnegie Mellon's Entertainment Technology Center as an educator without submitting my graduate requisite scores. I'm folded into the network of risk takers and devote my graduate studies towards educationally focused projects. Fast forward, thanks to the efforts of several people in this room, uh, the, the ETC officially has an outreach initiative. Strategic dissemination of ETC process and technologies yield a boost of educationally focused projects and impact. Three years later, and we're back to the present. Hooray, we've made it. 2019, the Museum Lab opens with success hinging on bets from a number of partners, including Carnegie Mellon University, University of Pittsburgh, Manchester Academic Charter School, which is a middle school nestled on the second floor of the museum, uh, and Saturday Light Brigade, and many, many other partners. And to continue the time warping, even back further, the, uh, the site of the museum lab was Andrew Carnegie's first commissioned public library, which was completed in 1890. Uh, and so it's, it's truly awesome to see a space of learning thriving again as it was closed down for several years. Uh, and just like what I've seen in my time here in beautiful New Zealand, it's just something that you have to experience. So I wanted to dwell on the museum lab briefly as these environments can play part in a learning ecosystem. Our friends at KnowledgeWorks and the work of Jason and his colleagues um, really play a big part in building this out and mapping it out. Uh, and they recently published an article with the American Alliance of Museums exploring the importance of museums. Catherine Prince, KnowledgeWorks Vice President of Strategic Foresight, offers her thoughts on museums' roles in achieving this vision. She focuses on three opportunities from the five listed above. Uh, and to not butcher it, I'm just gonna go verbatim. So, museums are vital members of their community's learning ecosystems, yet today's funding and government structures can make it difficult to begin or sustain cross-organizational learning experiences. Despite that tension, there are opportunities to forge partnerships with other local organizations, including cultural institutions and schools for the benefit of all. Creating partnerships with diverse institutions and organizations can help link learning across locations while also addressing resource constraints and other challenges. To move in this direction, museums can break down silos with other educational institutions and community organizations. They seek a common ground and pathways towards mutual support. By working together, organizations can strengthen their ability to surface and address issues of mutual concern, such as teen stress, anxiety, uh, or growing income divides. It could also open up new avenues for helping learners develop interdisciplinary thinking and problem skills that will be essential for the future workplace. Effective partnerships require intentional cultivation and new ways of approaching shared work. To maximize the benefits of participating in community-wide learning ecosystems, museums can work to grow their partnership capacity, exchanging best practices and, and sponsoring 
or participating in professional development opportunities. They can also adopt new roles and structures oriented towards participation in broader learning ecosystems. Uh, and honestly, I love reading that because it reminds me that we're right here in the thick of it. Uh, museums are well-placed to foster authentic engagement that we know to be a key factor in student achievement. By creating opportunities for learners to connect their lived experiences and identities to their learning, they can help learners craft their own narratives of success. These narratives may run counter to or be broader than the narrow and outdated narratives and measures of success used by many traditional educational institutions. To motivate ongoing engaging, engaged learning, museums can expand their own narratives of success, reappraising how they evaluate their programs by working with the community stakeholders to create new measures of success. Museums can help ensure that new approaches reflect the aspirations of those whom they seek to engage and support. Museums can also teach for self-discovery and healing, helping visitors and program participants reflect on their own personal accounts of the values and attributes of success. Facilitating personal interpre interpretations of success can help link learners' histories and identities to future visions of wellness and growth and equip learners to act on their own values, participate in their communities, and contribute to the world. Again, we find this in the very proof that we're here and also in the Remake Learning Movement. So, hurrah, we've done it. We flashed through 20 years in a matter of minutes. Uh, we've painted a picture of how nudges in the Pittsburgh region, and also proof here, uh, can build into one another into something sprawling. Uh, but now we want to extract some of the best practices and skills, in, in this instance, through the ETC's perspective, so that we can look to the future. And the first skill we can explore shouldn't be too tough, as you've all been doing it so carefully, uh, and that is to listen. Uh, and so how does this apply when we place the bets and take the chances that lead to impact. Listening is so important for the ETC uh, as we design holistically. Uh, we're, we're diving deep into the needs, the goals, and what's exciting. So let's dive into the different ways that we can listen. From MIT, and I don't think anyone from CMU is watching right now, so I can say that. Uh, from MIT, Otto Schwarmer gives us various levels of listening. In this case, we're looking uh, at them through the Pittsburgh lens. So first is downloading, and if you can, uh, think of it as the blue dot representing the center of attention in the process. Sure, we're building a solution for something or someone else, but in this scenario, I already know the answer. It's the best answer. Naturally, one can guess that in this style, results for a solution don't fit anyone but me. And most often, they don't even solve uh, any solution, um, uh, even for myself. So we're stuck in a fragmented process and also a fragmented culture of learning. So next up, we can sort of shift the center of attention to the side and listen for factual information. This is where we can hear some uncomfortable information. 
Uh, and this is where we can also be adaptive and react. We're getting on to something. So, in truly building empathy, we establish an emotional connection and can experience how others feel. We can reflect, which then infuses into our design choices. And this is actually where too often the process stops. But of course, there's more. In generative listening, learning, designing, however you want to apply it, uh, this allows us to listen for the future to emerge. We start to shift process and culture. And the next question is, well, who's listening? In Creative Chaos, which is available in the, well, will be available in the conference's digital goodie bag, our director, Drew Davidson, and our department as a whole reflects on who and what is needed to be involved for impactful change and, and how does that happen. So I want to focus on two points from that, uh, from that text. And one of them is being inclusion. So a quote from the text is, we work to accept that we're all potentially different, but also that we can all make a difference. In Remake's learning case, who is showing up for breakfast? As part of Remake Learning, our department scouts talent and applications to ensure balanced teams. We're now seeing over 50% of female attendees, uh, with the majority of students being international. 40% are students that come from a computer science background. 40% fall into an artistic field, uh, and not really anyone in particular. And 20% of an incoming class is reserved for what I like to call wild cards. Uh, we've seen accountants that have a passion for puppeteering, uh, and we've seen teachers that compete in national building competitions. <clears throat> At the ETC, we nurture inclusion through everyone taking improvisational acting, which is not a course that you probably commonly see in graduate studies. Uh, there's no technology, again, contrary to what ETC stands for. Uh, but those three simple rules are be fun to play with, serve the story, and make your partner look good. Improv lives and dies on the team and how they're playing. So the table is set, we have all the players, and now we're ready to take action. And of course, just like the technology minutes before this talk, we fail. Uh, and that's okay. Everyone does. At the ETC, we actually have something called the First Penguin Award. And this award is bestowed to the team that had the most spectacular failure. Uh, so shooting for the stars, but falling short and burning up on reentry. The, the award's name comes from the idea that some penguin has to be the first to go into the water. Uh, and they might get the reward of all the fish, or they might be gobbled up by a predator. With this award, we want to encourage teams to fail fast and fail forward. And it, is also, uh, it also helps us to provide a context for discussing this positive type of failure as opposed to failure due to lack of effort. So with that mindset, 
we can always be learning, and we can make every bet a winning one. So the final question that I'll pose, which will give us time for questions, is what's going to be your small bet today? So, thank you. And we can sneak someone in for a demo if they really want to try it. <laughs> well, this technology would be for you. Any questions about just the technology or the various projects that we might work on uh, as a department? So again, we probably run every semester between 15 to 20 different projects. Yes? Sure, yeah. So the question is uh, how the educational outreach from the ETC works. Uh, and so it's, it's really based on the process of the ETC where there will be challenges presented and students have to create solutions. Uh, where the connection to the university comes in is naturally the resources and the technical know-how to sort of push students towards those solutions. Uh, so students have created anything from animated uh, flip books to actually just last year we had our first virtual reality world uh, that was created by a team of high schoolers uh, on the Oculus technology. Um, so again, not necessarily bent on the technology, but more about the process. <laughs> Did you lose a hand? I lost both hands. Oh, do you want me to reset you? Please. Okay. <clears throat> That's so I'll pose a question to you. Uh, how exactly does it feel to, have you been in augmented reality before? You have? What, what devices and what contexts? Uh, so I help out at the technology hub. Of good collaboration. So uh, if, if I, I'll repeat the question. So working across all these different sectors, whether it be in uh, K through 12, so elementary school, uh, and then also with partnering with museums and other departments. What's a good common denomination? Uh, so one of them is the, and, and this sort of falls back on the, the improvisational acting, is the, the mentality of yes and, uh, and also taking risks, knowing that not all of them will pay off, uh, but really setting up that mentality to say, well, let's try, and then make sure that we take whatever good nugget falls out of that uh, and then learn from it. So not everything's gonna be a success, we already know that, but taking those chances and having the okay to fail and fail forward is something that's been driven into our department and then also across the network. Um, so another really interesting thing too is that when everyone buys into the same message, uh, then you can get a lot more accomplished because we're not, we're not burning bridges, we're making bridges. Um, so I think it, it always comes down to people, doesn't it? Um, so being able to interact uh, and, and sort of map those wins will uh, allow for a lot more doors to open and a lot more connections to be made. Thank you for the question. Yes? We do not. We would love to. Um, yeah, no, let's talk. Yes? Um, 
Yeah, so uh, the question is what happens when you, you fail wonderfully and the media catches on to it, right? Um, so, that, of course, that has happened. Um, I think, and this is moderately cheating, uh, but the Pittsburgh region sort of understands that, especially going after the, the collapse of the steel industry, uh, and then saying, well, okay, we've got to do something to change. What can we do? Because we've already hit rock bottom. We've actually seen that in a few schools as well, where their test scores are just abysmal, so they try and try and try again with that sort of spike level of success and failure. Um, the, I mean, I think that there's going to be, there's always going to be that negative input, and I think that Mia and the other panelists mentioned that there's those comments, those trolls, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, one way that we counteract that is honestly celebrating the failures and the successes at the same time. So Remake Learning Days is a wonderful uh, example of that. And then also, the even with our own department, we have what's called the, um, the Entertainment Technology Fall Festival, where it maps out all the different steps in the process in which led to those, whether they be a failure or not. Um, so I would say to counteract it, you celebrate it. Are we good? All right, well, thank you. What, did you get anything? Did you get anything? <laughs> what was your name? Alex, good to meet you. Yeah, pleasure to meet you. <clears throat> John, thank you um, so much for sharing some of the work of, of Carnegie Mellon, and um, I really like that penguin thing. I could you know, just see myself um, uh, getting that award quite often. <laughs> um, and and what, I, what I really value is that when people use technology in a demo, and you know, it works, it works well in some respects and not in others, but I actually couldn't, I couldn't get over all of those bits and how you'd connect those and how you'd develop something like that in five weeks. So please join with me in, in thanking John once again. Now, it's my pleasure, and theirs I can tell by the look on their faces, uh, to welcome the BOMA team to the stage. Uh, ten secondary teachers, yes, woof. Um, ten secondary teachers have been on a long journey to design and implement a future-focused future project in their, their schools. Um, so please, BOMA fellows, would you like to come and take up these chairs that are especially... Uh, they are waiting for you. Woo! They're not nervous, neither am I. They have been the most uh, amazing team over the year. They're going to take two minutes each to share their work and uh, they'll also be part of one of the afternoon workshops. And the reason for doing this so early in the piece is so that you can eyeball these people, and as they talk, you will think, ah, I need to talk further with that person and have a conversation uh, or to come to the, the session this afternoon. So um, they're part of our, our team for the two days. Uh, connect with their projects with them. They are a, a, a really interesting um, group of people. But to set the scene and explain what a BOMA fellow actually is and a little bit about their journey, uh, please welcome to the stage one of the key BOMA coordinators, Rebecca Robinson.
tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa, e mihi atu ana kia koutou. Rōranga tira mā, tēnā koutou katoa, ko Rebecca Robertson aho, kia ora. As Cheryl said, uh, Bowman New Zealand is um, part of a global network dedicated to shaping smart, ethical leaders through learning experiences that combine what you need to know with who you need to be to be more intentional and intelligent about the future you're creating. Boma Education Fellows wouldn't be possible without the vision and support of Christchurch Airport, whose own innovation journey is strongly aligned to the aspirations of the programme. The airport team provide mentoring, exposure to the latest technologies in use at the airport, such as autonomous vehicles, virtual reality training, and a base for our intensive programme and um, presentation workshop. The Boma Education Fellowship is a free, year-long programme designed to help 10 Canterbury-based secondary educators bring exponential thinking, technology and innovation leadership into their schools. Programmed entirely out of school hours, these fellows have worked hard in their holidays and after hours in addition to their day jobs. We thank them for their commitment and really look forward to seeing their project outcomes. Applications are now open for the 2020 cohort, closing 18th of October. So before the fellows pitch their projects to you, I'll briefly explain what the programme involves over the course of the year. There were monthly gatherings over shared dinners where the fellows identified problems and opportunities, ideating solutions and validating their ideas through workshops with the support of each other, guest speakers and mentors. In April, the fellows broadened their projects with a trip to the US involving school visits, student-led tours, QA, Q and, Q and answer um, sessions with principals, meetings with educators and classroom observations, and a project-based learning workshop. Um, and the visit concluded at Stanford D School's um, K-12 lab for a two-day laboratory design thinking workshop. As you can see from the photos, the group had a really fun time. Uh, a three-day intensive program at Christ Christchurch Airport had the fellows executing, pitching to rounds of speed mentors and validating their ideas with speed mentors, and then finally delivering a project pre presentation at the conclusion of the three days. So today, the fellows are presenting their progress to you. Their projects will be ultimately rolled out in their schools, resulting in tangible outcomes that can be shared, scaled and replicated to others in the wider education community. And again, a big thanks to Christchurch Airport for supporting the Bowman Education Fellowship. And over to our first Ed Fellow, Brad Milne. Coming up to the stage, this is like speed two minutes, so please keep your applause until we've heard from all 10 fellows. It's going to be high-paced. Over to you, Brad. Oh, kia ora. Thanks, Kiel. Uh, Cheryl. Yeah, kia ora, everybody. My name's Brad Milne, and I'm at uh, St. Thomas at Canterbury College. And, and I had a real issue, and I thought, man, this is a great opportunity that I could really have some accountability to deal with an issue that's been nagging me for, for a long time. In education, we've been told, hey, you've got to be innovative. You've got to meet the needs of our learners that are moving into the forward. You've got to redesign your learning. And hey, you know what? I agree with all of that. I really do. The what and the why, I get 
But what I found missing was a lot of the, the how. How do you expect us to do this? Where's the toolbox? Where's the initiatives that are going to help us in education to be consistent, to be able to deliver what you're asking us to be deliver? Such as skills like how do we be, uh, teach our students to be persuasive and negotiate? You know, it's not just about the sort of the curriculum needs, it's the skills as well. So I thought, hey, here's a really good opportunity here to create a toolbox, to create a problem, to create, uh, sorry, to address a problem and to create an opportunity where a model, I can create a model uh, to develop the capacity of middle leaders in secondary schools to be able to lead education in their areas of responsibility. Um, innovation, it's not a fixed product. It's not something that's materialised, it's, it's a mindset. It's the ability to think more intelligently and intentionally, uh, intentionally what it is that education wants us to deliver for our, for our young people. And so what I'm doing is working with my middle leaders in my secondary school to empower them with confidence to develop their capacity to lead uh, innovation with their areas of responsibilities. So we're putting this together, we're designing it, uh, we're trying to shift the emphasis from a compliance-based managerial model, which a lot of middle leadership uh, models can or tend to be within uh, education, to an opportunity where they can thrive, they can lead their teammates, uh, team members, they can create capacity in them to be able to uh, be innovative uh, in their passions that they want to work with. Also change the concept of what leadership is. You know, at the moment, in my community, a lot of people see uh, leadership as a managerial, it's compliance, it's, it's not an opportunity to get out there and lead, and, and I really want to make leadership aspirational again. So leadership and innovation is my model, and that's what I'm working towards. Kia ora tato. Ko tainui takuwaka, ko tainui takuiwi, ko ngatiteata takuhapu, Ko Waikato Tokuawa, ko Alicia Poroa Tokuingwa. I'm from Hayata Community Campus, as um, a Kaiarahi. Um, my journey here is I've taken a personal journey actually as a Māori and Pākehā learner in Aotearoa. I've brought my lived experience to this project of being going through the education system and being acted upon by the education system as a Māori without actually being asked how it was for me. So what I've taken upon myself is to ask the people that we work with, how was that experience for you? I've also become really curious about a part of the way we measure success um, by, by the output of data and how the data is separated from the human being behind that number. And, um, what I've come, come to realise is that um, the story gets lost in translation when we turn that information into a number. And so I've come across a really interesting um, programme called SenseMaker through my um, curiosity about complexity thinking. And I've been able to become part of a network of people who are also curious about this in the education system. And the project that I've designed um, as a prototype um, is a small-scale small, small scale project at Hayata Community cam Campus asking 300 akonga there about their experience of uh, karakia in the morning at Hayata. What, that, what I'm hoping that will do is not only inform the way that we engage with how our learners experience what we do, but also inform our operational um, space about how we develop what we do for our young people in relation to the values that we propagate, 
to the um, success that we desire, but also meet the obligations that the ministry require from us. And um, that's me. Kia ora koutou. Hi, I'm uh, Josh Campbell, the other Josh. Um, I'm currently teaching at Burnside High School. Uh, and my teaching has primarily been around the idea that um, students should take full control of their learning uh, and that individualised and personalised projects and learning are really powerful ways for people to build on top of things they already know and go in a much wider, wider direction. So to that end, what I've been designing is a, a modular course design um, that lets students identify an issue that's of interest. So they come into my classroom as people and we immediately go to work on issues. They define projects that are of interest to them. And they then start identifying the skills they're going to need across the year to make that project work. They identify the people they're going to need uh, to make that project work, which might be classroom teachers, specialists, people in the community, or other students. Uh, and then they start to look at assessment. And that's a final thing by design. Um, we primarily focus around NZQA standards, uh, but there's nothing in the design that stops the student from using any kind of qualification they like. But our focus is on the assessment for learning. So they're always learning how to assess their progress. Uh, and that throws some of them. So my project this year has been about implementing this across years 11, 12, and 13. Uh, so we've been assessing with level one, two, and three NCA, uh, and looking at how to embed that learning and teaching. So I've learned an awful lot this year, trying to get kids to do this. Uh, my BOMA project has been around that implementation, but it's also been around communicating it to other teachers, and quite frankly, anyone who will listen. Uh, so what's happened across the year is I've designed a, a sort of a visual of the model that I've just kind of outlined. Uh, and made it available as a poster for now, and there's a write-up on my website as well. So if you are hovering around me at any point, you can either talk to me, or there is a QR code you can scan and go and read about it later on. It's got all my development articles um, across the last few years. So thank you very much. Tēnā koutou katoa, no mwaikari au, ko Jacqueline Yoda toko ingoa. I'm assistant principal at Limerick College. This year at IDO and Stanford D School, I discovered I was a letter. I'd always thought I was a person. An eye shape has strengths and one skill. A T shape has depth and breadth and skills. And the ultimate, X, has depth, breadth, and human-centered skills. Apparently, everyone wants to employ an X. The problem I see is that too many Māori rangatahi leave our schools without that X shape demanded by an ever-evolving world. My solution? A design thinking model for schools that could form our rangatahi into Xs. It was then I took a rather large equity pause, thanks David Clifford, and found the real challenge. If your language does not have an X, how can you aspire to be one? Moreover, what if X itself is problematic? The X on a colonisation map? or how Yutipuna had to sign the treaty. I then wondered what letter shapes into Putaka Māori I could use to support design thinking systems in bringing out a different story. Time for another equity pause. Notice, self, 
power and bias. Make sure you are not building something for you. So this project is Mahitahi with a rupu of Rangatahi Toa. They and their whānau have loudly validated there is a problem and they are now defining how to bring out, connect and share their strengths and skills as Māori. They will find their own shape. My job is to create an accessible, adaptive model for this process so shapes and structures can be scaled across cultures and contexts. I call it alphabet mana. Kia ora koutou. Social media, ban it, block it, confiscate. But our school, we use it and we allow students to lead the way. We had a need in our school. We weren't communicating with our school community fast enough, often enough, or across the variety of platforms that are now available through technology. So we created a communication team of students. Why students? Because it's their world, it's their technology, and it's their school. They quickly renamed themselves into MAD, the Media and Advertising Division. They are a Year 12 elective, Year 11s and 13s can also join in. This elective has no assessment, but you can align it to the new digital technology curriculum. Even though the elective is three hours a week, the students actually work between five and 15 hours a week. They create for us billboards, they create our um, videos for our assemblies, they create, um, excuse me, let's <coughs> talking here, they create um, websites, they create digital media for um, our newsletter, they create the Facebook page, they create, um, what else do they do? Oh, Snapchat, we have two Instagram pages and at the moment they are exploring social media. So, we create content for our school. We meet a need, the content is positive and it is high quality and we save our school thousands of dollars. So where to next in 2020 for MAD? Well, we have a MAD class ready to go for next year. We're also wanting to bring it into year 10 um, as mini-MAD, an elective in year 10. We are teaming up with Jix, which is an experimental marketing company, tech company here in Christchurch. This weekend just gone, the student leadership in MAD were part of the Techstars startup, and they have been exploring strategies of how to scale MAD to other schools so that other schools can inform, promote, and celebrate their school community using social media and letting students lead the way. Thank you. Tane koutou katoa, nā mihi nui kia koutou, nō Hurunui College Aho, ko Tim Kelly Taku Ingwa. Project-based learning in, in science and digital technology it's an approach that most of us think is an effective way to learn for students, uh, allowing them to apply their knowledge in authentic and useful ways with, with their autonomy. Uh, a recent Ministry of Education report found that uh, project-based learning in science uh, improves students' attitudes towards science learning, but the same report discouraged high use of project-based learning. Why? Um, curriculum coverage in project-based learning tends to be quite narrow. Uh, and also, students don't tend to have the skills they need to be able to undertake project-based learning effectively. Therefore, my research is focused on 
creating a framework for teaching students how to undertake project-based learning well uh, and with autonomy. So to that end, I've created a collaboration between science and digital technology teachers nationally. Uh, together we are creating a framework for PLB uh, to include um, soft skills and assessment techniques necessary for all students to make progress through a project. Uh, the liberatory design thinking process uh, as, a, as a framework for a project. And also, um, sorry, and also um, timing, of course, timing and method for, for incorporating curriculum delivery, which seems to be important to a lot of teachers. Now, we're going to deliver this project in 2020, uh, and we have a specific uh, context for our project, which is electronic possum lures, that is, using electronics to lure in possums. Apologies to the Australians. Um, so students are going to use microprocessors to design, build, and field test their own electronic possum lures. And the outcome for all of this is going to be a general framework for project-based learning that teachers around the country can use. Thank you. Kia ora koutou. I'm Jackie Brown and I lead the Mathematics and Statistics Faculty at Mount Hutt College in Methven. And um, my project has been around challenging the perceptions that our community has towards maths. It's, um, maths has got an interesting reputation amongst our parent community and many parent communities and that's starting to have a negative effect on the students' ability to learn in class. So this is where project-based learning has come in. We know, as Tim was saying, that project-based learning is a really good way to engage and motivate our students and also to give them a real-world context for their learning. We also know that it's a way to develop key competencies, such as um, the ability to think deeply and to manage ourselves, to relate uh, to others and participate and contribute positively in our community, and to communicate using texts and languages. But in maths, it's also really important to develop a growth mindset that can do attitude. It is hard. We know that. So you need the ability to be resilient and to persevere and to know that failure is actually kind of winning and that's where you learn. So we have um, been working on all sorts of projects. It's been really interesting from, um, from cupcake selling business plans through to transformation, transformation geometry, um, day of the dead masks, and uh, using technology to, to produce linear graphing and string art. And possibly, the, and argu arguably the most um, successful has been a six month level one project um, with my math students where they have um, worked on design home, dream, uh, dream home building and planning design assessed and three achievement standards. Um, one really, really important aspect of project-based learning is having a really authentic audience to um, sell your product to and we've just recently had a mathematics extravaganza. We've invited our community in and we've challenged those perceptions that they have with some really, really interesting feedback. So if you'd like to know more, come and see me later. Thank you. Uh, Morena, I'm Tamara Proctor. I'm from Hagley College. 
Um, I feel incredibly fortunate to have been part of this uh, BOMA uh, Education Fellowship. Um, this journey has seen me dive into work around micro-credentials and laboratory design thinking. Uh, micro-credentials are a small qualification which show demonstration of a skill. They're digital, archivable and searchable, often seen as an image, but so much more with data being baked into it. Liberatory design thinking is an adaptation of design thinking which was co-designed by David Clifford, who Cheryl spoke about earlier, um, and with the uh, Equity Project. Uh, we were introduced to liberatory design thinking at a workshop at the Stanford D School earlier this year. Liberatory design thinking is about putting equity into the design process. It is an adaptation of design thinking that accounts for the historical context, power and inequity. It supports designers to practice deep self-awareness, share power with communities, and practice design in more equitable ways. It has included within it the notice, reflect, and empathize, uh, and the image behind. It also includes empathy pauses and um, equity pauses. So, for my project, I've designed a series of micro-credentials in laboratory design thinking across four levels, beginner to expert, as well as micro-credentials for the different stages. What this means is that a designer could gain a micro-credential in laboratory design thinking, say, at level two, but they could um, gain a micro-credential in ideation at level three. Uh, to me, laboratory design thinking uh, process is about putting the human at the centre and not the product. Um, I've tried it this past term with Year 9 students who are in an integrated curriculum class based on the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. It's been a challenge, um, but in a good way, uh, for them to learn and try to understand their own assumptions and biases while progressing through this process. Um, I see these micro-credentials as not just for high school students, but for anyone wanting to put equity into the design process. And my next step um, is to develop this further and to find other people and designers um, who are willing to trial the new practice of laboratory design to enable the equity designer to emerge. So if you're interested in this, feel free to come up and have a chat. Thank you. When was the last time you were in a really awesome space where you were challenged, got creative, solved some problems? Most recently for me was when I was at the D School at Stanford University and also recently at the Christchurch Innovation Hub. I was challenged, I was provoked, I was given the space to be creative and to fail in a positive way. Hi, my name is Bronwyn Hoy and I'm from Rolleston College and my project is to create a physical space in my school where learners are challenged to create, innovate, problem solve and exhibit their learning a space to generate authentic learning experiences designed to spark curiosity and imagination while collaborating and connecting with the people in their community. This space will help create ownership, belonging, and a sense of pride for the community in which our young people and their whānau live, understanding their place in the world and that their contributions are valued and acknowledged by people outside of their school to help learners force pathways for a positive future where they are part of the solution to make their community a great place to live and work. Google has innovation spaces. The University of Auckland has an unleash space. But I want to challenge the status quo of waiting until we are adults to have these experiences. 
I want young people to have a space that allows them to find the courage to follow their ideals, push the boundaries, and explore. Thank you. So facts to follow. Well done, fellow fellows. Uh, kia ora koutou. My name is Josh Huff, and this year I've been working to address a problem. That problem is that we as educators are often pushed to operate in a disconnected learning culture, where project scenarios are predicated on what's written in a textbook, not on what makes sense to our learners. A culture in which we can easily fall into the trap of ignoring our learners' individuality entirely, instead prescribing outdated, one-size-fits-all contexts that disenchant our students and require them to produce just another version of the same old thing. Contexts like this can make learning less impactful, frustrating, and frankly, even boring. So, what if we reframed project-based learning? What if instead of the tried and tired, we invite learners to do project work that actually makes sense to them? Encourage them to engage with challenges and issues that authentically connect with who they are and who they are becoming. Support them to own and drive the entirety of their projects, leading to vastly improved outcomes that actually matter beyond just an assessment grade. With these driving questions in mind, I've been developing an all-in-one, simple yet powerful project-based learning toolkit, usable by any educator for almost any program of learning. The toolkit is suitable for a wide range of project contexts and will come with everything you need in the box, including a roadmap to guide the process with simple yet radical steps to promote authenticity, awareness, and empowerment throughout the entire learning journey, carefully crafted and curated resources designed to maximize learning potential, and tools and tech to help facilitate every stage of project development. The methods and approaches in this toolkit have been extensively tested both locally and globally. Engagement is soaring, outcomes are improving, and most importantly, students are having their spirits liberated and their curiosity ignited through meaningful work that makes a difference. If you're interested to find out more, please come and talk to me today or tomorrow, as I'd love to chat about how this could work for your classroom. And now that my two minutes of fame are up, I'd just like to take this moment to uh, thank BOMA on behalf of myself and all the fellows and Christchurch, Christchurch Airport as well for everything they've done for this year. It's just been an amazing experience. We've had our eyes opened and our hearts set on fire to make a difference uh, as much as we can in our small way in education. So thank you very much and thank you all for listening. You'll see that their projects are really, really diverse and uh, that they are also dying to talk to people that might be connected to their work. And, and I know that it, this is about secondary education and you might be thinking, oh, geez, it's only in Canterbury or it's only secondary or, or yeah, but I'm in business or whatever. These, these teachers are working with, with the people that will be hitting the business and the workforce. And um, so, you know, if they're going to come out with, with these sorts of skills, it's really important that we're all part of this conversation. So they are a part of the, the uh, ongoing uh, conference, but also um, they will be part of the first uh, workshop after lunch, the, the BOMA fellows, um, for those that are in that group and want to interact with them. So congratulations, uh, you're not quite at your finishing point of BOMA yet, but uh, haven't they done an amazing job? Please join with me in thanking the BOMA. Stay there. Excuse me, slight, slight uh, uh, advertisement here. 
Excellent. <laughs> All right. So we're heading into lunch now. We are getting into lunch, nearly. But don't leave yet, because we've got a few other things we want to say. Um, so during the lunch hour, it's a great opportunity to share your tuakana strength. And I know some of you have got a blank space. And that's fine. It doesn't matter, actually, because if you've got a blank space, I'm much more likely to come up to you and say, huh, tell me what your area of strength, your tuakana uh, superpower is, than if you've got something. But then again... What's your tuakana, Sure. Uh, so I've got Learning City Christchurch, and that's because uh, that's uh, one of the things that connects to Remake Learning. It's our version of what uh, Remake Learning might become, and in fact, we're going to have a Remake Learning uh, Day. That's one of the things I've been working on, and so that's what I'll be talking about and hassling you about and, and showing you the new website that's uh, just launched. So what about you, Hamish? What's your two? I have permaculture. So uh, I've got a five-year-old food forest, and we're on this journey towards complete sustainability and um, self-sufficiency on our property. So come and talk to me if you're interested. Yeah, absolutely. So lots and lots uh, to share. Uh, there's also some great opportunities to touch base with Stuart um, Charters from Signal ICT. You'll see that they're one of our sponsors outside. So uh, Stuart uh, and, and his team have been loyal supporters of, of Future of Le Learning. And before I um, mention it, the, the other absolutely amazing uh, supporter is Ministry of Education. Coralanne Gary, are you, are you here somewhere in the audience? Give them a, a wave. Like they, they have been uh, amazing supporters, so have a chat to them uh, as well. Uh, upstairs, you'll have a chance to check out the latest developments with Kendall and Banker, uh, and also to talk to Raphael, who's here somewhere in the crowd. Um, yep, Raphael's over there, about AI digital maths tutor Amy. So they will be uh, upstairs in the double room. Um, uh, we also have some opportunities to play with some technologies, if you couldn't tell. I love the cool tech. Uh, Kim Ryan from PB Tech is here downstairs in the, in the atrium with some great technology learning products um, to have a play with. Um, Meryl and Max uh, from the UC HIT Lab, that's the Human Interface Technology Lab, and their robots Vector and Bobbit are here to, to have a look at. Uh, day one, we have some pop-up conversations uh, uh, the first one is on micro-credentials and some of the work that's happening with Learning City Christchurch. Is Heather uh, here? Just Heather, are you here somewhere? Yeah, so Heather, Heather in particular, she's um, one of the, the, the keen persons on the, that, that space, and that pop-up space is the one that's on the, the far side downstairs that says pop-up conversation. So the idea of these conversations is that if you're interested, then get together in a group and have a talk about the topic and, and see where it fits into your environment. Of course, there are also places to have some quiet time. Uh, down to the left of the registration desk, there's a quiet spot there with no mobile phones. If you just need to go and have some downtime after absorbing all this information, then um, that's a great spot to do that. We're going to reconvene here um, for the afternoon sessions at 1.30pm. Have a great lunch. I've got some beautiful food put on for you there. And have some great conversations. Thank you. Okay, folks, I'm going to cut you short there. <laughs> if I can. <laughs>
Folks, I'm going to cut you short because our next presenter is showing, going to show us something that I think is going to absolutely blow your mind. I think this is really exciting technology and I, I think you're going to be um, absolutely mind-blown by it. Uh, Jody Boshoff uh, is from the tech company Unique. She's the director of marketing at Unique. Uh, she's a qualified teacher, a multimedia storyteller. She's excited about creating digital experiences designed to wow clients and staff. And she says she uses AI to defy gravity. And I think we're about to see why. Please welcome to the stage, Jody Boshoff. Thank you, Jody. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here and even more impressed that the teachers amongst you would give up two days of your precious holiday. I know how hard you work. I've got a four-year-old and a seven-year-old and I'm super impressed. At the beginning of term, I always start by giving the teachers coffee. By the end, I switch over to wine because <laughs> I know you need it. Um, so I'm talking about digital humans this morning or this afternoon. Um, too long, didn't read. Let me explain what it is in the simplest terms, and that is we put a face on chatbots. Who has interacted with a chatbot before? Yep, pretty common. Digital humans, less common. So we give a face to AI, and um, that AI has EQ. It's able to see, it's able to hear, and sometimes even remember you. So I'm from Unique. And I am today hopefully going to inspire you. When I mentioned to people this morning that I'm the one talking about AI, a couple of them went, oh, that's the one that we're a little bit afraid of, we're a little bit standoffish about. I hope that after today you will be a lot more inspired. Um, we recently changed names, so we were Face Me, we are now unique. So if I call myself Face Me, you'll understand why. It's only three weeks old. We made a one-minute video, which I'm going to play you now, about just some of the use cases of this technology. One of them is an education use case, and I have to point out, it's really exciting, that we didn't film this in New Zealand. Um, we didn't pretend to go into a, a shack where someone was struggling to get an education. We actually genuinely filmed it in Africa, genuinely using our tech, and we made a donation to the little boys um, education fund. So what you're watching now is, is not staged, although there is one scene where yours truly does act as someone's wife. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play that for you. We are a startup. So as I said, what we're trying to do is we're trying to transform the interaction between people and technology. It's Rugby World Cup season. I had to bring up Sir John Kerwin. Um, he's actually one of the education use cases that we're working on or with quite closely. Um, many of you may know that he has become somewhat the face of depression uh, in New Zealand, and he has an incredible website called depression.org and a helpline as well. And he works closely with the New Zealand government. But one of the things he said to us is, I go around to companies like Barfoot and Thompson, Perpetual Guardian, The Warehouse, and I educate them on mental health, but I can't be everywhere. I can't be enough places. I don't know exactly how this technology works, but I want it because it's going to enable me to more, reach more people quicker. And um, we actually took him to Los Angeles last month and we made a digital clone of him. And what we are doing is we are building out, of course, with a team of psychologists, um, an app where 
employees will basically have in their hand access to a digital John Kerwin that can talk to them about whatever it is, anxiety, sleeping issues, depression. It's not meant to replace therapy, but it's meant for use before, during, and after. So that is really, really exciting, and you can just start to imagine some of the use cases. I wish that we had this technology a decade ago. Um, I moved straight from education into quite a corporate setup where I was literally in one of those, one of those little window, windowless, should I call it, offices. And I remember us designing a change management program and I was writing a manual because we were about to move buildings and I was on page 57 and I was typing and typing and typing and I heard this like come down the corridor and I thought, what's that stomping? And I looked out my door and it was a blind employee. It was really early in the morning and I said to him, I've never met you before. And he said, I'm here every morning. I just get in really early um, so that I don't disturb people. And I looked down at my manual and I felt such like such an idiot because I thought, well, he's, you know, here I am writing a manual about the building move, um, if only. And I had to redesign the program to be a little bit more inclusive. But with technology like this, you can just imagine the inclusion um, in the education sphere, our company was born out of a project called NDIS, which is the National Disability Insurance Scheme in Australia. They get about 6,000 calls a week from people who are claiming disability benefits. Uh, some of those people severely disabled, and they hang on the line for up to three hours waiting for help. And um, what we thought is, we've, there's got to be a better way. So about three years ago, we deployed the first digital human and we put them in the call center and of course this digital human can take a num any number of calls at the same time, instant access to help. And there was a 90% preference for dealing with digital humans in that project when we went to the community and said, do you prefer this? Again, there is an, there is an education application um, I hope I get extra points for putting him up. <laughs> He's Pietro Baselli, no jokes, the world's sexiest maths teacher. <laughs> and last week, we made a digital clone of Pietro. We haven't yet decided what we're doing. The exciting thing is we've actually, we've actually thrown it out to the community like yourselves. Um, educators, and we went out last week and said, we want you to tell us what you'd like us to do with this clone. Um, you know, have a laugh, but he's quite passionate about transforming the way that people interact with technology. Think about that little boy. Think about not having access to education. Think about all of the use cases that something like this could be used for. Want to play you a quick clip, and I might interrupt it, um, but a quick clip of Pietro and what he had to say. Hello everyone, it's Pietro Boselli here. I'm a social media influencer, an engineer and an athlete. I'd like to invite you to explore with me all the different possibilities that Unique are unlocking with the digital humans. Allowing real humans to access knowledge, learn new things, and scale social influence in a highly personalized way.
Check out the details below to see how you can participate to this project. And together we can make a better world with our digital selves. So that that you saw there is the scanning of Pietro. The next stage of the project will see us actually take that scan and make a clone of him, just like we are of JK. And that clone will be able to talk and we'll be able to deploy that to different environments. So I want to challenge you, if you have an idea, we're taking expressions of interest, I'm sure, in the room, that we could come up with at least two or three good ideas. Right. So as I said, I have been involved in organizational learning, but also the teaching of little people. I spent several years at um, a little school called Eduplex, and that was for kids with hearing disability. So um, it was an incredible place. What we had was technology that allowed us to amplify our voices directly into their hearing aids. So we had a normal class, and in every class there were five to six kids with um, these you know, hearing challenges, and we would transition them into a place where they would be able to learn in mainstream schools. But in order to do that, we spent an hour every afternoon with every hearing impaired child talking to them and talking to them and talking to them. It takes those children a lot longer to learn to talk. And I think, again, about a decade ago, we didn't have artificial intelligence in this format. Imagine if I could have put a group in the corner and said, go practice your talking while I'm teaching another group. In fact, you go practice your reading, you go practice your talking, and I'll do an individual with you guys here about another subject. Start to think about the possibility. I think we are so intimidated that we forget what this technology is actually going to allow us to achieve and what kind of, um, what kind of transformation. So, you know, lynda.com, modern open online courses. I think what we have solved for is we've solved for convenience and Technology has solved for scale, but what we've lost is that human touch, and that's where digital humans come in. So it's an interface that combines the best of human influence and machine, and it basically embodies knowledge in a way that creates emotional connection, personalization, and consistency. AI never forgets, never gets it wrong, never has a bad day. Um, I did want to bring it back to business. A lot of what I'm talking about may sound to you a little bit um, conceptual, and it's not. So we're working with some of the biggest brands in the world. In fact, last week we just launched for Noel Leeming. Hands up, who knows? Noel Leeming shopped at Noel Leeming. We just launched a digital human in-store that can help people find products and answer questions. But we've done a lot of work in New Zealand and Australia and further afield in America and Europe as well. So I wanted to talk about learning a new way and what these digital humans are doing in organizations today. So Mia works for Ubank. Um, when you buy a home loan, well, sorry, when you buy a home or get a home loan, apply for a home loan, it's probably one of the biggest decisions you'll make, right? You want a friendly face. And what Mia does is she sits on the Ubank website and she can answer 300 questions about the home loan process and about the application process. And she can understand you, she can tell jokes, 
She keeps things simple. In fact, you can ask her a hundred times to explain what an interest rate is. She'll answer you, friendly, every time. She's got time, 24-7. Then ASB, that was a fascinating use case. So ASB asked its staff, if you had an executive assistant, what would this executive assistant do? And it came out that a lot of people in New Zealand are very innovative and they want to start their own business and they have a lot of questions, but it takes a long time to answer. There's about 10 different ways of setting up a business in New Zealand, never mind the tax. So Josie sits in a room, you can actually make an appointment with her and go and talk through your small, medium enterprise business needs. Um, she's, it was fascinating building out her personality. You can literally ask her anything and she's got an answer. Um, in fact, at one of the ASB management events, one of the managers unwittingly asked, could you do a rap? And she broke out into a Moana rap, and the crowd loved it. Um, then we have Kiri, who works for Vodafone. Um, they found in store that a lot of people over a certain demographic, I won't mention what that demographic is, um, they struggle to top up their phone. In fact, they even forget their phone number. So she sits in store and can patiently lead them through how to top up their phone. I thought it's too simple until I actually went in store and I watched her in action. And people came away smiling. They came away feeling, wow, you know, no one's looked at me like, why are you asking? There's an app for that. So that was an incredible project, and a lot of these digital humans are actually in, in, in the process of being promoted. A lot of them will go on to, will expand their knowledge base. Then we had Danny Colt. He was probably the most interesting we've done so far for UBS Bank. So UBS has a lot of very high wealth clients, and he was available in a room, and he was a clone of their chief regional investment officer. And he was able to call up financial information at the touch of a button. The consultant could say, could you please pull up that market data? So this is all happening now. It's not the future. It's happening now. And we plug into any NLP system or, or chatbot, and we use that real-time text to create engaging conversation and emotional markup and a lot more pleasant than talking to a chatbot because a lot of communication happens here. Can replicate the touch screen, but not the, the, the human touch. I just put that up briefly um, because we're hardwired for connection. Everyone knows that no one's gonna ever replace a teacher. We're hardwired for connection, to feel valued, um, to feel understood. And what we always like to say is chatbots only chat so well. This is where this technology is extremely powerful. It's that we're bringing back the human touch to digital channels. Um, oh, let me go back. So this next video, I wanted to pull Josie up. I'm not as brave as John. I don't want to do a live demo with this Wi-Fi. So I recorded myself having a bit of a chat with Josie and just asking a couple of small business questions so you can get a feel. The sync might not be 100% because I recorded it on my laptop, but this just gives you a feel of how a digital human interaction might play out. Hey Josie, I have a really good new business idea, but I have no idea where to start. Can you tell me a little bit more? Working for yourself is something many people aspire to. 
but it can take significant time and money and test your capabilities. Before you start, it's a good idea to ask yourself whether you have a clear view of your goals and capabilities, your business idea, how to set up and start, and how to budget and get help. Which of these would you like to talk about? I'd love to know more about some of the different business structures. Can you help? There are three basic structures that are the most commonly used by small business. So I'm going to cut that short. I'm sure you don't all want to go through the three different business structures in New Zealand. And guess what? Neither do ASB staff. They don't have time. And I'm sure there are a lot of things that you don't have time for that you can think of an incredible use case for. Uh, this is a stat which we love to we love to put up. It's fascinating. Within the next 10 years, only 15% of interactions with a business will be with a human, and that's a Harvard Business Review stat. At the same time, cell phones, websites, chatbots, there's a real rise of that kind of digital technology. And when you put a human face on it, those channels disappear. That's what this technology does. You're no longer talking to a channel or a piece of tech brings back personalization and immediacy. Um, so cost to serve is often quite important to organizations. I can imagine from an organizational and a learning perspective as well, cost is key. But sometimes we focus on that at the absolute detriment of experience or even brand. And um, I want to tell a quick story here about um, an employee assistant program. Who has EAP at their place of work? When you hit a crisis, right, you can call EAP and you can get five or six counselling sessions, whatever it may be. A friend of mine recently hit the panic button. Um, they work at one of New Zealand's biggest corporates. And he said to me, he went for the sessions, but 30 minutes of every 60-minute session was admin. And he sat down and he had to fill in forms and why are you here and who do you work for? And he had to remind them every time, yes, I still work for so-and-so. I'm still here for the same reason. It was all this formality. And I thought to myself, what a perfect use case for a digital human to take care of that so that humans can do what they do best, better experience and just all around really incredibly beneficial. So it's use cases like that that we're interested in hearing from you about. I also, before today, had a little bit of a chat with one of my friends who works in learning and development for one of the big banks. She said to me there are 54 pieces currently of compliance training that you have to cover off in your first few weeks at a bank. 24 of them have to happen in the first three weeks. And I said to her, okay, that's one hell of an onboarding program. What happens if you have a question? She says, I don't know. Google it. Read the training again. I don't know. You, you get what I'm saying. There's an incredible gap that this technology can, can boost and fulfill. Um, business mentoring, coaching. We're also up against what we talked about earlier this morning as a real problem in terms of reframing and reskilling. And understanding that people learn differently. Someone in my family close, close to me has got severe ADHD. They can listen to a lecture and 
They need to listen to it two or three times before it sinks in, but you can't push repeat on a lecture, can you? You can't. So there's, there's incredible potential there. Um, it is having an early adoption impact, a really positive adoption impact. So um, we've got a high customer satisfaction and, and preference percentage. And as I said before, 89, between 89 and 91% of people are saying, I want this. I prefer interacting with this than a channel or a chatbot. And we've got some really cool partners. So yeah, there's a lot, of, a lot of use case possibilities. And I think my one challenge today to all of us is that it's not coming for our jobs. It's going to help us to do our jobs. But we need your help in co-designing and shaping what it is. One of the things that we found is incredibly powerful is the medical education field. Um, that guy at the bottom right is a genuine heart patient, and he's the father of one of the people who works in our organization. And we're working on something called Cardiac Coach, which is an educational um, digital human who helps cardiac patients at home with in-home care. The average discharge time is just minutes. So you're sent home after a heart op and literally go well, take this medicine three times a day, eat well, exercise, bye. So not good enough, right? Um, we found some people who are passionate about transforming that in other areas of healthcare. And I quickly want to pay, play a very short clip of an interaction. And, and as I said, this is not a professional actor. He's a genuine heart patient case. So um, be kind to him. Hi, Coach. Hi, Sam. How are you this afternoon? Oh, I'm okay, I guess. You don't sound sure. Can I help you with something? Oh, it's just these pills I've had since my bypass. Um, I don't know what they're for. Did they explain them to you in rehab? Yeah, but that was ages ago. I've kind of forgotten all about it now. I can show you a rehab video on meds if you like, Sam, and I can answer questions about it. Ah, uh, maybe another time. I just want to know if the, what they are. Do you know? I can help with that. Just hold one of the boxes up so I can see the label with your name on it. That pill or med is called a statin, Sam. Its job is to reduce the bad fats in your blood that can cause problems with your heart. It says on the label to take one at night. That's when they work best. Is there anything bad about them? Most meds have side effects, but very few people have problems. Are you sure? Some of the boys say that they've... So I'm going to cut it there. She even goes to advise him, goes on to advise him about making lower fat pizza. But you can see the appeal, right? And that's a, that's a genuine heart patient having a bit of a chat. In fact, we're scaling that technology to America. Um, there's some pretty cool, uh, very large healthcare organisations there who are really interested in, in improving the home care. In fact... There, because the population is so big, you just got to improve it that little bit, and there's millions to be made. John is nodding. Um, so imagine the future of learning in your school or organisation with digital humans. That's the challenge. I did want to address one 
quick, um, if I've got time, yes, and take some questions at the end. I wanted to address just maybe two or three things about the technology. So it doesn't, it doesn't go off and learn on its own. Um, it's almost like a toddler. Um, you've got to, you know, you've got to teach it. You've got to help it grow up. You've got to improve its knowledge. So it definitely is a case of a new area of skill that's developing is curating this, this development of the natural language processing and the program, programming behind that. Um, you can imagine banks don't want anything learning on its own. It's pretty locked down, pretty secure. Um, so I did just want to highlight that. So there's still human involvement. In other words, we still need every single one of you to be involved in what it will look like in future. So before I probably take one or two questions, um, that was my challenge. Hop online, contribute to the discussion, and um, it's exciting. We're excited. We're doing cool stuff. They have. So we were the face of Alexa at the Voice Summit in America probably six weeks ago. That's where it's going. I don't think the future is us talking to black boxes. In fact, I know it's not. Yeah, so <laughs> good question. Good question. Can I just bring one of my developers out? Um, yeah, so I think we've, we've, we've nailed it in terms of how the digital human looks, but I think NLP has a ways to go. Um, so at the moment, we are being very definite about the use cases so that they work, they're repeatable, and they're scalable. But it's not something that is as yet at a stage where it can have a human conversation like you and I about anything. You can't ask it what it wants for breakfast, lunch, and supper in three years' time. Yeah, so it's incredibly creative. Good question. Um, there are a lot of different technologies that we plug into, such as Google Dialogflow, Watson. So there's even job titles out there that is conversational designer. It's to take a body of knowledge and basically make it more friendly. Creative, write the hell out of it. So I don't think we fully, I don't think we have a complete list of what's needed yet, and I think it's evolving. But I think that there should, there is a lot of scope for people with creativity and empathy to get involved, particularly in the persona design even. A lot of our work up front goes into sitting with the marketing teams and thinking about the personalities. That's a role. Create. In fact, we had one person who changed their title to at ASB to Josie's Handler. Literally, that was her title. Didn't exist. Yep. Yep. Ours certainly do. So there's absolutely no intention to masquerade as a human. So often their first question answer will be, I'm a digital human and I was designed to X, Y, Z. Yes, yeah, so for, for uh, I think it was Maori Language Week, it was a couple of weeks ago, we taught one of our digital humans some Maori. So we certainly are thinking about personalizing it and scaling in terms of different languages. The um, avatar of the Austrian chief economist, he was, was he German or Swiss? I can't remember. Swiss, German, I, yeah, one of them. But yeah, we definitely can do non-English, so... Yeah, I think we, we are going to literally become a data company because nothing can give you real-time feedback 
like something like this. Um, we definitely are shaping security protocols. We have to reach very, very high standards of security because of the kind of interactions that our digital humans have. Banks wouldn't work with us if we didn't, so um, we're industry leading in terms of that, but I, I can't tell you all the different systems and processes we have in place because I'm not part of the development team, but I can tell you that a lot of our investment goes into security and curating those data sets properly. Ethics is something we're closely involved in. In fact, we sat on the board. I think it is the framework on AI. It was a US organization and board that was set up to talk about the future of this kind of AI. And one of our, one of our founders, or not founders, one of our, he's actually our head of art. He's very passionate about that. So he sits on boards like that. And um, you'll have to watch this space, but I can say that in about a month we'll launch something quite transformative in terms of ethics, AI, and digital humans. So we plan to take quite a proactive stand in terms of that. Over a digital channel. So it was the preference for digital humans over another kind of channel. So in other words, I'd rather talk to a digital human with a face than a chatbot. There's many objections, and I think a lot of those objections are overcome when the digital human is useful. So we've done a lot of in-depth interviews where someone's first reaction is, oh, that's a bit freaky. Oh, but she's helping me. And then that, but she's helping me or she's helping me get to my answer quicker often negates that reaction. But it, you know, you've seen it. What's your reaction? It's, it's different for everyone. Cool. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jody. Um, that was incredible. Uh, what do you think? What's your feeling about digital humans? Yeah. Yay? Yeah. I can see the use cases in all sorts of um, uh, parts of our society. And I think uh, William Gibson, the science fiction author who came up with the term um, uh, cyberspace, uh, he had this uh, quote. Uh, the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed yet. <laughs> this technology is doubling in performance and capacity and power and, and its capabilities every 12 to 18 months. Doubling. That exponential trend means that while this technology might be used at the moment at high end at banks and um, people with a lot of money, uh, it is coming to all of us, and it's coming very, very quickly. That's something we really need to keep in mind. Um, I think there's tremendous opportunities to apply this to learning environments and to our interaction with technology and improving that interaction. Thank you very much, Jody. Um, please give Jody another warm welcome. Thank you. Uh, Jen who um, was our speaker at the beginning of the day, uh, and Edu have been plotting together, so that's, that's a dangerous but really exciting place. Uh, so he's returning today to share his work, the work of the team, and to challenge us all and encourage us to collective action. So please join me with a warm welcome for Edu. Kia ora tato. Um, appreciate everyone stayed on because 
you know, I'm sure if this was a Friday afternoon, like two-thirds of you would be on your second wine at the Kuru Club, and I know that because I'd be on my third. Uh, um, so just thought start off with Tokuna Teraki Kia Tu, uh, Tokuna Teraki Kia Ora, uh, it's a, a whakatauki, and um, it comes from our creation tradition. And so everyone knows Rangi Papa? Yeah, well, we kind of have a bit of a different spin on things, as all tribes do. Uh, and so in our traditions, um, Rangi and Papa were together, but uh, there wasn't like this battle or conflict that Rangi said, well, in order for there to be light and life and possibility, uh, I ask you, Tani, to, to lift me up. And he uses the phrase, katupu karewa. Yeah, in order for there to be life, I need to be raised up into the heavens and to separate the two, Sky Father, Earth Mother, so that all the light and potential can come into the world. And so Tane begins this process, and toko is from the word toko toko. So we all know a walking stick. Yeah, elders hold. And so tokona terangi kia Yeah, that's about Tane when he lifts the heavens up and he plants that toko in place and it raises the heavens. But the thing was, you know, it's like anything when you, you try any big task on your own, you can't achieve it on your own. And, and so he needed all of these others to come in behind him and plant their tukutuku, uh, uh following him. And so um, uh, an atua paia uh, puts up his posts, rua tipua and rua tawhito. And so this idea really that when you're going to try and tackle some big insurmountable, big, hairy, audacious goal, uh, you can't do it on your own. And, and that whole idea of tukuna terangi is that you're lifting the heavens up, raising our gaze of what's possible, and allowing new possibility and potential to, to shine on in. Uh, um, but the difference with that is uh, um, those two parents, Rangi and Papa, uh, um, I think Cheryl's talked today about the tukutuku. So you all know the tukutuku? So this idea of Rangi tukutuku, that the heavens and the earth were bound together by all these lashings. And every time you, you raise the heavens up, tukuna te rangi kia tu, uh, you have to go behind that and, and lash all those po together. And so that key idea with us is really, you know, when we're looking for something big and aspirational, we know we can't achieve it on our own, and, and that we kind of have to be the glue that sticks everything together, uh, that we need to be the, the tukutuku panel that weaves and binds all of us together so that when we work in unity and concert, uh, we can raise the heavens of potential and allow more light, uh, potential, and possibility uh, to emerge. And so, really, our kind of space uh, um, is sort of like Māori future-making, and uh, um, it's nice being amongst you all, because I know that's not going to be the most ridiculous uh, uh, job title in the room. I'm sure there's a few social <laughs> entrepreneurs and dreamweavers and dot connectors. So basically, no one knows what the hell I do, and that's kind of cool. But when you look at that, you know, we get so stuck into the grind of today, delivery, of contractual deliverables, that we risk uh, uh, losing sight of what's possible, you know, and hearing even uh, um, some of those whakatauki, ki te kore he whakakitenga ka mate te iwi, you know, if you don't have a vision of where you want to go, the people are doomed. And, and even, you know, sometimes our rangatahi explain it is, if you're not steering your waka, you're just a paddler on someone else's waka. You know, that kind of, if you don't have a plan, you're just part of someone else's. 
And really, when we think about the future of learning, of work, uh, uh, really, we're talking about, well, how do we put agency and heart back into that conversation? And for us as a people, yeah, we spent seven generations focused on land claims. So we've been looking backwards for so long that we've, it's really hard to get into that mode of releasing ourselves from a lot of that pain and that struggle and, and those ideas and the tactics and strategies that got us to this point, which we know aren't going to be the tactics and strategies to get us to where we need to get to. So how do we start to look beyond the horizon? And when you think about that, I always think about our, our waka navigator ancestors who uh, could sail towards an island they'd never even encountered or seen or discovered before. We won't go into the cook stuff, but, <laughs> but um, you know, that it's around how do we start to look at uh, pushing our thinking beyond what we know and have experienced to what is possible and beyond the sight of our horizon. And so our mahi, you know, when you think about uh, our future, you know, we see probably have, we see both like the opportunity and the threat. And part of this is to go, well, you know, the opportunity that you have all of this creative energy and focus and momentum around creating a better future. But again, we also see the threats that, well, we could sustain a lot of the practices that we have today. And when we think about this space, it's kind of going, well, how do we apply that energy around the future towards where it's needed most? And not merely invent some new toys or drones that really just sustain a lot of the practices and relationships that we've had in our past. And so when you think about that, for us, it's key just to go, well, we want a future where all our kids are smashing it. It's not hard. It's not that earth-shattering. You know, but just to go where, yeah, they're going into an education system where everyone is there on their waka, supporting them on their journey every step of the way on that lifelong learning journey that we've heard about. And, and really to go that, you know, they know who they are. We know that's just so key. It's like the, the outboard motor or the diesel engine on their waka. It just boosts their momentum. It carries them over any rapids or bumps or, or whirlpools along the way and it's really that booster for success. And ultimately, that thing of rangatira tanga, and we often think of tino rangatira tanga and sort of protest flags, but really going that whole thing of choice, you know, of options to, to live a life uh, where they are self-determining in terms of the pathways, opportunities uh, in the future that they're moving towards. And I suppose a key part of that is that's not where we are, yeah? So understanding where we want to get to, but also understanding that, well, we're not there yet, and we've, we've got a system at the moment that isn't delivering for many of our kids. It's delivering for some, but not all, and we really need to get to a space where we're delivering that vision and those opportunities of a fair, free, and just Aotearoa for all of our kids. So, big goal, uh, equity in education, employment, and income. Uh, there's no uh, monopoly in terms of bias or things like that. We know that we've got to support uh, and build that connective tissue, not just across compulsory education or early childhood, but right through into tertiary and then further uh, into supporting our rangatai into meaningful careers 
uh, um, careers, yeah, jobs for the future, uh, jobs that can support a whānau, and jobs that offer opportunities for progression and earning a decent income so they can live a life of mana, of opportunity. Uh, tools and tactics. We've sort of been on a journey where we've sort of thrown out our, our toolbox of pilot projects and over-evaluated programs and go, well, how do we start to look at uh, developing more of a systemic toolkit? And moving away from program leadership and interventions and scholarships, which really are addressing the circumstances of individuals and starting to build a toolkit around, well, how do we look at the patterns that are causing all of these issues and start to understand, well, how do we create the conditions for our people to be successful rather than always requiring intervention? So kind of biodegradable uh, uh, where... You know, if we can get to that place, then we'll all be out of the job and doing other stuff, which would be great. Uh, um, but really, again, that simple thing of no short-term, you know, unwedding ourselves to the, the seduction of a silver bullet or a magic project and just going, well, this is a long-term game. You know, how do we have a systemic approach that's around building capability and sustainability within our system rather than putting band-aids on it or around the edges? and tackling inequality and racism at its roots. And I have a very ngāwari, uh, um, which means like easy nature, but you know, when we talk about unconscious bias or it's like diet racism or, you know, we kind of make all these sort of soft words and I always say, well, in the 1980s, people were talking about racial prejudice. It's like, why can't we just say stuff like that now? So, yeah, and particularly in Christchurch, we, we might be good at dealing with socially unacceptable racism and bias, but we've also got to start tackling the socially acceptable racism and bias that's still there. It's harder to see, but regardless of intent, the impact is, is still similar. And so when you look at the opportunity of this, um, you know, we're good at making babies. You know, that our, our population is healthy and thriving, uh, which is something that we celebrate and we go, have more babies. Um, you know, because, you know, my queer uh, auntie Kiwa, you know, ka te iwi, when she sees babies, she goes, well, yes, the people will be good. You know, we will thrive and prosper because she can see all of those mokopuna. And remember, coming from a history of the impacts of disease and stuff, whereas in some areas, you know, our population's decreased by 90%, to now knowing, well, actually, we're going through this big population boom, where just in our own Ngaitahu, Takiwa, um, yeah, our Māori population is going to grow by 80% by 2040, at a time when our non-Māori Pākehā population is growing by 10%. Um, you know, that our rangatahi population is going to grow or basically double in size in the next 15 years. And so we have this huge population boom that's coming through. And again, when you're looking at these huge mega trends, we, we focus on technical things. But to go, well, how do we also understand that you know, you're going to be these major demographic changes that are going to be sweeping across our nation where, you know, by 2050, I have to get my kids into a mindset where their children are going to be part of a brown majority in Aotearoa. And that's a mindset shift that we need to be looking at as a Māori community, but also as a Pākehā community and understanding that well, we're moving away from an old monocultural paradigm 
to a new emerging uh, multicultural uh, uh, paradigm and population. And yeah, the opportunity for that is huge. So just that simple thing of even not looking at an economic lens, but understanding you know, that inequality costs us $2.6 billion a year in terms of the income gap for Māori. So addressing inequality today would add $2.6 billion per year in terms of putia uh, in the back pockets of whānau and $700 million in terms of increased re uh, tax revenue for government. So it's even a good financial uh, um, reason, but that's not why we would advocate for it. So the challenge, uh, um, yeah, tooling up our rangatahi to lead us into the future, uh, where our rangatahi are going to be the ones that are going to be filling the gaps left by an ageing uh, Pākehā uh, uh, baby boomer workforce exiting and heading into retirement. So that whole mutual shared future prosperity is going to be around how do we connect those two things together and really address some of these deeper causal factors uh, in terms of, you know, uh, focusing yeah, our narratives around yeah, young people are poor because they make bad decisions, you know, that we focus and blame Fano or rangatahi for their outcomes rather than raising our gaze and, and looking at the bigger picture that they exist within an ecosystem that has a massive bearing on their trajectory. So, rangatahi, the backbone of our future, and kind of something that Māoridom have been saying for a long time, what's good for Māori is good for everyone. Uh, but understanding that, that that's really going to be key to unlocking that future prosperity. And, you know, that yeah, this isn't something that um, is inevitable. You know, this is a historic wrong that we can actually right in terms of our pathway forward into the future. It's about understanding, well, what are the choices and priorities and decisions we need to be making today in order to lay that pathway down for us uh, to move forward. And so our, our mahi, um, part of that is, uh, you know, how do we build that shared vision? Some of that's just kind of conversations and talking, uh, um, but really starting to, to look at, well, how do we build public will and commitment around working together to achieve equity for Māori, equity for all of us? So that free, fair, just society where all of our tamariki are doing great. Um, we do a bit around data, and I don't want to say, actually, I don't like the word data, and, and I can't remember phone numbers, so I'm not good with numbers. Uh, um, but just that simple thing, really, of information. You know, how, how do we start to visualise what's going on in terms of our system so that we can engage across different sectors and across communities and we have a shared understanding of what's working, what's not, and where we should be prioritising innovation. And I, I want to make the distinction because I think often we talk about innovation like invention, like it's creating something new. And really what we're talking about was how do we apply innovation and unlock more value from what's already here. So looking at that, that's about building our understandings of rangatahi and whānau voice, and then also too, how do we use data to build a better picture of the system we have, uh, and also what we can expect on the horizon. Uh, building the movement, so we do a lot of stuff in terms of capability building and we started within our iwi and we're going to want to over time sort of reach out a bit more, but really building that capability for innovation and systems change. 
but doing it through our own kind of tikanga in terms of our own cultural lens. And uh, starting to get into more of the design, build, have a go, co-decide, co-develop. I don't want to get into too much of that stuff because we're sort of a year into our journey, and so we're going to get more into that uh, over the next year. So part of uh, um, what we've been looking at is just a simple thing. We, we started with uh, um, you know, uh, looking at you know, what happens if we sustain the status quo for the next 20 years, and that was a real clear case for change because uh, it wasn't very good. Just sort of say, well, all our current social harms caused by inequality grow by 80%. That's kind of how it worked out. So another part of that, we said, well, how do we sort of just build a picture of what's happening and understand, well, where are these levers of change? Because we're not really a, a research entity. that We have a bias to action. So for us, uh, it's kind of like using uh, big data as like a divining rod, you know, to sort of go, well, at a diagnostic level, you know, where are things that are broken that we need to be figuring out? And once we know where to prioritize our efforts, then we'll go talk to humans, because only humans can tell you what will work for them, right? Uh, big data can, can be useful in building a picture, but it's not going to tell us well, what are the solutions that are going to work for Fano. And so we started working with uh, uh, Tainui, uh, the Southern Initiative in Auckland, uh, and an economics outfit called Burl. And we started looking at mapping uh, 50,000, well, sorry, two cohorts of rangatahi. Uh, one cohort of about 50,000 rangatahi uh, um, from the age, well, from the year 11 to 22, and about another cohort of 28,000 rangatahi uh, from the age, year 13 through the age 25. And I always just say 50,000, but the research people get really nervous when I do that. Um, so provide the detail, but really looking at, well, how do we start to build a picture of what's going on and start to identify where are those levers of change where across that journey, how do we build up a bigger picture of uh, are those key patterns and forces uh, for our rangatahi. And so what emerged was really a story of what we call the awa uh, and really tracking the journey of our rangatahi through our education system into employment and what that looks like. And that kind of journey starts off really with a uh, hundred rangatahi and coming into our education system where largely you have all of these whānau that have all these aspirations in terms of well-being and progression and options and future opportunities. And so when they start on that awa and on the education journey, uh, it's largely the parents that are determining that trajectory. And as they sort of get further along, more options start to open up. And it kind of creates this sense of agency within they are now self-determining and choosing their own path. But what we kind of found was actually it, there's a bit of an illusion around that. Because the idea of choice creates the impression that they're in control. And what we kind of found was you know, that this hour is not like a smooth journey. It's a journey interrupted, and there are all of these sorts of forces that are either acting as obstacles and barriers or diversions that are channeling our rangatahi away into predetermined uh, um, uh, trajectories. And so you often have other people in the hour that at times can be channeling and diverting our rangatahi 
away, and that they have uh, they are making the determination in terms of their future opportunities and options and trajectories. So there are all these sort of currents and flows within the hour. And you kind of have these big whirlpools of systemic bias. And even when we talk often uh, about equity, we don't really talk about, well, what are some of these major causal factors, like institutional racism? And we kind of like to shrug that stuff off like it exists somewhere else, because everything is perfect here. But what we can see is just simple things like, you know, you know massive bias in terms of increased rates of Māori stand-downs and expulsions and and streaming into lower level classes that really limits all of their options and opportunities where you know, by the time they're exiting and hitting into the workforce, you've got largely half of our people are getting channeled and diverted towards low skill, low pay, low security jobs. And again, when we start to match up where we are with where we're going, we know, well, those are jobs that are gonna be most likely negatively impacted by uh, automation. And what's worse is then these patterns, that, that sort of bias that creates these outcomes then confirms the original bias of those in control in the first place. And so you get this vicious cycle, this self-confirming bias loop, which was like, well, I'd, even though uh, you know, someone has created that outcome, the fact that it, is a, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy then confirms the original bias and entrenches it even more. And so we've been trying to figure out how to turn it into a picture because um, when you first start with like 50,000 trajectories and all the different bits and pieces, it just looked like someone tipped over a bowl of spaghetti on a paper. It was a real mess. But really sort of looking at that uh, journey from high school really into tertiary, And just that simple thing, again, 100 out of 100, you know, 100 of our kids. Um, so we just broke that 50-odd thousand cohort just to tell the story of 100 Māori moving into our, our awa. Yeah, and, and that we have, you know, basically one-fifth of our kids are exiting school with no qualifications. And so these are real humans, and we've tracked them over a 20-year period. Um, but, you know, that's a phenomenal number. And when they get there, yeah, you're largely looking at um, yeah, the vast majority are, are either on a benefit or are on an income that's so low, there's no real difference. Yeah? And those that make it to NCA, and these are just these simple levers, to go even just by achieving NCA level one, that was the most impactful thing that could be done. And it's not saying that that is by any way the destination, but it's saying just that jump from having no school quals to a school qual in terms of NCA level one, their incomes jumped by over a quarter and their trajectories and opportunities had the most significant jump. So again, not saying that that needs to be uh, um, the destination, but for us it's starting to understand, well, we spend all of our time on university, postgraduate centres of research, and if we really want to have impact, then we need to be figuring out how do we get those with no school calls to be re-engaging and getting back into that track? And a key point to make is, it's not that anyone, any of these are dead ends. 
that you have these forces and currents and you can get back into that learning flow because the key thing is in that central current, the longer you stay in that current, the further it takes you and the more opportunities you have. And we all know that. But in order to get back in, you really have to push upstream against that current and it makes it very difficult. And so as you sort of see coming through NCA uh, 1 and 2, yeah, we had a talk last week where even just with MSD to go, yeah, a fifth of our kids end up on your books. And we know as soon as they touch you, it's really hard to get them off. So just some of these systems level levers in terms of, you know, that Ministry of Education, the Tertiary Education Commission, and MSD don't really talk to each other about these kinds of issues. And so how do we start to kind of get that connectivity and collective approach around solutions? So we do have, I want to point out that that sort of 27 second chance learners, we know uh, our journey through education and employment isn't linear. Yeah, for some people they might exit, they might go into work, they might go into training, they might go into a benefit. So we do have lots that come back in at a different uh, point in time. And we might say, well, uh, 62 starting tertiary is good. Uh, um, but there were really interesting uh, points uh, and one I would point out was just a simple thing of where's Marie? Where's skills? Uh, like apprenticeships. Uh, um, yeah, that six out of every 13 Māori apprentices complete. And, and what the data showed is that, you know, the three quarters of the Māori that were in uh, the highest income bracket by 25 were all in engineering apprenticeships, not degrees, apprenticeships. But what you could see is that apprenticeship is like this massive lever of change where you had a lot more uh, diversity in terms of people coming into an apprenticeship, but if they could get to that completion point, then they basically had the same lifetime outcomes as someone that achieved the degree. So if you look at social change, our uh, apprenticeships were like that catapult, that lever of change. It was about number three in terms of the most impactful things you could do. And starting to get into Tertiary, and again, you could say, well, participation, 62, is not too bad, right? And they go, well, yeah, but the key thing was actually it's where our people are studying in our tertiary education sector. And when you look in particular at that level one to three, you know, we basically have nearly one in five of our kids are studying at a tertiary level what they should have learnt at school. And we'd be quite happy for the Tertiary Education Commission to actually decommission all of the programs in that space, because they don't lead to positive employment and income and, uh, I don't want to say emancipatory, uh, um, because there's been a few big words, like what was the one this morning? Um, oh, haere tonu. Uh, um, but, you know, that's, that's pushing our people into uh, uh, over-exacerbating a problem in terms of concentrating more Māori in areas where we're going to be vulnerable and we don't have a good enough income to be supporting our whānau. So ultimately, you know, out of that, 149 attain a qualification and 51 don't, so half and half. But it's by no fate of chance that you also have half of our people are being stuck in low income, low pay, low security jobs. And so just starting to look at, well, how do we start to um, unpack some of this? And really, with that hour is that kind of that idea of you know, upstream causes and downstream impacts. You know, that there's stuff going on upstream 
that are, are creating the outcomes that we're trying to deal with further downstream. I think it was uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu who says, there's only so long you can be fishing people out of the river before you start to stop and wonder, well, what's upstream pushing them in? And when you're looking at that, to go, well, yeah, we do have a, a, a legacy. Yeah, it's like sediment in our river. Yeah, we have a legacy, a historical legacy, where our system isn't broken. It was designed to deliver certain types of outcomes. And the fact that, you know, that there is that sediment still in the river, we shouldn't be surprised by that. But when we let that build up and when we choose to sustain it, it starts to divert and change the flow of our awa. And so when you look at that, you know, there are choices and policies and funding priorities. And I'm sure all of us in the room have been involved in a, a pilot project or something like that where, you know, we are expected to turn to and create enhanced outcomes with less putia over a six to nine month window or, you know, that there are priorities which put obstacles and barriers and, and rapids into the awa. Yeah, and you know, when you're talking with rangatahi, and even in employment, you know, you're saying, well, the one with the big long Māori name that can never get the job interview. And when you look at that data, you could see even when you had people Māori with qualifications, so the same school, the same area, the same socioeconomic status, the same tertiary qualification, there is still... Uh, um, uh, yeah, there, there was still a marked difference in terms of the ability to translate that into an employment, uh, secure employment opportunity. So even when you look at everyone with the same level qual, you know, Māori was still more vulnerable in terms of finding work, sustaining work uh, in the same area, that even at a suburb, uh, suburb level. Yeah, we've still got some uh, really archaic practices that aren't evidence-based within our education system. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. Yeah, so again, inequality isn't like an oops or daisies. You know, it, it doesn't happen by chance that you know, we have wiring, we have forces that are channeling and creating these outcomes. And so how do we under acknowledge that uh, in order to change and transform that? So again, the impacts of this is, you know, just the fact that we have, you know, increased rates of stand down and expulsions, you know, that we are more likely to be exiting young Māori men from our education system, and we know where that leads to in terms of outcome. Uh, increased numbers of rangatahi constrained in lower level tertiary, which again um, then determines and leads towards uh, um, creating the conditions where Māori are constrained in those low-school, low-pay jobs for the past, really, as opposed to jobs for the future. And the risks that this really, this awa isn't just hurting rangatahi and whānau, but is really constricting our future prosperity as Aotearoa Inc. And, yeah, that might seem a bit sort of um, wishy-washy, but even just simple things of the example of streaming and education, to go, it's not uh, an evidence-based practice, it's, it's a cultural behaviour that is cemented in many of our kura. You know, that um, in, in terms of that, we know with rangatahi, that in particular with our Māori-speaking kids, they're starting to use Māori language as codes, even referring to it as kapiti, which is Māori for cabbage. 
because they know they'll get told off if they refer to it as cabbage. But when our young people are streamed into lower level uh, courses, for them, they tell us it's a signal that the teacher thinks I'm dumb. And so it's not just that, it's that breach of trust where immediately you have higher rates in terms of behavioral issues um, because they feel that the teacher thinks I'm done, so I'm gonna play up, and that has a massive impact. And when we look at things like the trajectories, um, just that simple thing of level one algebra is like this catapult course, this booster factor, where if you achieve that, you're three times more likely as Māori to be heading into uh, university entrance, onto high-level study and earning a great income. And the issue wasn't that uh, Māori were failing those courses, the issue was that Māori were streamed away from ever sitting them. And again, that wasn't around the rangatahi making choices in terms of their own informed choices around determining their own future, it was around someone else making those choices, knowing full well what that, those outcomes are. And all that sounds really big and oppressive, and this is the thing. That's the great thing about the future, is you can change it, right? You can create it. So you go, well, we can have a system where systemic bias is addressed upstream and all the way downstream. Like, we can do that. We can create welcoming, inspiring, and culturally affirming learning environments. And again, rangatahi say there's nothing more powerful yeah, and in that relationship with a kaiako and knowing that they care and hearing and seeing Māori language being heard. And in particular, in our takiwa, also too, being very clear for them that don't equate skin colour with culture. That, you know, we can have native speaking. My kids are blonde-haired, blue-eyed. They look Swedish. Uh, um, but, you know, that's, that's something we're proud of, that we have six generations in our tribe of intermarriage with Scottish whalers. And so, yes, don't equate skin colour with fair skin. Oh, sorry, skin colour with culture, where we can have people that have very dark skin and feel very culturally vulnerable and not confident, and then you can have ones that could have red hair and blue eyes uh, that can be leading the haka and doing all sorts of stuff. So again, just that collective focus on removing obstacles. And we're all talking about problem solving, and I really liked uh, Jane really talking about the complexity. It's all we're trying to deal with, is how do we deal with complex, intergenerational, multidimensional challenges? But understanding that if we have that culture where we just problem solve our way through these things, that we just start by starting, we can create an education system where everyone thrives along their lifelong journey, and that's going to create the conditions that are going to result in more rangatahi staying in their learning flow. You know, just staying on that awa, on that journey, building that momentum, greater completions at secondary apprenticeship and in higher education, you know, equity of achievement for Māori. And most of our Government agencies have that as our target, but it's really, well, what can we be bringing together in terms of our collective power to be actually contributing actions towards that? And in Aotearoa, where every child realises their right to meaningful education and a decent income to support a choice, uh, a life of, of opportunity, and rangatiratanga, yeah, self-determination. And so when you think about, you know, with... Yeah, again, that demographics aren't destiny. You know, that inequality is not inevitable. 
Uh, it's the result of uh, your historic choices. Again, like that sediment in the awa, it's all backed up over time and built up, um, but we can make the choice in terms of how do we clear that sediment, that legacy of intergenerational disadvantage, and also acknowledging that there's also been a legacy of uh, intergenerational advantage with that as well. So we can both make that choice to go, well, how do we create the awa that is going to propel our kids forward, uh, removing, having a culture where we're removing all of those barriers and obstacles on their success. And what was really interesting when, uh, with Rangatei was also what they said is, it's not just having people that are guiding their journey, but for them feeling that all of those key figures, educators, employers, um, Bano, where everyone's jumping on the waka with them and paddling alongside them. So you're building that momentum up so that if you do hit a whirlpool or some rapids, yeah, that there's a whole crew of you on that waka that are propelling them over all of those bumpy bits and onwards towards their uh, dream destination. And so really, yeah, coming back to that idea, yeah, that that's the, the opportunity uh, we have. And how do we start to shift our, our gaze rather than focusing on uh, individuals and their circumstances, which kind of reinforces again that narrative that they're in that situation because of the choices they've made, to start to raise our horizons to be thinking about, well, how do we understand that broader ecosystem? And what are the forces in play that are, are, are influencing and shaping and diverting our rangatai? And again, how do we counter those negative influences and then replace them with forces that are going to be propelling them forward towards their own aspirations and dreams. I'll probably just um, finish there that uh, it's been lovely listening to a whole bunch of, uh, um, in particular, I really love Jane's quarter, one around complexity, but again, just that idea that, uh, um, that future is, is not something that we have to inherit, it's something that we can create and to encourage all of us to think around, well, when we think about the future education system we want, how do we put agency into, human agency into the awa? Yeah, how do we put that heart, that manaakitanga, and, and really uh, connect that with not just, uh, not so much Māori values, but in terms of our values, in terms of Kiwis, that we all espouse that idea of a free, just, equitable society, well, how do we design uh, education to employment journey that will deliver that vision for us into the future? So, uh, kia ora tato. It's not just tiredness, it's the fact that uh, the waka is for us all to, to be on, and, and I really uh, value your contribution and your words. And um, what I also um, value is to be part of, of that journey uh, and to realise that as a country, this is about us. It's not about Māori, it's about us and it's about equity and um, working together. What I also think is, is really powerful for me is you know, at the, the beginning, Hamish and I talked about, we met at Singularity University um, Conference and struck up, up a conversation. Hi, my name's Cheryl. Hi, Hamish. Um, and, but, uh, Eru, uh, you met Jan for the first time at the Philanthropy con um, Conference earlier this year, and from that, 
struck up a, a, a relationship and a conversation about how they uh, might be able to work together. And I think that's a really um, powerful um, conversation that the two of you are having and, and one of the reasons why I was so keen that Jan could be the beginning of our day and Edu could be the, the, um, the, the ending of our day because really the bookends go so um, well together and uh, like um, Edu and Jan, you have that opportunity after tomorrow to make some uh, new connections and then lead to a, a new spin-off. So thank you. Would you please join with me again in thanking um, Eddie. Well, end of day one. Whose head's full? What yeah. head? <laughs> <laughs> some fabulous presentations today and a lot to think about. Um, uh, I was trying to capture my thoughts around the presentations that I've seen today and this, uh, I guess we're, we're heading into a time of uncertainty and complexity and there are so many different forces that are intersecting here and interacting, uh, so very, very difficult for us to be able to predict where we're going in the future in that waka. Uh, and I love the, the themes that are coming through of um, that complexity and understanding uh, how we react to that complexity based on principles and values and things that we all hold dear, that we all agree on, so therefore will keep us steering in the right direction. Uh, there's a lot of discussion uh, around the technology and how that's uh, uh, the challenges of technology taking over human roles, um, making us less able to work, less able to find meaningful work. And I, I find that, um, I'm, I'm the optimist, as I said right at this very start, uh, it releases us from the drudgery of work to do the things that we feel passionately about, the things that we feel are important for the world. And I think the more people who can be released from doing a job to earn money to pay the bills to feed their family and released to doing the things that they feel they should be doing in, for the future that, that will contribute to a better future, the more people that can be released to that, the better off we will be. Uh, how we do that is going to be up to everybody, and I think that's probably the other theme that I've seen today is that collective action, uh, the power of us to be able to change things for the better is incredibly, incredibly pa uh, important to us. Um, my head's really full, Cheryl, and uh, I don't think I've slept much in the last few days. How about you? <laughs> I've slept like a log, <laughs> especially last night. Um, <coughs> Let's talk about tomorrow, right, just to, um, to finish off the day, because there's, well, actually, the day's not finished for some of you because there are a couple of exciting opportunities, so um, perhaps you want to talk about the possibilities and then I'll talk about tomorrow. Okay, so uh, two, two things happening this evening. Um, those of us, uh, those of you who are joining us for a meal, uh, Cafe Valentino are hosting us tonight. Um, the meal is at your own expense, I'm sorry. <laughs> We are just two small individuals running a conference. We can't afford to pay for everybody. Uh, but we would love you to continue the conversations we've been having today. So uh, if you're coming along to Cafe Valentino, they're, um, they're welcoming us from 6.30 this evening. Uh, we will be all seated all together, so we'll have a chance to continue these conversations. Most of our speakers uh, and most of our volunteers are going to be there and be a part of that, so uh, it'd be great to see you there if you want to come along. You'll see this me sort of in the corner. 
quite. Yeah. The second thing yeah. that's happening is uh, the wonderful folks at Altafati are hosting a, a tour of this um, revolutionary school and approach to a school. Is that? It's a an amazing summary? school, and amazing. It's, our, it's our newest uh, school. We, we're sort of um, pretty into building new schools or fixing up schools in Christchurch, but Altafati uh, is, is certainly the, um, the merger of what was Discovery One and Unlimited Paingatafati to come back into the central city where it's meant to be. Uh, it's just the, the greatest opportunity um, to see a year 1 to 13 campus and to have a a whole um, tour, so that's going to be a really exciting opportunity, and it's just right across the road for, from Cafe Valentino, funnily enough. So that tour is at 6.15 this evening. Um, the dinner at uh, Cafe Valentino is going to be a bit of a rolling thing, so don't feel that you have to turn up exactly on time. You'll be fed when you get here, yep. get there. And, so. and probably they're quite keen for not everyone to go whoosh through the doors at 6.30, <laughs> so it's, um, it's all, all great. Um, so the... Uh, and so people just will make their own way to Altafati. If you are um, on that journey, you might have a, a car, it's a, it's a, a walk, it's a, a scooter, uh, get a lime scooter or one of the other um, colours if you're that way inclined, but please, please be careful because we do want you back tomorrow. Um, yeah, so... Great. Tomorrow. Uh, the doors open at 8 o'clock, uh, 8.30... Uh, Sharp will be in here for another interesting and exciting day of keynotes and also workshops. The coffee carts will be uh, out there in the morning for those that just need that urgent fix of caffeine uh, for the day. And I think that's about all that we've got to say, other than think. Right, so does. Great idea. Yeah, okay, so maybe people that do want to ride or that have a ride that they can share, a ride to offer. Maybe even just um, meet out in the, the, the foyer at the bottom of the stairs or just to the left of the stairs so you don't block all the others coming out. But, yeah, that would be great. So if you want to be sort of coordinating, have a look and, yeah. <laughs> Yay. Uh, you're, you're looking for a ride too? Okay, so if you're looking for a ride, if you do have a car in your offering, please, um, especially you Christchurch people, we um, want to make people feel welcome, so uh, good call, thank you. Um, yeah, we'll see you tomorrow, same bat channel, be here, and thank you so much. Please give all of our speakers a round of applause. Thank Thanks, Hamish. Um, so, it's good to see that you've moved around, some of you are sitting with people that you haven't met yet, um, and uh, again, take the opportunity to have a chat to people during the breaks. You've been doing a great job of that. Um, there'll be all sorts of things happening in the breaks, especially in the, the lunch break. Uh, the shared notes, if you haven't already uh, contributed, it only takes two or three, but you, you'll be able to go back to those and um, uh, look to them next week, week after. And as Hamish said, that you know, we'll be adding to the, the goodie bag. But I just want to um, mention Learning City Christchurch, which is something that a number of people have connected with and is uh, part very much of the Remake Learning Project in Pittsburgh and the, the connection here. Uh, so can we just have the, the um, website up? So this is just newly launched. Learning City Christchurch is the, the website, and uh, what we're aiming to do is focus on access, equity, and innovation. This is a, a Christchurch uh, initiative. Um, that doesn't mean it can't happen anywhere, but we're just nice and small to be able to do this, this mahi. Um, and I guess uh, the important part is that this is an emergent 
thing. It's a, a movement, not a, not a space um, of power. It doesn't belong to anyone. It's not part of the, um, the council or the Ministry of Education or whatever. It's a, a movement with a small uh, group of trustees in Erica, who, who some of you um, have met. Um, she is the, the person that uh, is employed for 15 hours a week to keep things moving. But that's the space where we've been undertaking some micro-credentials, some talks about the SDGs, and where there's this bubbling piece of work about connecting the city as a learning ecosystem. So it's not about schools, it's about if we're joined up, what does that mean for learning and growing together in a safe and sustainable way rather than exhausting ourselves by all trying to you know, do the same thing or um, work in, in different silos. So it's about unsiloing, unhiding, but a particular focus on equity for those who have less social capital. Um, those people from um, businesses, farmlands, Ryan, etc. This is part of your journey. We want everyone to be part of it. So it's it's new. Keep watching the space. Can we just do a quick scroll, um, so you can see the the sorts of things that are there? It's literally hot off the press, and in its like first iteration to get it up in time for the future of learning. So. Um, the, the trustees, we've got a youth trustee and um, several uh, principals as, as um, advisors too. Lots of support, there'll be lots of links and places to explore, but it is yours to help develop. So um, talk to one of the trustees. Can the trustees that are here just give a, a bit of a wave? Okay, so we've got Kate up here. I think Stuart's um, here somewhere, and Louisa. Um, who, you, who is our, our chief organiser, uh, running around everywhere. She's also a trustee. So um, that's the, the Learning City Christchurch. Um, you don't stay on that bit. <laughs> All right, so um, hopefully you'll explore that and do come and talk and help create uh, the new possibilities for that. All right, now it's my pleasure to introduce our first keynote speaker of the day. Dr. Marsa Mohageg, uh, who's a senior lecturer at Auckland University of Technology. She's a computer engineer and an AI subject matter expert. Uh, but more than that, Marsa is also the founder of SheSharp, a group that supports the closing of the gender gap in technology. She's been recognised in the Women of Influence Awards as an emerging leader and was also a semi-finalist in the New Zealander of the year 2018. With her topic, The Impact of Artificial Intelligence on Education, please welcome Marsa to the stage. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> so if you all had a fantastic first day, good rest, and ready for another inspiring day. So my name is Marsa Mohaikek. I'm a senior lecturer in the School of Engineering, Computer and Mathematical Sciences, so it's rather a big name at AUT. So also founder and director of charitable trust called SheShop. So my superpower is being a big advocate for women in tech, all about diversity and inclusion, and all about getting more females to come to STEM. So I would love to tell you a little bit more about SheShop. Please come and talk to me during break. But I'm here today to talk about artificial intelligence and the area of my work, natural language processing, 
and a topic which is very close to my heart, education. But I'll tell you a reason a little bit later. So I thought to start with, it's better to go through the overview of artificial intelligence for people who are not working in this field. And after that, I will dive deep into artificial intelligence and education. We all know that we are living at the time that technology advances are changing, redefining, and reshaping every aspect of our lives. We know that, that these new technologies, they're disrupting our jobs, and in fact, 85% of jobs that they will exist in 2030, they haven't been invented yet. Isn't it amazing? So we are living in an era that, to give you some example, the biggest taxi company, Uber, doesn't own any car. The biggest accommodation company, Airbnb, doesn't own any real estate. Disruption is upon us. And not only that, we are living at the time that our devices are much more powerful in collecting and processing data. Again, to give you an example, in oil and gas industry, 80,000 sensors within a premises, they can collect up to 15 petabytes of data. In public safety, 520 terabytes of data can be collected using those surveillance cameras in New York City every day. So sensors, cameras, GPS receivers, today they can collect and process a lot of data. Not only that, your smart devices, your phone has over 12 million lines of code. A simple small appliance at home over five million lines of code. And when you start comparing these devices with what they used to be 10 years ago, the numbers just are staggering. I really love this graph. I'm not gonna go through all the stats and number here, but this is what just happened 60 seconds ago, a minute ago, an internet in 2019. 188 million emails just got sent. One million logging in Facebook. 3.8 million search queries in Google. And it's amazing, 1.4 million swipes in Tinder in just a minute ago. <laughs> that was only a minute ago. So we are living at the time which is abundance of data. We can get our hand in any type of data, text, audio, video, at any time. So much so that Jack Ma, so you know him, CEO of Alibaba, he said, up until now, our machines have been drinking electricity, but from now on, they will drink data. And this is so true. So we don't have issue with data, but what is the problem? The key for unblocking these big data is artificial intelligence and machine learning. So these are two papers I'm lecturing at university in 18 weeks, so don't worry, I'm not gonna go through all the content today, but I just thought like a good lecture, I better start from definition. So I want to define artificial intelligence to just give you an idea that you're using AI every day. 
To describe artificial intelligence, I go one step back, and I want to define intelligence. Who do you call an intelligent person? An intelligent person for me is someone who is able to solve a problem, to learn over time, make decisions. So follow from these, artificial intelligence is when machine be able to learn, solve problem, and make decision without human intervention. Now think about applications. Think about some of the apps you're using, some of the devices at home. If they solve problem, if they learn over time, they're probably using some part of artificial intelligence. But there are different classification to artificial intelligence. One of them is artificial narrow intelligence. When it is system designed to do one simple task, speech recognition, face recognition, machine translation. The next level is artificial general intelligence. When machine is capable of doing things intelligently, and when it's the time that they can be multi-purpose. We are not yet there. The next step after that, it's super intelligence when machine capability of learning and acting intelligently surpass people and average human being. So we have different type of artificial intelligence, but is it new? Artificial intelligence started in 1950, when for the first time Alan Turing posed the question, can machines think? And five years later, John McCurdy, he coined the term artificial intelligence. So it's been around for a long time. But the problem with artificial intelligence is one of those areas of technology it received mixed attention. There are many people for and against it. You all know Elon Musk. He said artificial intelligence is more dangerous than nuclear weapons. Stephen Hawking, he said artificial intelligence without careful human management can spell the worst event in human history. Bill Gates, who initially voiced against artificial intelligence, these days is saying that the benefit of artificial intelligence far outweigh the risks. This is true. There are so many negative implications of AI that we have to be careful and concerned about. But there are so many people out there that they're looking at the bright side. They can see the benefits. This will come as a result of artificial intelligence. And one of those is Sundar Pijai, CEO of Google. He said AI is bigger than fire or electricity, and probably the most important thing that humanity has ever worked on. Comparing AI with fire and electricity, it just highlights the importance of artificial intelligence in our future. But our problem is general public, not you guys. You're all into technology, and that's why you're here. But general public, they tend to confuse science with science fiction. When you talk to people about artificial intelligence, the very first thing coming to their mind is something from future, some of those scenes from sci-fi movies. I'm not a believer in doomsday story that you know, computers and robots taking over our world. But when you tell people about the new digital assistant, they expect to see something like Jarvis from Iron Man. Honestly, they, they expect perfection. 
But the reality is that these AI applications are far from perfect, especially in early days. They rely on people using them to get better. I myself, every time I get the new AI application or a new chatbot or a new digital assistant, the very first thing I do, I start to trying to test the limit. I start asking so many confusing questions to see if I can break the system. Don't tell me I'm alone. Does anybody else do that? Yeah, it's so good. Few hands in the audience. But we're really helping the system because next time if machine gets the similar question, now it's capable of answering that question. So I often get asked about the big when question. When we will see the big impacts of AI. When will AI take over our workplaces? When will AI change our education? You know, the answer to all of these questions is one simple word, yesterday. So AI is well and truly here with autonomous cars, with pizza delivery drones, with security guards. So that was one that you mentioned yesterday. With Boston Dynamic Robot that they use in military. And another example, IBM Chef, capable of cooking 2,000 different types of meals. I love to have one of these. <laughs> I wish. So education is no exception. And I tell you a reason. Because three years ago, this little mischievous munchkin, she changed my life. It was a huge shift in my priorities. The things I used to care about a lot now became less important. The things I never used to be worried about now sometimes keep me awake at night. I look at my daughter every day, and I think, what type of world is she growing up into? What does the future hold for her? We know that our next generation, they're living in a world that's filled with technology. There's so many applications of artificial intelligence and cognitive computing around us. Things like Google Home Assistant or Alexa. They're just the beginning of potential applications in AI. I never forget a day she was, last year when she was two, for a first time, she asked Google Home Assistant to play her favorite TV show, Peppa Pig, for her. Just shocked. It wasn't that amazing things from future for her. It was just life as she will know it. Okay, Peppa Pig from YouTube, playing on bedroom TV. Look at that cheeky smile. I lost my mommy power. She doesn't need me, let alone my permission. So, education, as I said, is no exceptions. But one thing that we can be sure of, that the education we knew yesterday is different today, and it will be different in the future. Our classroom is a little bit look like that in university. But honestly, I think the principle haven't changed too much between these two scenarios. But with AI, we can expect to see a lot of changes, and I will give you some examples of that in the future. So as a result of that, it's only natural when people ask, would it be possible that one day AI replace our teachers? 
I know we all know the answer. I think this is rather a bold and direct question, but the more informed questions are, what impact will AI have in our education? What opportunities will it present and to what extent it will be involved? I think one of the things probably you all know that AI is already being used in our education system. So I want to give you a few examples of some of the applications in AI right now in the world. So the first one is AI SQL system. They are adaptive learning system based in China and one of the probably the most popular one in the world. It's been estimated over $1 billion last year and is invested in AI development for AI SQL system. And over a million students right now in China, they're using this system. As I mentioned, it's adaptive learning system. It can assess the student's knowledge areas of weaknesses, strengths, and come up with the tailored curriculum for them. And as they progress through the curriculum, it can change and update itself. It can also look at learning among multiple students to come up with the way that you can improve the delivery of course content. China is really leading the way in artificial intelligence, specifically in education. And I started to, you know, asking myself, why China? They're doing, you know, so well in that. And some of the reason I found, the very first one was probably tax breaks for AI ventures in China. The other things were fears of comp academic competition, especially getting through to university, so the entrance exam for university. An AI system that are capable of providing that level of confidence and knowledge that a student needs. And the last one, it was no-brainer, so it was access to abundance amount of data that they can actually refine and trial their algorithms. So China is really leading the way here. There are so many discussions around, is really adaptive learning is the best approach compared to the personalized learning? Because with adaptive, you're really finding out about the area of strengths and weaknesses, whereas with the personalized learning, we're really looking at the learning style suits one individual. So I mentioned China really has started grand experiments in this field, and they're probably going to change the way we see education in the future. As a result of that, my next example is again from China. So another application is Allo7. They're specialized in teaching English. But instead of replacing a traditional classroom, they're actually complementing it. So anything that requires creativity, like conversation and writing, they stay in the classroom. And anything like pronunciation or vocabulary, they can use speech recognition to help students. And since 2018, they started using face recognition and a speech recognition to identify the level of engagement of students in real time and providing teachers with a report of you know, teaching at the end of the class. We've done a similar project at AUT, gesture recognition, to give real-time feedback to teacher. And it was amazing to see how you change the way you're talking and lecturing when you can get the real-time feedback that half of the class, they're bored. The other person fell asleep, so you better give them a break. The next one is developed right here in New Zealand and in fact right here in Christchurch. 
So it's Amy. Amy is a math tutoring system. And they're really helping the students with the math. So if they're stuck with the question, just like a real tutor, they will be able to provide some more examples and guidance. So Amy and team, Ruffle, they're here today and they have a breakout session later, later on today, breakout session three. So I would really recommend you to go and have a little play with Amy to see how it works. The next one is from Southern University, California. They combine 3D gaming animation to create a virtual character to interact with the students in a virtual environment. And my next example, it's a digital human. So we saw a few digital humans yesterday, but we didn't actually see an example of it in the education sector. We saw them in a bank, insurance company, but Soul Machines last year, they released the first digital teacher in a ward. So his name is Will, and Will goes to school to teach about renewable energy. Let's have a look at this short Hi, I'm Will. I work at Vector helping young people learn about renewable energy. Here's what happened when I met some students for the first time. I can help you become an energy expert. What should we start with? Geothermal genius. Magma from the Earth's core comes closer to the surface and we end up with volcanoes, hot springs and geysers. But do you know what magma is? Molten rock from the outer core. Absolutely right. I thought Will was really like fantastic. Like he's there looking at us. Like it's like a real human. Here's a quick question for you. What do you think is the windiest city in the world? Wellington. Nice. If the sun is so far away, how long do you think it takes sunlight to reach us? 10 minutes. Correct. You're a solar superstar. I was curious if they liked me. It's different from like talking to Will than talking to like Siri, for example, because like he's there, you can, you can see him. He was quite human-like, even though he's an AI. Then the human version of me arrived. How's it going? Yeah. Yeah, it was cool. We got some really good reactions out of a few kids. Is that Yeah, yeah. That's really cool. A couple of them didn't recognize me straight away. You know, it's me, eh? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. True, I can see that now. It's a bit of a shock seeing my digital avatar for the first time. It's like looking in the mirror, I guess. Let's face it, he may look like me, but I'm the one who knows about energy. Yeah, I think Will could be used... Uh, as an education tool in many areas. We did learn some things that we didn't know. Wellington is the windiest city. I learned that you wouldn't notice if, sun, if, if the sun went away for 10 minutes. It's not just a blank screen they're staring at answering questions, so they feel like they're actually interacting with a, a human. He was a good teacher. It was great meeting the thinkers of tomorrow because together we can shape our energy future. So what do you think? I think it was a pretty amazing experiment for students. They seem very engaged. So would it be possible then? Would it be possible for us to see one day that we can have digital teachers instead of human teachers in a classroom? I think there are a few reasons that this is really impractical and probably undesirable to see AI can replace our teachers. Because good teachers, they don't just impart knowledge. They impart wisdom through experience. They tend to encourage and inspire our students. They tend to push them towards excellence. And I don't really know any AI system will be able to encourage and motivate the students. The other thing 
we relate best with other humans. We love to learn from someone who's capable of making mistakes, someone tangible, reachable, someone we can inspire to be. An artificial intelligence system, they designed to be perfect. They designed to bridge the gap of imperfection. And I think one of the missing points between digital human and real teacher is empathy. AI machine, they won't be able to teach empathy. They might be able to show and represent some kind of creativity, but again, they're unable to teach creativity. They can encourage critical thinking, but again, they can't teach critical thinking. And we all know these are the new skill sets we need. So then, what can we expect? What will be the future with AI? So as I mentioned, AI strengths today lies in repetitive task automation. And within the education sector, there are so many applications that they can benefit from that. From admin works like admission and enrollment to some course-related tasks like grading and assessment. They can all benefit from AI. And these type of jobs, they're usually very time-consuming and tedious. But with the help of AI, we can simplify and speed up the whole process. The other thing is actually using AI as a digital assistant. So if a student have any problem with a difficult topic, instead of emailing teachers and waiting for a reply, they can access to the digital assistant, digital teacher 24-7. So it's been predicted that AI, the use of AI will be increased 47.5 from 2017 to 2021. We are working on a project right now at university, the use of AI companion. Something can stay with the students during their high school time, can identify strengths, knowledge, experiments, and then based on that, an interest, and based on that, I come up with some suggestion about career path in the future. We all know we have different learning styles. As someone who's been lecturing for the last 15 years, I know some of my students, they prefer learning by listening, some by reading, some by seeing example, and others with hands-on experiments. It is impossible to provide all these different learning styles in a classroom. But with the help of AI, based on the student personality, we can identify the best learning style, and that can be supplementary to the contact hours in the classroom. So all of these applications, they can really free up our teachers' time, and they can focus on something which is much more helpful for our students in the future. So trying to put the focus in teaching them some of those human skills that they really need. The wheels are in motion. We are making great progress in artificial intelligence, and very rapidly, but there's so many challenges to overcome. And one of these biggest challenges are ethical issues around development and testing this system, especially testing some of those complex systems in the earliest stages. Because after all, this is our children's minds, future, and career that we are working with. And because of that, 
We have to be very careful what type of data we're collecting, what is the privacy around this data, and the most important thing, we have to be very careful about what we call it, algorithmic bias. And algorithmic bias is pretty much unconscious bias at the human level coded to the machine. So we have to be very careful about that. And because of that, the need for a robust national AI strategy is a must, and education is really no exception. So how do I feel about my daughter's future? I think the future is really exciting. To be honest with you, a little bit intimidating as we enter to the era with so many unknown and uncertainties, an uncharted territory. But what we know for sure, that AI is a powerful tool, an enabler, that will bring so many opportunities and benefits to our education system. We have to move forward, but we have to be cautious. I think the gain is too important to ignore the opportunity. So let's not jump in front of the train. Get on board before it leaves the station. But for now, watch this space. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. Very you. Much, Thanks. I just want to pick up on a couple of things that you said there. Um, one was about uh, the work that we do that's repetitive, and I think that's uh, really critical in the education space. Uh, those of you who are teachers, uh, the work that you do that's administration, that's on top of the teaching workload that you do, um, wouldn't it be wonderful to have augmentation to help take some of that work away to allow you to focus on learner um, agency on, on, on helping learners to, to be successful. I think that's a really important opportunity to be thinking through. The second one, uh, I'm a science fiction fan and I, I know it's dangerous to look at science fiction and to look at how science fiction portrays technology, but I think some of the great science fiction writers have um, essentially done thought experiments on how super-intelligent computers could um, affect our society. And one of the, the authors that I like most in this space is Marshall Brain, who's not particularly well-known, but for a couple of books. One is The Second Intelligent Species. What happens when a computer absolutely surpasses human intelligence? And the, uh, the spoiler alert, the... The end point of this is a super intelligent computer may well just think of us like a cockroach. Absolutely uninteresting to it because it's so much more intelligent than the human race. <laughs> um, the second book that it's really interesting that actually I, I would really recommend you to, to read is called Mana, M-A-N-N-A. It's uh, two visions of humanity's future, the dystopian vision and a utopian vision and how things could go if we make the right choices now. That's a really cool book to read. Um, so thank you very much again to Marso. Everybody just give her another <laughs> shout out. Thank you. Uh, next up um, from Pittsburgh, uh, from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, we have Jessica Tribus. Uh, Jessica's the founder of SimCoach Games, not the SimCoach that Marsa hit in her slides. <laughs> another one. Uh, SimCoach Games is a company with a, a mission to create fun video games which connect uh, youth to their career paths and gamify their learning experiences. It's really cool tech, really cool games to play with. Um, it's a spin-off from Carnegie Mellon University and it's delivered hundreds of games for learning and workplace tra training since it started in 2005. 
Uh, Jess is very active in the US in workforce development also, and involved in initiatives related to industry, education, community, and economic development, uh, dedicated to connecting a qualified workforce to, um, to employers. You please join with me in welcoming to the stage Jessica Tribus. Thanks, Jessie. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Thank you for having me in New Zealand. This is my first time, and uh, I'm honored to be here uh, to be part of this Future of Learning conversation. Um, so I guess we're calling them superpowers, what we wrote on our uh, tag yesterday. So I wrote entrepreneur, and I want to share that with you up front as I go through all of these different caps and all of these different roles uh, that, that sort of I wear or have worn uh, of expertise, but I view myself as an entrepreneur first and, and foremost. So I'm from Pittsburgh. Has anyone not down in front been to Pittsburgh? Nice. Hopefully when the weather was nice. When the weather is nice, this is my hometown. It's a beautiful town. For those of you that don't know that much about Pittsburgh, um, it is marked by three rivers. The Allegheny and the Monongahela joined to meet the Ohio River at the point right there. And uh, the town uh, is very well known for steel mills, but we don't have steel mills anymore. Um, that all went away, uh, I think, by the 80s, around there. What we're known for is education. Uh, for instance, we have something like 25 universities in, in our immediate region. Um, we're known for healthcare in a big way, and healthcare uh, innovation and, and technology uh, and, and delivery as well. Um, and we're known for technology, you know, at uh, you know Carnegie Mellon and, and other areas, uh, namely right now in robotics and in certain um, uh, AI applications such as. Um, autonomous vehicle research, which you had the Uber reference up there. Um, so I'm a native, and we also have our own vernacular that most people aren't proud of, but I, uh, I, I am very proud of it, and, and that is that we sort of speak with a d different accent. So it sounds kind of like this if I'm talking in that, and uh, we're going to all go down to a future learning conference in that. And so we have these different words, like we use the word spigot for faucet and gum band instead of a, like a rubber band that you would put in your hair. Um, and if you are being uh, particularly bad, um, the word that we might use for you is uh, stop being a jag off. Uh, <laughs> so anyway. Um, so I put together this talk, and, and this is really, I, I want to share a story with you of, of sort of the last 15 years um, and what the, the summary that Hamish uh, read about me is, is all about. And uh, throughout this talk, I, I want to cover three areas, sort of the background, the ins inspiration, and sort of the, the current uh, future vision and, and what's going on. And, uh, hopefully, you'll get maybe some of these themes um, to come out that, that will highlight in my story uh, what the, the title of the, the talk is all about. So um, hopefully, you'll see that we were able to use cool tech as sort of a head fake 
um, to get youth and, and other and adults um, to change their behavior um, or get other outcomes out of it uh, besides the fact that they're playing around with cool technology. I want to highlight uh, the positive power of play and how important that is, uh, not only for youth, but also adults as well. Um, I have this thing where I go into sort of large traditional companies and say, do you have a game designer on staff? Because you should. Um, uh, and of course, you know, uh, the power of empowering people through sort of the sort of Confucius show, just show them how to do something so that they can do it uh, themselves. And um, I'm not going to explicitly call this out, but you know, we talk a lot about design thinking. And certainly um, game design, the process of game design, uh, I, will, I will cover a little bit today uh, as an overall metaphor or theme. But this is a book, this is an oldie but goodie for those of you who don't know it, that sort of looks at it from a business standpoint, the lean startup, uh, and we're students of that. And then the last one, um, hopefully you'll get a feel for, you know, Pittsburghers are all right in that. So. So the story starts way back, actually, in 2001, 2002, and 2003, when I moved back to Pittsburgh from Silicon Valley and got involved with Carnegie Mellon University. And they had started this new program um, John Ballish talked about yesterday called the Entertainment Technology Center. And this was a very unique program because it was uh, markedly about projects, not classes, coursework for graduate students where um, most of their time, their two-year graduate program was working just on their project per semester. So the idea was, hey, let's get different disciplines. Let's get competent computer scientists with um, really great artists of all different and then sort of intangibles, people that have worked in industry, maybe they're uh, producers, maybe they come from a completely different discipline. Let's throw them all in a room. Let's uh, give them a client. So early on, the clients were mainly in, from the entertainment industry, so the Pixars, the Electronic Arts, the Disneys of the world. But uh, from there, it certainly expanded to um, non-traditionally entertainment companies um, and, and hardware companies as well in, in various spaces. And so the idea was throw these students, these interdisciplinary students in a room, give them a client, give them 16 weeks, shut the door, and see what happens. Um, and essentially, what we were facilitating, um, me first as a student, and then uh, as a faculty member, um, a professor advising them for 14 years, was go in and do your research, do your design, and, and as quickly as you can, get a prototype going, test that prototype, iterate, test, iterate, test, iterate, polish, handoff. At the end of the semester, you have to, sh you have to actually have something that works. So th this came about to be like um, animatronic robots or uh, video games to, to, to learn or train on something or a whole host of different um, experiments or, or different outputs that, that would actually be installed in museums or uh, provided to different um, client sponsors. And what's interesting about this uh, to me is while, while these students were incredibly talented, um, we didn't necessarily make them better engineers or better computer science or better artists. What we were doing is providing uh, strength in soft skills, employability skills. 
And so by forcing them to work with a client, they had that experience. By forcing them to work with the different disciplines and being able to appreciate what a computer scientist needs or appreciate what an artist needs was, was so important. And our employer said, that's, that's what we want. We want people, we want your students because they know how to jump in and contribute right away. Uh, they are doers. They can get up and, you know, part of this program is give four presentations throughout a 16-week uh, cycle while you're doing all this development and uh, client relationship and everything else. And so, uh, you know, these students, they, they get hired and they're able to stand up and present their ideas, get shot down, come back the next day with their new idea. And it's just sort of that uh, mindset um, was really valuable, we saw, to uh, getting all of our students hired, even more so than having sort of this deep capability. Um, around the same time when I was a student, 2002-2003, I was really fascinated to sort of figure out that good game design paralleled proven principles for how we learn uh, and how we teach most effectively. So how many people play video games? Yeah, awesome. Actually, most of you, just half of you. Um, so we found out that what sort of game players inherently know, that what makes good games fun are the same things that teach us and connect us to other people. We realized that games, not just video games, Games are structured worlds that provide, can provide relevancy. They have clear goals and rules and roles. There's trial and error, the ability to collaborate. There's choice, there's consequence, there's feedback, and of course there's winning and losing. Games have the ability to connect people. They have the ability to affirm people within the framework of uh, the, the context of the, of the game. And they also push back. They hold people accountable. They are at least a two-way language, uh, in my opinion. They are one of the most effective tools that we have for communication. So I thought, oh my gosh, how do we harness the power of what's going on in good game design and apply it to solve big problems and change lives? I was inspired by that question. At the same time, while we didn't have smartphones in the way that we do now, we didn't have app stores, we didn't have um, social media in the way that we do now, the direction, the de sort of the democratization of creating a game was changing. We were developing games for learning, game-based training simulations in the university setting uh, without spending millions of dollars just to sort of have a, a game engine. And we were also deploying on hardware. Uh, we had laptops now capable of the process, having the processing power and the graphics capabilities uh, to run, run these games. And we were starting to able to deploy things on tablets, remember the early tablets. Um, we were using a VR a lot at Carnegie Mellon, even though it wasn't what, what it is today, sort of, um, sort of the commodity or sort of the off-the-shelf capabilities. But, but we, we were very comfortable in that area. And then um, just sort of what you could do with the data and, uh, and the networking, um, it sort of saw where that was going. So what I did, even before I graduate, is I said, wait a minute. 
what would industries do with these, the process, the capabilities, harnessing the power of games? So I went out into Pittsburgh and I asked. I asked large manufacturers. I, I asked large healthcare systems. I asked other industries, you know, what, what problems do you have? And, and learning more about that. And it turned out that they had a massive training problem. So they were training everyone, whether it was on productivity, operational excellence, safety, customer service, whatever, patient satisfaction, patient safety. They were training everyone in very traditional ways, that, that the same way they were training 50 years ago, with the exception of maybe they were using PowerPoint and people were sort of clicking through. Um, that was sort of the, the, the big uh, innovation. But it was certainly passive. It was not active learning. Um, Combined with, in 2004, they were also asking, oh my gosh, how are we going to train, how are we going to engage the next generation of workforce here? Um, and so they wanted to try some games out. And that's where SimCoach Games was born. And over the next 10 years, 12 years or so, we developed a ton of game-based training simulations. Everything from complex training simulations to sort of two-minute reinforcement uh, games. Um, they run the gamut from uh, electrical safety to patient safety. Down in the middle is a game that was distributed across a large healthcare system, basically for 80 year olds with heart failure uh, to reinforce critical skills to keep them out of the hospital. These are people, we had to design a game for people that did not play games and may not have ever used an iPad. Um, so we were successful in reducing the readmissions for this uh, population. Um, we've done all kinds of manufacturing, all kinds of healthcare, game-based. The one in the middle is a brain training game that's not public, but I would love to make it public. It was uh, designed essentially for the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency in the U.S., to um, upskill and to increase their fluid intelligence, which is basically their IQ, uh, so that they can process information um, more quickly or the lack of information and make decisions. So we, we did a load of these to drive behavior change, not just train people, but at the operational level, what can, how can we change a behavior using a game where, where the value was increased productivity, better customer service, uh, safer, um, safer deployment of whatever, uh, uh, of whatever they, they were doing. I wanted to give you a quick example of one of these games, and I'll just sort of play it in the background here. And um, it's on a video. So just to give you an example of the type of training simulation that we would do. Um, retailers in the U.S., there are many retailers that are still regional, but they're large. They might be family-owned, but they're large. I mean, we're talking like $7 billion regional grocery stores that have 45,000, 50,000 people working at them, and they have the big problem. It's a safety problem. When uh, you have a cashier scanning groceries in one eight-hour shift, they might scan uh, 14,000 pounds of groceries, 7,000 pounds across the scanner and another 7,000 pounds to put in the bag for you. And so this puts incredible strain on certain parts of their body. Um, 
And so it's a seven-figure problem. And, and even for like one regional grocer that's really, really good uh, for their employees, they're talking 10 to $15 million a year problem due to strains and sprains, workers comp uh, strains and sprains. So what we did, um, can you replay that? Can you replay that video? Yeah, just one, one more thought on that. So instead of creating a training game for, in this case, this was you know, one, one grocer uh, that we started this with. They, they had about 14,000 uh, cashiers. Uh, instead of just creating a training game, we would look at their workers' comp and we said, okay, 80% or whatever of these workers' comp claims, what are they attributed to? Strains and sprains of what? Well, so it turns out that like five of these behaviors are the ones that have the biggest impact or, or, or accumulating the most claims. And so we just built the game to focus on those behaviors. And, uh, and this is what the game looked like. So you can kind of see it's kind of like a flight simulation from the overtop view of the cashier. And uh, it's on an iPad, and they have to swipe and make these different movements, use the hand scanner, and lean down instead of picking that big thing of dog food or, or cases of water or whatever up. Um, so you can kind of see that, and then I'll go to the next slide. There we go. So essentially, the results were unbelievable in this, in this example. Um, the, the cashiers, the employees loved it because we were competing with like passive training. They're like, yeah, of course I'm more engaged in this. This is, this is so much better than the training that we've got that I didn't even know that these things were a thing even though you know, the employer's like, we told you about these things. Um, and so they all loved it. And then 40, we did this case with a third party at Carnegie Mellon Learning Experts, where they went in and they said, okay, we'll list whatever you can in a free form piece of paper. Like list three to five daily behaviors that you use on the job because of this game. And that's all they said, like the game that you played. Um, and they had to think. So, 100% uh, of the folks on us were able to list 45 days later one of the actions they use on the job and uh, a, a high percentage of two and three concepts. But the big thing was for the company. In the first year, deploying this game across reduced the workers' comp uh, by 34% and another 34% approximately the following year. So it had a huge impact. So that's just an example of what we were doing and, and what we were learning and evolving with the technology and the way we designed these games to solve these big problems in industry. But the company said to us along the way and around this time, that last one was like 2013, like, you know, we also have this like big problem finding people to work at our companies. Uh, you know, we want to recruit more people that know what they're going, kind of getting into. Uh, and sort of have these pre-qualified skills. And that kept coming up across industries. And I said, that, that's really interesting. And around the same time, I had this um, influential advisor call me. I still remember, I was driving in the car, and he called me. He's like, hey, Jess, I want you to join the local workforce investment board, the workforce development board. You know, there's a new CEO, and you girls are going to get along great. And uh, all these people on this board are a bunch of duds, and you'd be perfect. And I thought, what kind of impression have I made in this region and to this advisor, who was also an investor, 
um, that, um, that he thinks I'd be perfect for something that sounds very bureaucratic is a quasi-government organization where they're tripping over a thousand laws and they don't actually get anything done. Um, remember, I'm an entrepreneur, I thought. So, um, so anyway, uh, I said to him, um, I, don't, I don't know what the phrase workforce development means. I, like, I, really, I don't literally know what that means. And uh, anyway, so I joined um, the board. And um, it turns out that you know, the, there's a federal law, uh, a labor law, the Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act. And this is the public system for connecting uh, the people with the industries and providing some uh, training or upskilling uh, to get to the industries. And then also with this vision of, um, of, of upskilling and continuing with upward mobility. So these are, are great jobs in making that connection. Typically, you know, as an adult, like I'm 18, I'm ready to go, what, you know, what direction um, am I going in? And so the, the government's way of sort of translating the law and translating the hundreds of millions of dollars into our country is by state and through these workforce development boards or workforce investment boards, which every state then uh, distributes it to their region and so that regions can deploy their resources uh, to accomplish this in a way that uh, fits their population, their demographics, and just sort of what's going on in the industry sectors that, that they have there. Um, the other piece um, that's been going on in the last couple of years is a, is a change in the, the education laws um, with a focus on, on equity. Um, and, and some of these, and how it relates to workforce development, is some of the law is getting translated through the states around core standards. So not only do you have to teach to the math or teach to the reading level or teach to the social studies science level, but now you have to uh, provide these core standards around career education and awareness and readiness and pathways. And so I thought this, this is really interesting because the conversation for workforce development should really start, maybe not using those words, but really start at kindergarten um, to, to sort of assess, uh, have this awareness sort of built in along the way. And in the US, we have a massive issue. The biggest issue to our country's sustained economic growth is a lack of a qualified, skilled workforce. There's a fundamental misalignment between the skills and the awareness needed to be successful and the uh, pathways for people to get there. And this is impacting key industries, healthcare, manufacturing, construction, IT occupations all over the place. And it's already, it's not like, oh, this is going to happen in five years or 10 years. This is happening now and projected, of course, to accelerate. And so this is, a, this is a big problem. And so it's like, well, you know, <laughs> uh, most of the youth that I work with um, are brilliant. So how are they like, not aware of this? So there's a, there's a, there's a huge, huge awareness problem uh, with youth as far as what, what the opportunities are. Um, and so we spend a lot of time asking youth, you know, why, aren't, why don't you know about these awesome jobs, these awesome pathways, these awesome uh, uh, beneficial uh, occupations. And, you know, 
in a lot of ways, there's a stigma around certain occupations, certain industries, and not knowing what it is, but there's a stigma. There, you know, the youth don't necessarily have role models that look like them in industries that, you know, maybe traditionally don't have a lot of women or minorities in them. And so they're also, you know, a big issue of being pushed to four-year colleges and, and, and high schools actually, you know, um, measuring them by how many people go into four-year colleges, of course. They don't know what trades are. They don't know what apprenticeships are. Um, so all of these things that, you know, they're just, they're just not aware. So we're asking, how do we engage folks that are under 30 and certainly youth uh, in a way that is empowering and it's an authentic way to engage youth about what is going on um, and uh, what their own interests are, what their own aptitudes are, and then what the opportunities are. So we came up with something called the Sim Coach Skill Arcade. And this is the, this is the platform that the idea is we want to use the power of games, the engagement of games, um, to uh, spark motivation and, um, and, and sort of assess interests and aptitudes that I might have and make the connections to what's possible, whether it be an apprenticeship program or other training or the jobs themselves, the industries themselves, basically playing around with games, um, what it might be like to go into AI or might, what it might be like to do robotics, what it might be like to go into advanced manufacturer, healthcare, whatever. Um, and so these are a bunch of free games. We kind of categorize them with discovery and awareness as well as skill building um, uh, and uh, exploration. We explore different industries. They're all free on the App Store. So you uh, are welcome to um, download any of them. And the idea, oh, by the way, these are my personal favorites. <laughs> Not necessarily the best games, per se, but they're my favorites. Um, Bowie's a ghost code, dig in an excavator game, and the bottom one is, is a spatial reasoning game. I love it because I'm good at it. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's a lot of fun. If you unlock all the levels, you can unlock the watermelon cube, which is really fun. So uh, these are free on the app stores, and I've got loads of cards, and there's a sign outside, and come get me if you want to play these games. So the, the platform, what it does is, if I'm playing in Western PA, if I'm playing in Pittsburgh, it's going to provide me with information, and it might wait to see if I'm good at the game before it provides me with this information. It will provide me relevant information for uh, those uh, resources or those careers or the training in my region. Uh, different from central Pennsylvania, this could easily be like the US map or, or even beyond, but Pennsylvania has about 13 million people, so this is sort of showing how we need to do it regionally. Um, and so just, you know, the business model is we can, we can license this to folks that want to get relevant, actionable information to game players. Um, and then we can also license the data piece because we're collecting valuable data at the, with the player's permission, and, and they want to give permission, um, ideally, because they want to be seen by um, trainings and, and employers, uh, that they are playing these games and that they understand what they're getting into or they have the aptitudes to do something. Um, and this is valuable data. This, is, this might be demographic data. Uh, this might be gameplay data. We can issue certificates that are really uh, valuable for folks um, 
to sort of pre-qualify them for the, the interview or kind of do training, pre-training. So we're leveraging at least four massive trends, which you, which you all know about. Um, you know, the smartphone penetration is near 100% in some of these uh, age demographics. And what's interesting also is how equitable smartphone uh, penetration is. Um, you know, where uh, certain socioeconomic groups have not had access through broadband or computers now have access to their resources, obviously through smartphones. Um, media behavior, you know, there's, in the U.S., I think it's the last time it, that, the, that they had a stat, is like three billion hours a week in the U.S. spent on playing video games. I mean, it's just not that big of a deal for someone in their 20s to be uh, consuming two-minute YouTube videos or, two, you know, quick games and sharing them uh, throughout their day. Um, and, and so we're leveraging, we're leveraging that as well. As well as sort of this learning efficacy, we kind of know generally how to basically put the efficacy of flight simulation into games for whatever we want to communicate. And lastly, the trends in policy uh, and law, which I talked about before, are sort of converging to make this a good time. So that's sort of the why. And I've been thinking about the how uh, over the last few years. Um, how, how are we going to do this, it, you know, uh, strategically? And I think about my role at the state level in workforce development and, and education. Um, and, and there's a model in healthcare, which you probably have heard of, called patient-centered care. And I've spent, uh, you know, I've also spent time in the healthcare system in Pittsburgh, which is large, learning about this, um, which I didn't think was ever going to be relevant. But it turns out when a healthcare system delivers patient-centered care and puts the patient at the center of their decision-making of their health, instead of like doing and telling people uh, what to do with their bodies, but, but putting them in a position where they're part of the care team, and the care team all around them is just like pharmacy, insurance, doctors, surgeons, whatever, put them at the center, that, that the outcomes are better and the costs are lower. And I thought, well, that makes so much sense. But how the heck do you do that? And, and so I think about that from a job seeker, from a youth standpoint, how do we put the youth at the center? We have all these resources and all these laws and policy and everything we want to do and provide to you, but how do we put the youth at the center and empower them to really um, seek this information, motivate them to seek this information and, and learn and sort of know this as, as they grow up. So I think about this from a high, high level, but very practically in our business, strategically we had shifted from training employees to now sort of youth of the world that are not part of an organization. Um, and so, you know, I sat down with my team, I, I sort of like wrote these memos and sort of these little articles internally with my team and I'm like, playtesting. Playtesting is key. We always use playtesting when we develop games. It's the number one thing and I wrote this like mantra on it. Um, this is the key to good solutions. Playtesting, iterating. How the heck are you going to know? And we knew that. 
So I'm thinking, how do I scale this, or how do I really integrate the youth in the playtesting? And so I had this idea. My friends at the workforce development agencies, were, they had this program called Learn and Earn. And it's a summer program where you know, the large companies, the big impressive companies, basically take one intern and they you know, put them somewhere for seven weeks. And the idea is that the interns show up and they learn. Uh, I don't know what they learn, but they show up, they get a paycheck, and the idea is that they have to be there from like eight to five and just sort of modeling what it's like to be in a professional environment because the demographic comes from uh, uh, an environment uh, and an upbringing where they, they don't know what it's like to be in a professional setting. Their parents did, did, didn't come to jobs uh, like that in a traditional sense. So I said, well, the biggest companies are taking one, one of these kids. I want to take 25. So just to set the context, when we did this, we had 20 people at our company. So the experiment was, you know, the next generation, this was sort of the, the impetus behind this playtesting thought, the next generation needs to help me solve this problem. We're not going to solve it. You know, back to that sort of patient center uh, care or job seeker youth center um, uh, exploration. So we took on 25 disadvantaged, low-income youth in our office. And we put them through a rigorous boot camp. In seven weeks, they uh, did a couple really fun things. I took them to the Warhol Museum, the Andy Warhol Museum. I took them all through and sat down and basically said, you know, how are $30 million paintings relevant to you? And just got these amazing, I was really scared about that. Got some amazing, amazing responses and really thoughtful responses. Um, I took them to Carnegie Mellon's Entertainment Technology Center and explained sort of that world. I ran something you might know called the Marshmallow Challenge, which was all about teamwork and iteration, uh, to, you know, for, um, to get the right design. And they built three games. So uh, with our facilitation, with our help, and had to present. And I wanted to show, do I have time? Okay. I want to show one of these games that they essentially designed. So the games were around professionalism skills. How do we use a game to teach professionalism skills? This one happens to do with interviewing. And so that guy is me. And uh, I have a clock. And the meter up top, the E, is an engagement meter. And I need to answer the interviewer's questions appropriately. So what gets you up in the morning? I can say my alarm clock. Um, and meanwhile, by the way, I have to sit up straight. Uh, or the thought of bettering myself, I'm trying to be the best version of myself. For me, that starts at work. The opportunity to make money and become financially independent wakes me up every morning. So I'll choose one. It was an OK answer. I need to make eye contact with her, so I swipe to look at her. So it's about behaviors. Oh, here comes my phone. If I don't get rid of that phone, the game ends. It's like, the, the, that's how you die. <laughs> up, smile, stop fidgeting, sit up straight. So my engagement meter goes, oh, but I gotta, I gotta, I'm losing time because I um, have to answer questions. Uh, do you have any questions for me? So it's not about, oh, my phone, my phone, thanks, 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 thanks. Um, 
It's not so much about the, the exact words of, of the interview, but how I answer. Like, you know, what gets you out of bed at night? My alarm clock is not the best answer. So I'm sorry that it's really hard to concentrate and play this game well at the same time. Um, stop fidgeting. Stop fidgeting. Um, oh, answer her question. Uh, are you, why are you interested in this job? It pays really well and it's close to my house. Um, it all excites me. I know I could deliver results on, oops, set up on day one. <laughs> stop fidgeting. Okay, wow. Um, and I'm going to run out of time here in a second. So what's going to happen? Um, how was your attendance at your previous jobs? I was on time every day. I went when I felt like it. Um, uh, I'm always five minutes early and call as soon as I can. Obviously, I went when I felt like it. Um, but the phone and smile and look at her and it's she's not saying that's not exactly what we're looking for. Um, so, so ooh, ooh, stop fidgeting. What are your weaknesses? Get rid of the phone. And uh, I'm, I have trouble getting up in the morning so I'm often late. Um, I love to help others. Sometimes I find myself doing more work trying to do my best to help my team succeed. Apparently that was a good answer. Uh, and she understands. And that should wrap it up. Thank you for your time. We'll get back to you. So let's see. The interview is over. This was level one. So I got hired. I think you have to get 175. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> um, it gives me a score so every single time. This is replayable. Games are replayable. I can play this again and again and again and sort of try different things. But these are my interview behaviors. This is the amount of times that I sort of reacted in the right way at the right, in the right amount of time. And then the question and answers. This is really sort of like the reflection in games. So powerful for learning. Um, you can go through and sort of say, what gets you up in the morning? And let's go back. I got that one wrong. What's the ideal answer and why? And so it talks about that. And then you know it talks about the ones I got right and why, because maybe I don't know actually why I got that right. Um, and so that it provides that kind of feedback. So uh, just flipping back over to the um, slides. So the results were awesome. The, that game, so they, they did three games. One was how you dress. That was a lot of fun for an interview. Um, and these are free, so you can look them up. Uh, and one was get prepared, like time management. I have an interview tomorrow. What, what, what should I do? Uh, well, maybe I should find out how to get there and see how much time and you know, think about what I'm going to wear and all of these things. Um, that game had over 100,000 downloads with no marketing. And the kids built it. So the benefits of having them make the games were huge. They practice employability skills, so it had nothing to do with building the games and coming to our internship and, and doing this as far as like they're going into game development or you know VR or whatever. It had to do with working on a team, seeing that they accomplished something. That was motivating. Some of the kids went to community colleges. Some of the kids went on to, to welding, which has nothing to do with what we did. So we're using this technology and the experience and the um, the positive power of the collaboration and success for these kids uh, to, to move them on and, and sort of open their eyes to, to what is possible. Um, they also had real credit and real references. So now it's like, you know, you've got one of these kids that are from really bad situations saying, you know what, I know a little bit about software development. Google me. My, uh, one of my games that I worked on um, has 100,000 downloads. 
And so that's, that's some powerful stuff. That's some powerful stuff. So I just want to end. I think I've gone over. Um, I'm OK. Uh, I kind of want to wrap it up, because this is kind of where, where we found ourselves um, uh, you know, in the last year, is how do we take everything that we've learned from Carnegie Mellon University and from the, all these games, now we've done like 200 training games at SimCoach, um, about it's sort of from coaching, all the coaching we've, do, we've done, and understanding that, that model. Um, Workforce development and the conversation and, and, and education in, in the US, again, what do we do with all that? How do we scale what I just showed you? You know, obviously I get calls all the time. Can I come shadow you? Can we come to your office? Can we do, you know, do this? And I would love that, but how do you run a business and do that too? But I know that the power is having the kids solve this problem. And so where we're at right now is pulling this all together, and we've come up with this concept. So what I want to end with is sort of showing you a vision and showing you the concept that we're, we're talking about right now. And this is called the SimCoach Games Workforce Development Innovation Center. It has SimCoach Games at the center of it, which I think will become obvious why in, in, a, in a minute. It could easily be part of a nonprofit. It could be within the museum lab, uh, you, you know. So it, it could work in a in a different different model. So, but imagine a place could be a regional place uh, across across the country and elsewhere, where people come and they play video games and they tinker with VR and AR demos. Uh, as a way to um, collaborate and, and learn, learn about different careers. I mean, they could literally play our career games in the workforce and learn about different careers. Um, but they could also tinker with this really, really cool uh, technology. And if you go in a little bit more, maybe, um, you know, maybe they're connecting with other resources in industry. And so who pays for this? The industries pay for this. The industries, the banks, and the hospitals, and the energy companies, utility companies, and the manufacturing, they want an audience with these kids, with these youth. How does this connection uh, uh, go to jobs and pre-qualifying people and getting them on the right pathways to end up at their companies? And so there's an opportunity to have the companies pay for this and have the kids do actual projects. And so there's precedence for having, not just the example I showed you, but there's precedence for bringing high schoolers in to solve industry problems. How are we going to make this more efficient? And the kids are just like, they come up with these awesome ideas, which can translate into real solutions. But I would argue it's not necessarily about the solution. It's about engaging and empowering and asking the youth to be involved in this conversation. And so the, the youth could make games and make VR experiences ab about just like they did on the internship, but in a big way, sponsored by the industries that, uh, that are in the region that, that um, care about getting folks uh, there. You know, maybe there's training, there's pop-up training and coding and uh, teacher, educational, develop, professional development uh, in these centers. 
Certainly, playtesting will be at the heart of it because that's a lightweight. That's not just coming in and looking at it, but that is a, a lightweight way of uh, getting people involved in this process by forcing them to, to not only be playtesters, but then turn around and run the playtesting experience to start to understand the, what I would argue the most important part of the software development process or the design process is, is in that, that playtesting, and they could run that as a way to learn, or if they want to get more involved, they could intern at this center and work to solve real problems, you know, maybe using games or other cool technology. And they could also help to figure out how to market it to their peers uh, and, and how to spread it, um, you know, to, to really make it authentic. Uh, and so the idea with these games is really, you know, play a two-minute over time, pepper it, match the way they consume um, the media anyway, and so that in the mindset, in the headspace of youth growing up, they really know what the opportunities are and generally what the skills would be needed and what the pathways are. So that's where I end. Thank you very much. Jess, um, fabulous examples of experiential learning and project-based learning there. Uh, I just love the way you engaged that, that group of disadvantaged youth to create something that meant something important to them. That's just spot on. Loved it. Hey, um, it's time now. Oh, sorry. Once, once again, please thank Jess for coming all the way from Pittsburgh. It's time now to go to morning tea. Um, if you're like me, you're looking forward to your second cup of coffee for the day. <laughs> um, so uh, after morning tea, we have a panel around diversity, inclusion, and personalized learning. Uh, uh, we're going to be using Slido for some questions, so um, jump onto sly.do. Uh, uh, the code is U224, in case you didn't get that yesterday. Um, if you're thinking of any questions as we go along, then um, uh, please enter them in the system, vote, up, vote for the questions you like. Um, we'll see you back here at 10.55. Oh, 10.35, sorry. <laughs> Long morning tea. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. Um, it's time for another panel discussion, um, and this one's uh, a really important conversation for us to be having. And I'm going to say right up front that I feel a little bit out of my depth talking about um, diversity and inclusion being that middle class white guy that I am. But um, we've got some really diverse perspectives here and, and that diversity is really incredibly important to our design of the future of learning where we need to be going. Uh, one of the critical issues with the status quo is that there's significant inequities um, causing people to be marginalised or excluded from quality learning, uh, quality learning experiences. Uh, when that diversity of perspectives and thinking is absolutely critical to creating a resilient future for, for humanity. In recent years, there's been a real push within education in the right direction, recognise that, uh, towards embracing diversity in education and uh, towards personalisation of learning as well. But those trends don't always converge in the right ways to serve learners. Uh, we need to um, consider people of all walks of life in this conversation um, with a diverse range of diverse needs, if you will. Um, learning issues, physical or intellectual issues, um, multiple styles of learning or multiple intelligences, multiple cultures, languages, and of course, genders. So to personalize learning, 
for such diverse learning needs challenge us, challenges us to create something better, a way of delivering learning which meets those needs and is also tailored to individuals, and that's really critical. So for this morning's panel discussion, um, what, I'm well, what I'd like to welcome is some diverse backgrounds, careers, and perspectives on these issues. So um, please welcome to the panel this morning Shailen Patel from MYOB, uh, Margaret Pickering from Stickman Media, and David Glover from Unitech. Come up to the stage, please. So first off, I'd like to um, start with just asking you all to just give us a little bit of a, a brief about yourself and what your role is and um, how this fits into the future of learning, please. Oh, sorry. I'll kick off. Uh, so thank you, Hamish. Um, yeah, my name is Shailen. I manage the education channel for MYAB. So for those that do not know, MYAB is an online accounting software company. Um, my role within that is how do we work with... Uh, different education institutions, organisations to help engage their students um, and help them with their education journey um, and then transition into the workforce. Thank you, Hamish. Um, so I'm from, uh, I have a company called Stickman Media. I have another company called MTech Games as well, which is slightly different. Um, but similar. <laughs> um, Stickman does work for almost anybody actually. We work predominantly with entrepreneurs. We make games for mobile console and PC. We make mobile apps. We do some IoT work. We work with AR and VR um, and we do a lot of work with um, anything to do with engagement, gamification, enterprise gamification, that kind of thing. We've been really fortunate that we've had um, some really really diverse um, people to work with, with really diverse interests and ideas, and so we've gained quite a, um, a wide, wide-ish, I guess, perspective on what's out there, what people are doing, and we kind of get to ride that wave with them, which is really cool. Kia ora um, called David Glover, Taku Ingoa. Uh, occasional author and consultant on the, the future of work and education. Um, I've been involved with education technology for a long time and I'm an investor and director of a number of companies in that space. But really this session I think is more interesting to talk from the context of uh, my day job at Unitech. So Unitech's the largest polytechnic uh, based in Auckland. We have um, 14,000 students, half of them um, are part-time, so they're either working part-time and studying part-time or they're working full-time and studying part-time or they're working full-time and studying part-time in some cases. We have some people working 80, 100-hour weeks when you combine that. We also have 50% of our students are first in family and tertiary, which means their, their, their family backgrounds don't have a deep understanding of, the, of the, the jump to tertiary and the challenges. So therefore, the sort of support that we have to put in uh, for those, those learners compared with your traditional university audience is, is quite tremendous. And finally, as those of you who will know about Auckland, a third of Aucklanders were born in Auckland, a third were born outside Auckland, and a third were born overseas. So we have 73 languages spoken among our student population. Mm. Uh, so we have and a, a very big supported learning special needs education unit as well. So. Um, I may look like the pale white guy, but 
the, the, the United Nations of Unitex that I work in is just a model of future diversity and, and all the challenges that come with it. Great, thank you. Um, so can I ask you some questions, uh, throw it out to all of you. Um, what role does technology play in personalising learning now, and what's that, how's that likely to change in the near future? Does somebody want to jump on it? What we find is that um, because of the diversity of technology that's actually available and just the sheer availability of information is that people can now get in and design something without having to wait for it. So it means that um, the technology's there, people have ideas that can utilise the technology. They're very often um, you know, experts in their own field or you know it can be quite a narrow focus or quite a broad focus but it means that people can actually get in they see a need they can get in and they can get it done without spending an absolute fortune and so um, that the technology the broadness of the technology and the availability of it allows for um, more diversity of solutions I think to be developed right Sarah? I think also you know what's really been highlighted over sort of the yesterday and, and this morning is that remembering that technology is a, an enabler um, and, and how do we utilise that um, and we've seen some great examples obviously then how can we also scale that um, for access and I think one of the things I've learnt always you know sort of highlighted to me is that um, awareness is, is going to be a big part through a lot of the things that are out there already that we can use. Um, so it's not necessarily even we have to find new tech um, uh, and, and or create something uh, because it's probably already out there. And so just getting that access, awareness to to it, and then how do we bring that into fits um, us over in in, in New Zealand um, is is the, the challenge then moving forward. Um, to to really utilise it, so new ways of, of using the technology out there um, to suit us. Um, so I already talked a little bit about the, the Unitech student cohort. We obviously also have a very high Pacific and, and Maori um, student base, and, and many of the cultures that we teach to, kanai kanai face to face is their preferred method of learning, and we have to acknowledge that, and it's very tempting for a, an institute of technology in particular to impose technologies on learners. So I think we have to be very sensitive to that and um, understand the learner need. Um, Jessica talked about putting the patient at the centre of the health sy system in the US and we're very much trying to put the student back in the centre of, of our operation. That, so we're, we're not a, 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 an F's fee collection company, we're not a um, a, a qualifications issuing organisation. We're not a property business. We only exist for students. But actually, it's, it's quite hard to remember that every day with everything else that's, that's going on. And with a relatively large workforce, 800 staff, 400 of them teaching, trying to get down to the level of implementation and consistency around quality use of a new technology is very, very challenging. So, for instance, um, I think Master talked about... Um, instead of personalised learning, moving more to adaptive learning. So there are things in Moodle and some of the other tools that we have that we can move to adaptive learning pathways 
So the learning is delivered on the fly according to how the learner learns. But the retraining of our staff and our systems and the investment in professional development to put that in, keep it in, and keep it at a high standard is probably the big challenge. It's not the technology per se. So following on from that then, David, um, how well do you think Unitech are applying technology to meet those diverse needs? Um, well, I, I have a personal theory which I've experimented on in conversation with a few people. They tend to agree. I think the further you go up the education system in New Zealand, the more the larger, the more bureaucratic, and the, and the slower to change it is. You know, we see a lot of innovation, early childhood, primary, then we move through intermediate and high, and then you, you, you hit these large-scale um, enterprises, which have legacy IT systems, for instance. You know, we would not pick Moodle right now if we were starting. We would not pick PeopleSoft as our you know, god of central services and finance and HR and payroll, but because the larger institution started way back then and the cost of change is very high. So I suspect we're not a leader in this space, but uh, given as an, an institute of technology, we probably should be. But the, the, the technology change we're seeing, and it's usually called democratization of technology, exactly. making it accessible to all of us. Yeah. If you've got a great idea to apply technology to a, to a need like diversity, then you can. Yeah, and, the, yeah. and people really are, which That's is fantastic. really cool. Yeah, yeah. it's really yeah. exciting. Yeah. 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 I think that um, there's been some great examples of uh, schools, institutions, teachers really embracing the, the technology and implementing it. And again, I go back to, I think, awareness of that. So um, we saw yesterday the social media um, example at one of the schools, part of the, the BOMA initiative. Um, well, it was very impressive. Uh, I've been lucky enough to um, go to almost in junior college, uh, Nick Patterson, for any of those, anyone in the audience that knows him, has done great stuff with his junior cohort in bringing in um, the latest technology. Um, but beyond that, they're actually the people providing solutions for businesses. Um, and so they don't need industry, industry need them. And so he's turned it on his head and really utilizing the, the capabilities of his children using technology, but um, going out to industry and saying, what's your problem? My kids can solve it. And he's going across the country and then and even abroad with this. And so there are pockets of examples out there, um, but it's probably, again, how do we scale that? How do we get that access to other schools, um, other teachers that want to do it, don't necessarily know how to, or you know, what are those first initial steps? Um, so... I think there are some very good examples, probably not as much as we want to see. You've mentioned a couple of times now about scaling these technologies and scaling the personalization. I think this is a really critical point about the technology. If we apply it properly, then we can um, scale it to a much larger population, because once we personalize, it becomes very, very hard to control everybody's personal needs. But um, uh, do you have any thoughts around how we might apply technologies that are available now to, to engage with diverse learner perspectives and engage them more fully with their learning um, and scale it? So I think there's a, a couple of things. Um, you know, I, I made a note, Marcia mentioned about tax breaks for, for those that um, want to look at um, you know, tech cats out there and how do they, they bring that in. Um, I think, how do we also 
um, involve parents into, into that conversation and so that it's not just from industry or teachers, but you know, even at home the message is getting through and so you're getting um, uh, students are uh, hearing it from people that they trust most as well, their, their family with regards to how do they um, in, engage with it. Uh, I think it's a, an issue like businesses face in terms of, of scalability. Uh, I think that's where you can start initially. Hopefully the guys here have a few more thoughts on, on where to go as well. So one of the things that I was thinking about is that whilst diversity is super important and being able to, to meet the needs of so many diverse people is really, really important. I was thinking about the things that I've learned, the things that I've become really good at. And to kind of flip it on its head, it's, it's sort of like we... we sometimes feel as though we need to be able to provide a one-size-fits-all solution. We need to be able to provide a solution that will meet the needs of all of these diverse people. And I'm not sure that that's necessarily always the case. I'm, having done a lot of this kind of software, a lot of these things, and learnt a lot of things on the other side, what I'm kind of thinking now when I think about it, um, so I'm a dressage coach, and I have this really diverse background um, in, in, in how I learn and how I train and how I train horses and how I train people. And that goes from everything from horsemanship to classical dressage to um, personal development to all kinds of really way out stuff. And I've had some amazing um, coaches along the way. Not one of those coaches, although at the time they filled a need for me, not one of those people or not one of those modalities, if you like, was enough to actually to get me to where I was now. And I thought, well, you know, when I was learning long division, you know, it wasn't just that my teacher taught me long division. I had a book that had examples in it as well. I had um, my mother, who kind of struggled through teaching me because I wasn't really all that <laughs> great with it. And then my father, who was a really good teacher. So I had all of these um, different information inputs, if you like, that kind of, um, even for something as, as straightforward and narrow as long division, that that got me to where I needed to go. So there wasn't one solution that would have got me to long division immediately to suit my needs right then at the time. It still needed to be a few different solutions. So, so different strokes for different folks and yeah, and you, multiple you need solutions. A, yeah, multiple yeah. solutions. You might need you, you might need you know you might find five YouTube videos and a teacher and then another teacher and a book and a video and a you know you know mm. what I mean. It's mm. it's not necessarily. I think that we focus too much on trying to provide a solution that has all the solutions, and I don't know that we can necessarily. I think it's it's really good to focus on um, one or two things at a time and then allow the other things to to come in Great. to build on that. Great. Yeah, I agree with Margaret that if you can break it down into manageable problems and solve them quickly instead of making them so big you never get round to it or you've got to set up a huge committee that recommends a budget that nobody ever has, um, that certainly happens. Uh, one quick example on that, we have about 1,700 international students um, at, at Unitech um, from a large number of countries. And one of the biggest challenges for an international student is before they arrive um, and managing their expectations. And we, we knew this problem and we would send an email 
welcome newsletters and things like that. But we came across an app that somebody had invented somewhere overseas called iCent, I-C-E-N-T, which is it's a single-minded proposition to tell international students everything they need to know before they come and then to create a channel of communication with them once they join. So there's, on the app it says, before you arrive, this is what New Zealand's like, this is what you do at the airport, this is how you get a taxi, all these things that this particular group of students really needs that the rest of us take for granted. And now they're on campus, we can send them direct messages that there is a, a, a culturally um, engaging event. We'll, we'll do a lot of events around Chinese and uh, Indian um, anniversaries uh, through the year, for instance. So that's just one specific great solution, um, which we couldn't have invented ourselves, and we certainly couldn't have, have done as well. But I think there's probably a broader issue I'd just like to touch on as well, just thinking about particularly schools and communities, not, not just the tertiary space. Um, digital access is still a huge issue in this country. We still do have a digital divide. We, have, we keep our library open until 10 o'clock because students need Wi-Fi, and they don't have it at home. We lend them a laptop when they come to study because they don't have one at home. Or the one that they were told at not leaving to buy is not suitable for the job. Um, so I think there's some fundamentals around uh, addressing um, digital access and digital equity before we can even get too carried away with all the fantastic solutions that only part of the student population currently can actually access on a consistent manner. I think that's really important to, um, to consider how we might give these tools to underrepresented demographics and people who don't have access. Um, do you want to continue that conversation? Uh. I think um, just following on what, what David said about that, I know um, a lot of schools now do have access, um, especially in the regions in terms of the internet, but then they don't have the tools to access it. Um, and so there's a bit of a gap there. Um, just thinking, okay, well, you've got broadband or uh, ultra-fast fibre in your area, but then the school's infrastructure or tools doesn't necessarily have um, what they need to, to access it. Um, if I also think from um, MYB's point of view, so a number of schools, universities teach MYB, but we um, haven't always made it simple for, for them to do so. Um, and so we've got to think about as well what does um, the teacher need, the, the, the school need, making sure that it is important. So we're trying to work on that if we want our product to be part of um, the, the teaching in the, in, in the accounting space. And so then working together, um, this is from a obviously selfish MYB industry point of view, um, well, so that it's also easier for the teacher to then implement as well, um, not just the student to use. Um, and so that um, we're, we're solving both our customers' problem, not just the students or not just the teachers, but together. Should we go to Slido and see if we've got some questions from the audience? Ashvarya? Um, we do have a couple of questions from the audience. Uh, this is my personal favorite. Do we still need universities? <laughs> <laughs> no, not when you've got polytechnics. 
<laughs> um, I, I think this goes to the heart of what is learning for. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm in the vocational education space most of my life, and I thoroughly believe that a large part of education is about getting a job. But is that the only thing it's about? Um, what about the search for beauty, the search for knowledge, the for philosophy, deep research? Not all of these have immediate quantifiable employment outcomes. So I think you know, economic success is, is really important for, for a culture and a society, but it's not the only story. Uh, so I suspect universities will still have a role to play uh, in that. However, I do think there's a wake-up call that we're already experiencing in the, in the polytechnic sector that will wash through to the wider university sector, and some of them will reinvent themselves and are doing successfully, and some will just become also rens. And given that we now essentially have a, a market-based model where the student incurs a debt, they have choice, and they could choose not to go at all these days because there are other viable opportunities. So I think it's a mixed future. I think from a purely um, people point of view, I think that there's always um, immense value from people coming together. So, you know, coming together and, and learning stuff together and discussing stuff together. Um, I have a friend who went to Oskild University in Denmark, and it's a, it's a bit of a, um, an unusual university, or it was at that time, because it really, there was another university that she could have gone to, she's an accountant. Um, and that was about the numbers and the columns and the this and this and this, and it was all very fact-based, but Oskild is about um, blowing it apart. And, and having some really interesting discussions. So it's more about people kind of sitting down and having really, really um, useful, um, diverse conversations about things that, that don't happen if you're sitting at home with, uh, with a, an iPad or a laptop or in, the, in those sort of situations. So I think that the, the people thing is, is super important as far as university is concerned. I don't know about from any other point of view, but, but certainly from the, from the people perspective. Yeah, that cohort experience is really important, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And just to quickly add, so I think, yes, um, there is still place for universities, but it's not the only place. Um, and I think when I was growing up, I was always going to university. There, I wasn't aware of any other options um, out there. I think there are a lot more options now for, for young people, and how do we make that? So sort of digressing from the, the topic, but... With regards to um, higher education, um, I've been to some career fairs at, at secondary schools where there's only the universities, and so students aren't aware of even the polytechnics, the ITOs, and we know the changes are happening, but regardless what the other options are out there, and so um, I think that has got to be presented. Um, we saw now with the, the previous presentation in terms of you know, gamification and, and putting jobs um, in front of students and then them you know, practicing it um, to work out actually, well, there's a career there within a particular industry that has high needs. Um, and so I think if we can then use technology to present all those options, um, uh, will mean that the child can, can make the decision as to, okay, I'll do this now or I'll go to university, but then there's also other options after that. <coughs> Excuse me, just so that um, they're aware before they make 
the, the choice um, to whichever path they go down. Great. I think that's, um, just to reflect back, that's one of the core um, principles behind uh, Learning City Christchurch, which um, Cheryl started, is to, to create that smorgasbord of options, of learning opportunities that are available to, to meet diverse needs. And I think that's really important. Uh, just on, on that point, there's also um, a company called Study Spy, which has done a lot of good work, um, a platform which has taken all the options out there to study whatever subject or, or career, and you can type it in and it will give you all a breakdown, um, also with cost, etc. as well, so you can work out which path is going to be suitable for you. So um, just like um, Learning Christchurch and, and Study Spy, I'm sure there's others out there, and so again, doing that research and getting that in front of the students so they can then work out, um, this is how I get there. Mm. Mm. Another one. Um, oh. oh, somebody says we need students on this panel today. Uh, but another question for you guys: Do we need to know a learner's path or purpose before we personalize that learning journey? Simple answer: No. Um, I think uh, their purpose and or, or passion um, they may not know till further down the line. Um, I, if I think about what I do now, I'm not an academic or a teacher, no accounting background, never worked for a tech company, but look after education for an accounting software company. And so, um, and if NYIB wanted someone with those specific backgrounds, that they didn't um, clearly get that. And so, I've now built a passion for what I do um, last time I spoke to a student was when I was a student, and now I've spoken to tens of thousands in the last few years, so I see my career going forward there, but I, was, I studied economics because I like maths. I tell people I never really used it. I probably have more than I know. Um, and so I think now with people having squiggly lines, it's a lot more difficult, um, but if we can try to find out what they are interested in or semi-interested in, and then have the tools for them to guide themselves um, with coaching and mentoring from parents, teachers, business people. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. I don't know about you. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure we all come in fully formed uh, in, into the education sector. And it's, it's sort of a, you know, a patient's doctor analogy, you know, I've got a problem or an illness or something needs solving and we're here to fix you and I sort of quite reject that in terms of what the purpose of education is. Um, you know, there are concepts around serendipitous learning and double loop learning which is you get big benefits from things that you don't know you're going to get benefits through until you're on the learning journey. We've all, we've all, all experienced that. So. Um, I, I think um, I would certainly say we can do things in learning design to open it up to diverse learners with diverse motivations uh, and instead of creating very linear learning journeys that are that sort of doctor's prescription, you start here and you go there. But it has to be upstream in the learning design even before we get to the delivery that, that you've got to create open learning frameworks and structures and, and, and different ways of learning that will appeal to different learners, whether it's face-to-face -face or social or distance or whatever. 
Um, and that, that's a key pedagogical issue because how can you cram more uh, pieces into that engine and, and still make, make sure that the, the, the bus drives uh, effectively? So I, I'd say no as well. So, well, I hardly didn't get no education, so um, I'm kind of a, in a my, my sister went and got a DPhil at, at Oxford University, and I, I dropped out of school when I was 15, I think. Um, and so that whole kind of learning pathway to me is kind of irrelevant. That's, that's my diversity. <laughs> I, I mean, I really didn't like school at all. I didn't get on with school. I certainly wasn't going to do anything at university. And so um, so for me, that, that learning path has continued. Um, I wanted to be, um, I was going to be a classical musician, I was a classical cellist, I ended up actually being a rock musician, I ended up being a dressage trainer, I ended up doing graphic design, I had a web design company, um, I trained horses and people for years and years and years, I worked with intellectually disabled people, now I have a software development company, God knows how that happened. Um, and, and so none of that learning pathway was remotely relevant to me whatsoever, and I'm really pleased that it wasn't. You know, if I designed that from the beginning, um, then I think it, I think I would not have had um, such a, a you know a, a, a squiggly line. I'm, I'm really grateful for the squiggly line. So <laughs> that's a great squiggly line. Yeah, that's cool. It's, it's pretty Very squiggly. squiggly. <laughs> I, I'm sure it's going to keep squiggling. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love that, um, David. You're saying, yeah, you, what are you going to do when you grow up? And as I said yesterday, I've been trying to explore this for 30 years, but. Uh, what what role does education play in helping people to understand what their passions are? And that's a, a, jo a, a journey we're all, we're all taking, right? Well, I'm trying to remember my Latin education, which shows how old I am, but I think educo, the verb, means to lead out. Um, so it's, it's about um, supporting human beings, let's not call them learners or students, or what we call them in tertiary, efts. <laughs> It sort of takes the, the fuzzy, difficult, squishy people bit out of it, if you call them EFTs. Um, but um, in, in terms of um, the, the approach to that, um, I, I, I think education... Why are we all in education? We're not in education to get rich, are we? Okay? We're in education because we, we have experienced enough of it, either giving it, receiving it, being party to it, seeing a beneficiary of it to know that it has the power to change the world in a positive direction. And that's much more than fixing a person in the right job. Um, so I'm in love with the big idea of education. I'm incredibly frustrated with the reality of it almost every day. Um, but as long as I can keep that, that true north of leading out, leading forward, taking people somewhere really interesting they've never been before, and hopefully they'll enjoy the journey along at the same time, I, th I think we need to hold on to that. That's um, the big idea for why we do this. I mean, this is what distinguishes us as a species from any other species on the planet, that we can continually relearn, reinvent. This is how we got from the African plains to the, the continents of Northern Europe and eventually ended up down here. I mean, this, this is core to who we are as a species. Mm. Uh, it's, it's, it's a big idea that, that we all work in and, and love. And I think just following on from that, what we learnt this morning about 85% of jobs uh, won't be in invented already by 2030 or then even um, Jessica's job title of Chief Games Officer. Um, I mean, one awesome job title and, and most companies have the, you know, the traditional C-suite, but uh, 
I've not seen that one before, but so how do we, I think, encourage the curiosity, the creativity for the young people coming through to create those 85% of jobs that aren't invented yet to come up with job titles or, or definitions that aren't there traditionally. Um, even for myself, uh, two years ago, I had to, I rewrote my own position description because what I was actually hired for, I, I rarely did or wasn't doing. And so I had to, it was more for admin purposes and HR, but even just to help me clarify actually what do I do you know, what's my purpose and my role within the company. And so I think if we can then get students, learners, young people, um, us, anyone, to have the skills to think outside the box, um, think about what we actually want to do, and then how do we create the opportunities for that to be created? I think we've got time for one more question. Um, Aish, uh... Yeah, sure. Um, students with focus in sensory issues like ASD and ADHD can struggle to focus on online games. Any experience with solutions for this? Sorry, can you repeat that? Oh. Students with focus and sensory issues like ASD, ADHD can struggle to focus on online games. Any experience with solutions for this? Um, so we haven't worked on anything um, specifically for that, but there are definitely a lot of solutions out there and a lot of people who are working um, on those kind of things um, at the moment through using um, various technologies. Um, VR can be really useful um, for some of those people um, because it's immersive, because it's, um, it can be very much tailor-made to, um, to suit um, a, a, a a set of needs, I guess, if you like. Um, and because um, things like games or gamified solutions can be um, paced accordingly, I guess, you can, you can pace yourself or the game can help you pace um, yourself, um, those kind of solutions can be um, very useful. But certainly there's a lot out there and a lot of people working on it at the moment. Yeah, I think um, if you check out Apple's um, solutions for special needs, they have a lot of really interesting ones. So, for instance, there's one that takes out the clutter from websites, takes out all the ads and all the distractions. So, for instance, some autistic students would, would find that amount of noise cluttering. So that there are, as Margaret said, a number of solutions that, that are out there. And actually, the pe people who are developing solutions um, for, the, for, for students with, with special needs are incredibly passionate about those solutions and will go to the ends of the earth to spread the news uh, and, and, and to help. So it's, it's, it's very powerful meeting and talking to those people. And just one that I just picked up, which is not specific to that audience, but a, a, a Microsoft are now experimenting with, with um, a, a, an AI for on, on the phone app for visually impaired people and blind people. So it will actually tell them what's going on in the room or it will read um, text for them if they hold the phone up. So there's a lot of innovation happening in that space and it's very impressive. I think Microsoft's been doing quite a bit of work with the immersive reader as well and being able to focus people's attention and get rid of all that clutter. I think it's really important, yeah. 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 I tell a lie actually, we did do some work on, a, um, on, a, on an app for uh, people with autism. Um, you just reminded me then, and, and it, there are some actually some very simple solutions out there. Um, 
that, that just do take away the clutter. So, you know, for, for somebody with severe autism, then looking at somebody's face and trying to read their expressions is too much. So to be able to do that on an app instead, represent that in a very simple way without the distractions of um, having to interact or um, directly um, or, or taking in too much information, too much stimulus is really important. So there are some really simple ways of, um, of doing some really cool stuff for a wide variety of people. Somewhat ironically, perhaps, um, Ashvaria, who's been asking the questions here, and uh, Hamish Alankani, I can't see where you are, Hamish, um, at the back here, are working on uh, VR solutions for um, students who are autistic and need to um, control their stimuli and um, interact in a different way, and there's some, some fabulous research work going on there in collaboration between the two, so well worth um, checking them out and talking to them. Um, just one final thing, then. Um, uh, what are we doing wrong now, and what course corrections do you think we need to make for the future? Because we're bound to be doing things wrong. I, I still think access has, is a huge issue, which, but I've already talked about that. Uh, and then I think, you know, we have to reskill our own workforce. And we're talking about, you know, us delivering solutions to every other workforce that needs reskilling. But when I look at, you know, our 400 fantastic academics at Unitech. They, they were not built or trained for what is needed now. Uh, and we are working really hard to try and refresh our professional development programs. So we're, we're lifting all boats, and, um, rather than having two or three rock stars or heroes that everybody talks about in models, but most of the students never get to see. Um, you know, we, 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 so if we lift the average, we're doing a great job. Uh, but that is a big job to do and you know if you think of the wider teacher workforce and great there's digital curriculum and PD programs but it's a huge effort to, to reskill ourselves to deliver what, what's, what's needed in this new environment. I think I agree you know things like access those kind of things um, you know, there's a lot that needs to be done but I think that we're doing an enormous amount I think that um, that we need to kind of stop and breathe for a moment and kind of pat ourselves on the back just for a second and remember that actually we're not ever going to get this done. This is not going to be, um, you know, we're not going to figure out what is the solution to future education. We are it. We are in it. We are it. Now we're talking about it. As we're talking about it now, we are creating it um, for ourselves and for our children and, and future generations and so on and so forth. And they'll continue to create it. So there won't be any end point. So I think it's really important that we actually acknowledge that we're, we're not trying to run to catch up. We're actually, we are the wave. We don't need to be, um, you know, running, trying to, trying to get on the surfboard. We're actually, all, we are the wave already. Um, and just doing this, that's, um, that's a huge part of it. So I think we need to bear in mind that we're, we're not, yeah, we just don't need to run. <laughs> we are the wave, it's really important. Uh, agree with what, what um, has already been said and, and how do we keep embracing it and I was just thinking um, yesterday about um, in particular going back to, to the social media um, and, and how the, the school have the, the mad team there and so I don't think I'm on the side where it's how do we teach uh, our students to um, use their phones, etc., and not banning it. And even if we go back to last week and, and the, the climate marches, uh, I think social media had a big play in that to, to get 
so many people, all different backgrounds, ages, to participate. And, you know, it's not, the majority wouldn't have seen that from mainstream media, the news. It was on social media. And so you see the really good side of it um, and, and the impact it can have there. And so how do we take those examples and then and bring that in? And so embracing the, the tech further um, and, and using it in, in a, a right way um, to, to have a, a bigger impact um, than it already is. Great. I think that's a great point to finish on. Look, I'd like to thank you very much for being a part of the discussion today. Diverse perspectives and diverse roles and diverse careers. I just love it. So um, please join with me in thanking the panel for their perspectives. Thank you. It's my pleasure to introduce to you Jason Swanson, a friend and colleague from Pittsburgh, uh, the, the final of the three J's from P. Um, Jason came last year to the Future of Learning conference. He was sort of the, 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 the third member of the, the triumvirate of the organisers, myself, Hamish and, and Jason, and uh, so he's very much part of um, our work. Jason's the Director of Strategic Foresight at KnowledgeWorks with a particular interest in generating community-specific insights to help plan for the future of learning and work. He's also on the board of Remake Learning, which is uh, a connection to Learning City Christchurch. Um, another thing, though, is that uh, the Seeds podcast, Stephen Moe has been doing some recording of our, uh, our key uh, note people, our three Js, and Jason's one is already up online on the Seeds podcast, so uh, check it out. He's, um, he's uh, already famous in Christchurch. Today, though, Jason's going to help us navigate the future of learning and use the latest KnowledgeWorks Forecast 5.0 to share some of his thoughts. So please welcome Jason Swanson. So they say uh, you, you never parachute without a spare chute. So this is my spare chute. I'm going to leave this here. So. Hi, everyone. Uh, so as Cheryl said, my name is Jason Swanson. I'm the Director of Strategic Foresight with the KnowledgeWorks Foundation. Uh, my superpower, more accurately, my obsession, is futures thinking. So I am thrilled to be back in Christ Church. Um, it, it's an honor to be here to share our work with you. Uh, I came last year. I fell deeply, deeply in love with this learning community. So thank you for welcoming me back. Um, and it, it's just amazing to, to see this conference happen again. Um, we go to a lot of these things uh, as part of our work as futurists. This is the only conference I have been to that has a sole legitimate focus on the future of learning. So I want to celebrate that fact and celebrate you all as change agents and people that are very actively working to shape the future. And just to thank you for all your hard work and energy. And to thank you, uh, Cheryl, Hamish, and Louisa for really doing the hard work of, of putting this together again. I know how much effort you put into this, so thank you very much. So for our 38 minutes uh, together, I want to propose a talk in five acts. So the first act will be about vision. The second act will be about change. The third act will be about the future. The fourth will be about implications. And I'd like to end with a challenge. So if that sounds good, um, let's get to it.
So Cheryl mentioned, uh, I work for a national nonprofit headquartered in Cincinnati, Ohio, in the United States called KnowledgeWorks. We are a group of positive deviants doing all that we can to transform learning. So much so that our core belief is that we are striving to create the future of learning together. So we work very, very deeply uh, with states throughout the US, helping them think about the future of learning, helping them move policy, and then ultimately working on the ground to implement those visions uh, that they began thinking through. So for us, uh, the main lever of transformation here is personalized competency-based learning. It's part of my own vision as a futurist. This is my preferred future, looking at student-centered learning ecosystems. And sort of this mode of, mode of um, application to learning is that first step towards uh, broader and deeper transformation. So uh, quick show of hands, who attended Hamish's session yesterday on visioning? Yes, quite a few. I heard it, I heard it was awesome. Um, I wanted to go. I was, I was uh, doing that podcast interview. Um, but I wanted to start off by talking about the importance of vision. So vision, preferred futures, aspirations, they act like our North Star. And you see some of the notes that were captured yesterday, but I, I want to just take a couple minutes, turn to the person next to you, and I want you to describe what you want for the future of learning. And I, I don't want it to be really in transactional terms, like, you know, I think it'd be really cool if it was really personalized. That's awesome. That's a bit of a normative future now. What I want you to do is to, to describe that future in bold adjectives. I want it to be filled with joy. I want it to be fluid. I want it to be human-centered. Um, so really quickly, just spend like a minute or two. The clock is literally ticking. Uh, and what bold adjectives come to mind when we talk about the future of learning? <laughs> All right, great. So I'm curious to know, what did you come up with? And I, I, I know quite a few of you here, so this could get dangerous, so I'll start just pointing to people. So if anybody would like to volunteer, I don't have a hat to give you, I'm sorry. Um, but what did you generate? What, what comes up for you? What bubbles up? What, what's accessible? Exciting. Free. Beautiful. Anything else? Perfect. You can bring your authentic self. I heard fun. One at a time. Over here? Make your own adventure. Continuous. Awesome. So I want you to keep those adjectives in mind, right? So when we start to get to change and the possibility and implication piece, right? When you start to think of your own ideas for the future of learning and the possibilities, new roles, new services, new offerings, new partnerships, if you find yourself kind of going down a path where that future that you're describing, the solutions that you're talking about, don't have those very qualities that you just mentioned, that is probably, the not, probably not the right solution, right? So I'm really fond of asking this question, right? Because one of the things that we don't have uh, in terms of education broadly, is a really strong, uniting, aspirational vision. We all agree we want it to be different, but you know, beyond that, we, we all have different ideas of how. Um, last year, I started asking this question at the start of all of my talks. I had one gentleman during um, uh, like the second time I asked this. He stood up and he goes, you know what I want for, for the future of learning? No, what, what do you want? And he goes, I want it to be sexy. 
And I thought that was brilliant. The whole room laughed because they, you know, they'd never heard that. You know, it's usually yeah, we're full of purpose and joyful, but if you think about making learning appealing and trendy and sexy, what a powerful lever of change that is on the path of transformation. So anyway, keep those vision statements in mind and let's start talking about change. So it is our belief um, that we are in the midst of an era shift. An era shift is quite simply stated as moving from one point in history to another with certain defining features and characteristics. So underneath that really simplistic uh, definition hides really, really deep change, right? And we heard uh, really out of the gate, right, Hamish talking about accelerating technologies. And it's our view that because of the uh, exponential advances in digital technologies, we are being pushed into a new era of living. And to us, that defining feature is the need to partner with the code in our digital devices to make sense of the world around us. So we've taken, it to, taken to calling this new era the era of partners in code. And we can expect, as we get farther into this new era, as the rate of technological acceleration continues to quicken, uh, that we're gonna have to ask some really, really deep questions, like the questions that are being asked at this conference, right? So we're gonna ask how we relate to existing institutions, how we re relate to one another, and how we even relate to ourselves as biological beings. So as we look at this, this new era, if we look at really accelerating change, it's our view that education can really lead from the front. And that education's role in supporting the healthy development of young people laying the foundations for effective lifelong and life-wide learning, and really thinking anew about community vitality is going to be increasingly crucial. So much so that we believe the act of looking ahead, of conferences like this, of, of discussions like this, are critical, right? It's an act of stewardship, not just for the young people that are gonna go through these, uh, these systems of education, but really, they're critical for our entire futures. So to put a finer point on this idea of exponential change and, and kind of think about the, the urgency to have these conversations and do something, I propose this simple GIF, right? Um, I've never seen something that illustrates the power of exponentials uh, quite as well, in that things start slow, right? Um, the, those really simple sets of doublings are, are measurable, they're quantifiable, we can wrap our arms around it. And then really quickly we, we hit this, these amounts of doublings that none of us can, can quantify, and then all of a sudden everything looks different. It's like that old adage, how did you go broke, right? I went broke really slow and really, really fast. All of a sudden everything was different. So if we're being driven into this new era, this, this large story of change writ large across really the face of the globe, and it's our belief that accelerating technologies are driving us into the future. Um, it, it's very true to say and to assume that that's not the only factor uh, really acting to push and pull us into, into the future, right? So change happens everywhere. So our most recent forecast looks at five drivers of change that we believe have special promise for education and learning, but also uh, really issue special challenges as well. Now, word of caution here, all of these changes are external. They're exogenous change to education. So all of our forecasting work typically takes the view of inbound change, all that change that's happening out in the world because it's educators 
And because people interested in education typically have an intuitive sense of what's changing in their field, but very few of us have time to think about things like AI and learning, right? Gamification, things like environmental volatility. It's enough just to keep the school going and the classroom going. So those drivers, uh, writ large, are automating choices, as Masha really teed up for us. This is the, the idea that uh, machine learning and algorithms and artificial intelligence are automating many choices in our lives. Uh, the idea of civic superpowers, right, that we're looking at new digital tools to really engage in, in civic interaction in new and novel ways. We're looking at this idea of accelerating brains, the ways that we intentionally and unintentionally begin to play around with our own cognition. Toxic Narratives really explores this idea of misaligned metrics of success contributing to chronic health issues. And Remaking Geographies looks at uh, communities that are beginning to think anew about what it means to define a, a place and what community vitality looks like. So to dive a little bit deeper into these, the first of which, automating choices, there's nothing more that I could say that wasn't already said this morning. Artificial intelligence, machine learning, algorithms, uh, they've permeated really every aspect of our lives. If you think you're immune from it, I've got news for you, you definitely are not. And this ranges from your GPS to social services employing machine learning to determine what to deploy to the scene of an emergency, whether it's a medical emergency or um, maybe a, a fire that needs to be put out. And as we have more and more economies of choice in our lives, as we generate more and more data, we're more reliant on um, these back-end uh, processes to surface patterns and noise and signals to help us make more informed choices. Yet at the same time, this is also beginning to constrain us in terms of free will. So the best example I can give, I like to call it the brownie problem. So raise your hand here if you've ever used the internet to cook something, right? For recipes, not to literally cook something. <laughs> so um, at our house, I, I subject uh, my girlfriend here to a lot of wild experiments with cooking Taiwanese food. Uh, so I know the internet well as a cookbook, but you know, I'm, I'm just going to throw a thought experiment. One day I'm at home, I'm cooking brownies, I'm going to bake something maybe for a company party, and I say, hey Alexa, give me the best brownie recipe ever. And lo and behold, she does, and I cook the brownies and they're great. Maybe not the best ever, but they're pretty good, people are happy. Um, but we've got to ask some questions about this, right? So what was the decision tree that arrived at her giving me this recipe? Right? Was it based on my user behavior? Was it based on the behaviors of the people in my network? Um, does Alexa maybe have a deal where Amazon's selling brownie mix through Nestle? Right? But th this idea of a black box problem is, uh, to me, one of the critical issues that we have to solve, even beyond bias and algorithms, in that when we begin to rely on these technologies to make decisions on the part of students to guide them down certain pathways, are those decision trees interpretable or are they inscrutable? Do we know how it arrived at that decision so we can interrogate that decision? So as much as I'm very, very hopeful that these technologies can help radically personalize learning, there's some deep questions we have to ask ourselves about how they're gonna be deployed. So civic superpowers, um, is Mia here from yesterday? Are you here? 
So Mia from yesterday typifies this idea of civic superpowers. This is looking at how we're using new digital tools and how concerned citizens and civic groups are really beginning to uh, flex new muscles in what they view as a growing, govern, growing governance gap and a corporate takeover. So the climate uh, march here in Christchurch uh, last week is a great example of this. Uh, the Never Again movement in the US spawned out of the Parkland shootings, the Me Too movement, uh, the Arab Spring using Twitter, um, all the way out to other technologies such as Euclid, which is a mobile polling app that the New York City police use to gauge how safe citizens feel in a given neighborhood, and ResistBot, which is an app that piggybacks on Facebook Messenger. In the US, I could enter in my information, it could locate all my representatives, and through that app, I can send them a, a letter um, to reach out and touch them in ways that I haven't before. So all of this is signaling a big move. It's moving uh, participatory democracy and civics largely out of the town square and into a digital arena, right? Giving us new ways to shine a light on issues, right? To organize around a purpose and really to unite to, to affect change in ways that 10 years, frankly, 10 years ago just frankly weren't possible. So Accelerating Brains, as I mentioned, uh, is a driver that really looks at what's going on in terms of playing with our own cognition in intended and unintended ways. So there's been a, a flood of consumer-facing devices all aimed or, or all intended or purportedly intending to do things like play with uh, neuroplasticity, uh, increase intelligence, uh, all the way out to calming you down if you suffer from PTSD, anxiety, and depression. And these range from things like neuropriming devices, such as Halo Sport, which our athletes are very fond of. It supercharges certain pieces of the brain to allow them to make a decision and swing at a pitch uh, much more rapidly than a non-neuro-enhanced person. Uh, to things like Think and Zana, which are low-grade uh, electrical currents that are run over your skull. Sounds horrifying, but the intention is to calm you down, to put you into an optimum learning state. So the long-term biological consequences for a lot of these things are unknown, right? But we do know that there are short-term efficacies with them. And these I would largely categorize as this is the intended side of things, right? Even though we don't know the long-term price to pay. On the unintended side, right, we see things like an emerging body of research uh, pointing towards uh, younger generations being a little bit different than us uh, from a neurological standpoint, that increased use, device usage, uh, increased use of sort of the Google search and kill or search and destroy is supercharging our short-term memory at the expense of long-term memory and abstract thinking, right? So we're looking at a whole new generation that could be uh, more neuro, a little bit different in terms of a neuro profile uh, than we are as adults. So toxic narratives, um, this is my least favorite, and you can see why, but this looks at a trend line that we noticed that is nearly global and touches almost every uh, strata, every demographic, any socioeconomic um, group you can think of. And this is really about near epidemic levels of chronic health issues uh, being experienced globally. Uh, but more specifically, looking at things like anxiety and depression, especially in young people. And this is one of those multi-causal 
uh, trend lines, right, where th there's a lot of reasons this is happening. Not the least of which is a growing reality that we're putting increasing pressure on kids to succeed in a system that is not going to serve them at all after they exit it, right? So we have adults dealing with uh, higher degrees of uncertainty when it comes to the realm of work and a changing economy. We've got siloed and weaponized data and information creating subjective realities that are allowing people to clash. We've got young people dealing with vast amounts of pressure to get into university and to succeed in really traditional metrics of success that maybe are no longer valid. But as sort of alarming as this trend line is, there are some bright spots. So the Mastery Transcript Consortia uh, in the US is really looking at trying to develop holistic measures of academic success. And they have a lot of buy-in from uh, higher ed and post-secondary institutions. We've seen companies begin to look at things like a triple bottom line that accounts for broader definitions of employee wellness that takes into account uh, chronic health diseases like depression and anxiety. So while on the surface this is a somewhat alarming trend, there are some positive indicators that the tide could be turning. Um, so moving from my least favorite driver to my most favorite driver, the idea of remaking geographies. And this combines several trend lines, the first of which are, are really this uh, resurgence of migration patterns that have a lot to do with people either searching for uh, decent employment or responding to climate volatility. Well, at the same time, in tandem with these migration patterns, we have an economy in transition, and you've heard a lot about that today, where we've moved from really scalable efficiencies, right? So I build up a big factory and manufacturing network that gave rise to the, the place that I'm from, like the steel city, Pittsburgh, if you think about Detroit, the motor city uh, in the US. And as those economies transition, we're really left to think anew about, one, how do you define a unique sense of place and what constitutes value and revitalization? Cheryl mentioned the concept of a used future, and this is why I'm really excited about it, because stop me if you've heard this one before as part of an economic redevelopment plan. I'm in a specific geography. We're not doing so well. Well, what's your plan? We're gonna attract a giant anchor business. Okay. That's been the plan for 30 years. What's new about that as your economy's shifting, right? So this is something we've grappled with a lot. We had uh, you know, an infamous presidential candidate talk a lot about bringing manufacturing back to our shores, which is completely devoid of reality. Um, so we have to think again, so what does economic revitalization mean in these instances? And we begin to see some really positive indicators in this. So the Margaret, Margaret Mahi playground exemplifies this idea. So what unique assets do you have? How can you create uh, value out of really shared assets using localized value webs with deep input from locals, right? In this instance, you have a park co-designed by young people, which becomes a hub for us to interact and, and rub elbows in ways maybe we wouldn't before. Uh, so we see these things playing out in New Zealand. We see them playing out in the US. We have the National Main Street Project, which does, which does the exact same thing. They come into a neighborhood or a community and they say, what are you about? How can we really begin to honor uh, your, new, your unique cultural heritage? Use those small scale value webs to produce things that are unique to you that can attract people in. So it's no longer the steel city, the motor city, 
but things like the city of opportunity, right? It's a big shift. So thus ends our act on change. Let's talk about the future a little bit. So nothing I'm about to talk about is a prediction. We're clear on that, right? Nobody can predict the future. But we can make certain assumptions about the velocity of change, the directionality of where things might be going, whether patterns might, might hold or not, and begin to think about what that means. So in this instance, our forecast details what we would consider four big provocation zones. These are big opportunity areas. If we were to make certain assumptions about that velocity of all the change I talked about, these are areas of opportunity for learning, the first of which is the idea of signature learning ecosystems. So what happens when we can deeply situate learning in place using technology and expand uh, the use of actors throughout the community? This is happening right now in Christ Church, the city of learning that Cheryl uh, previewed with us this morning. Human-centered learning looks at possibilities for learning beyond personalized learning. So what's that next horizon past personalized learning, past adaptive learning? Can we create human-centered learning ecosystems which are designed not only to bring out the best of us academically, but also socially, cognitively, emotionally, physically, and so on? This is the epitome of putting the learner at the center and designing around them. Safeguards for efficacy really looks at this need for new terms and conditions for how we go about technology use. As we have new and emerging technologies that are entering into learning, how can we safeguard student data and ensure proper use of technology in the application of transformative learning experiences? And last but not least, amplified voice and impact. What are the ways that we can spread out student impact beyond the walls of the classroom? And again, Mia is the perfect example of this thousands strong in a march, right? This is not something that's, that's typical, but it is part of the new normal. So besides these really big buckets, our forecast gets into more specific images of the future, asking what if. So among those is, are the idea of nested learning. Can we begin to see learning that is nested in a sense of place? So it could be very much like uh, the vision you articulated for SimCoach Games. Museum Lab exemplifies that, right? So how can we move education and learning and embed that in, inside of businesses and communities and make that part of a formal learning journey? What if we had things like a community network builder? And we already do, there's one sitting right here, right? That acts as an ecosystem steward to weave together all the desperate sectors into one cohesive unit designed to meet a learner's needs, interests, and goals. So what if we really began to engage in things like cognitive fitness protocols, right? And certainly SimCoach Games gets at some of this, right? What, so what are the ways that we can begin to use technology to begin to balance out that left brain, right brain dichotomy as technology use is overcharging certain pieces of the brain? What if we can employ education design principles that are focused on meeting the core needs of learners? So what are overarching principles similar to uh, David Carlton's uh, design thinking that we can employ through the whole of learning to ensure that it's equitable, engaging, and relevant? For safeguards for efficacy, one of the possibilities that we are quite fond of is the idea of follow me schools. So what happens when we're faced with deep disruption from an earthquake or other environmental factors? 
How can we ensure high-quality education continuity in the face of that disruption? So we can, can we create a school that actually follows the learner, and it's not just simply do this online course? And might we have regular machine learning audits that a school uses to look at bias in, in the algorithms that they're employing? Perhaps this is something the Ministry of Education could do, or if not, the school system itself. And then lastly, for amplified voice. Uh, what if we could begin to create a GitHub that had machine learning for teachers to deploy as part of an open education resource? So they're vetted by teachers for teachers. They're easy to deploy. They could be used to do things like basic assessment all the way out to more, more routine tasks and free up that teacher, give them a time dividend to interact with that student. Or what if we had amplified student government? We're beginning to see this. Uh, you know, we had the shadow CEO, right? The young person that, that, that followed somebody through, I believe that was yesterday. Back home in North Dakota, there's actually a, uh, as part of the, the legislature, a student senate that works hand in glove with the governor and the representatives to help pass legislation. So, thus ends Act 4, or Act 3. So let's jump to Act 4, implication. So, no matter what future you're advocating for, it could be some of the ideas I listed, it could be some of your own ideas for the future, there's a shared set of assumptions that all the changes that we're facing present to us. Uh, the first of which is this idea of designing for equity. So equity is a persistent and central problem for education. As we talk about new possibilities for learning, equity can't be a byproduct, it can't be an afterthought. It's gotta be embedded in the very thinking from the get-go as we talk about new possibilities for the future. We've gotta prioritize human development. Last year I spoke a lot about really the, the new future, redefining readiness for a new future of work. And looking at our research, it was the human development aspects that really rose to the fore. And I think you've heard that time and time again. But how can we create an education system that prizes human development and puts that front and center versus academic skills and knowledge and competencies? We're gonna to need to distinguish between efficiency and transformation. And I think this is gonna be one of the, the most pressing tasks for the future. There's a lot of excitement about what we could do and what we should do and what maybe we're able to do. But as stakeholders in learning, really as stakeholders writ large, no matter what organization you're a part of, knowing the difference between these two things and when, when one is being sold to you as the other is gonna be very, very important. Yes, efficiency is great, right? It's gonna allow you to do more things. You're gonna have a time dividend to spend in different ways, but is efficiency the right answer when you're really searching for something that's transformational? We're gonna to have to lead with inclusive governance. Uh, all of the decisions that we're going to have to make are gonna to have to really be made uh, together. It's gonna to have to include our Maori brothers and sisters. It's gonna to have to include students and young people, other people in the community, because um, what got us here won't get us there. Uh, we're gonna to have to think through, again, new terms and conditions. But lastly, we're gonna to have to identify your role in social regeneration. Education occupies a really, really important place. And that as times change drastically, deeply, and quickly, uh, we're seeing really the fraying of our social fabric. Because this is a, such an important institution globally, 
we all come into contact with it. I might not always come into contact with parts of private business, uh, with other community foundations, but I touch the education ecosystem. We all do in, in, in deep, deep ways. So I wanna expand on this as part of my challenge, so the final act here. So here I present to you the humble futures wheel. This is usually just a teaching tool, right? It's there to, to illustrate that the future is many, it's not one, and there's different kinds of futures. There's alternative futures, there's plausible futures, there's preferable futures. And as time goes on, as we have these discussions about the future, one of the things I've noticed is there's an undercurrent of fear. And that fear is around the future of work. Are we gonna be ready for this new economy? That fear is creating really kind of a narrowing of that cone, right? It's, it's shrinking that aspirational vision. When I started this talk, I said education is, is, this is a time for education to really be doubling down on some things, right? Effective lifelong learning, community vitality, learner health. All of those are tangentially related to the future of work, but do not directly speak to it. So as we get farther into the future, my challenge to you is, is to reflect on, on those aspects of a vision that you just laid out, the very beginning of this. To think about, as we think about those future possibilities, are we extending the present? Are we thinking about the, the immense role of importance that education holds in our society? And is its purpose really to train young people to make a living or is it to train them for life? I was really quite taken yesterday with, with the closing keynote. And as we talk about social regeneration and that broadening of vision, we have to recognize that nearly everything I've outlined here is not part of a reform agenda. This is about transformation. The assumption here is that we have to engage in a paradigm shift, right? We can't keep reforming points of crisis in a current system. And I, I think uh, that was outlined really, really well as part of that closing keynote. And if we recognize that our role as educators, as change makers, is to engage in social regeneration, that the future of learning is everybody's business and that we're betting our collective futures on it, then it becomes immediately apparent that our oppression is shared and it's linked. Even though I speak from a place of privilege, I am tied to my black, black, black and brown sisters in the US and my Maori brothers and sisters in the US. And if I truly, truly believe that, then the message actually is that we're the collective solution and that our liberation is also shared. And that liberation is thinking through that partially a new paradigm for learning that puts the learner at the center and can serve every learner equally. So, thank you. Yeah. Kia ora koutou and welcome back. We've talked a little bit about micro-credentials and micro-learning. This is a, a micro, mm, you could call it a talk. This is something I've been looking forward to that you don't know about. Okay? This is just a small snippet of something to inspire you for the start of the afternoon. It's my absolute pleasure to welcome Daisy Levea-Timo 
the stage. Daisy is an inspirational leader in our community, sometimes known as the Samoan Queen and seen online as Daisy Speaks. Now, at the moment, Daisy's transitioning between jobs, um, and so she's here in her lunch hour. Shh, don't tell anyone. Right? She's, she's got several um, poems to share with us because she is a New Zealand slam poet champion. She believes in the power of words and holding the var or spaces for people to share their own stories. Daisy's poetry ciphers around talanoa dialogues about identity, purpose, and leadership. Daisy is going to set the scene for the afternoon with her poems. Please welcome Daisy to the stage. Tapawea. The 5kg margarine tub from Pack and Safe, our bigger size Tupperware, stretches on for miles out here. Irrigated with tears, fears, blood and sweat, I never knew what real butter tasted like. The 1kg margarine tub from Pack and Safe, our smaller size Tupperware. I never knew why my dad used to wait till we finished eating, or why he'd only pour my glass of milk only half full. Or why my high school mates, they didn't even know what a white bread and a tomato sauce sandwich was. I'd never dare tell them that I knew the ratio of boiling water to tap water needed to fill the 5kg margarine tub from Pack and Save so I could shower. Or that chicken, for us, were boxes of diabetes inducing buck or more turkey tails. Or that my siblings and I, we used to cut up the bread crusts and serve it on the local paper and imagine it was a dollar half scoop of fish and chips from Wickman Way. I remember my high school mate on the bus with her Nike bandana, her Ray-Ban sunglasses and her free-stripe Adidas's. Yep, she was a mean-ass label basher. She was flashing, flashing the butter chicken her mum made her from scratch. She was licking, licking the white coconut cream center of her cameo cream biscuit. She went to chuck away the brown biscuits and me and my friend, we jumped up and grabbed them. Said, we'll eat it, because we couldn't bear to see food wasted, eh? And when I jumped off the bus in Mangere, I seen all my intermediate schoolmates. All the girls were pregnant, all the drugs were hard, and all their partners filled the prison cells. Their eyes empty, speckled like freckles in the Moana drowning, like the Tupperware in my cupboards. Kia ora. Ngā mihi mahana kia koutou, ko waiau, ko... Uh, Ngāti Hamwa toku iwi, ko Vailima toku maunga, ko Otakoro toku awa, ko Ngāti Hamwa me Ngāti Chinese te iwi, ko Lave Timo Rawa, ko Ineoku Ingoa Whānau, ko Daisy Ahau. Fa tālofa tulpa ia, malmamalu au fia, tālofa, tālofa, tālofa lava. Um, I was born and raised in the beautiful island of Mangere, South Auckland, and... Um, <laughs> That poem was just a, a short snippet, and I had the privilege of attending a Desal 10 high school in Epsom, and so that was kind of like me on the bus ride, um, and that holding the space at the end, and that experience I think I carry with me now as I'm about to head into back into education around the end, where how do I foster a sense of dreaming for our rangatahi when sometimes they can't even think past what are they going to eat at lunchtime? 
Um, and also bearing in mind that our Pacifica people are going to make up something crazy like 8% of our population and 850,000 rangatahi, that's the number that we have here in New Zealand. Um, the second piece is titled Unafraid. And thank you so much for your attention. Thank you, Dr. Shiro Doig, for just who you are. You're an epic manawahine. So privileged to do life with you. Um, and this title again, Unafraid. I'm afraid of a lot of things. Like when you meet people to kiss or not to kiss, that is the question. I mean, I go to fist pump and they go to handshake. I'm like, not too soft. I've got to shake strong, but not too strong. Because I'm a lady, I'm afraid of looking dumb. There's so much to overcome. I'm really afraid of small talk. I'm too busy calculating how much precious energy is wasted talking about the weather and wonders whether those words could shapeshift into you becoming the change you want to see in the world. Awkward if I've only just met you, right? And when they ask, how do you know the host? I get distracted thinking about the keys we hold in our hands and all the locked doors they could open. Thinking about hineahuone formed from clay, the hongi. From the last 2,000 years that has brought me here to this very moment. The tape rocks popping the soundtrack of my life. The Levites and gospel cousins who could sing. Making me feel both the goosebumps on my arms and my sinful soul on my shoulders. And how could I forget past a small sermon on repeat? We used to fuss when the landlords dissed us. No heat, wonder why Christmas missed us. Birthdays was the worst days. Now we're sipping champagne when we thirsty. This polonization of hip-hop spoke life to us poly misfits from the hood. I'm afraid of seeming disrespectful. See, my eyes, blue, black, bottomless, and opaque are the keyholes that you may pour in. You speak, and our eyes dance with this ambiguous intensity that's both invasive and vulnerable. My respect, my whaaloalo, miss, has you looking at doors facing downwards or sideways. Just know, miss, I'm filling vaults with your words. My greatest fear is that even with four university degrees, someone's going to find out that I somehow snuck in through the back door of life's theatre and somehow ended up on stage. The fat lady's going to sing and call me out any second now, and painful perfectionism is the crappy best friend in my head who tells me I do not deserve to be here. And so when they ask, what do you do for a living? I tell them. I board my boat and cross over to the other side of fear, preaching a gospel of purpose that we are more than what sits on the surface. I'm on team lit, rocking suits, carving my initials into the papyrus of your brain and scattering fragments of my body in every part of the world. What do I do for a living? I awaken sleeping giants, and I run with them. Giants whose tupuna pulled back arrows on Hawaii and shot them across the Moana to set the world on fire, to set the world on fire, to set the world on fire. May the giants in us let the world know that we lived and we loved. May the giants in us let the world know that we came, we saw, we conquered. May the giants in us let the world know that we were here, that we are unafraid. Thanks so much. Well then. No pressure, James. <laughs>
<laughs> I'd like to uh, welcome back to the stage one of our most popular speakers from last year's conference, uh, James Hayes from Virtual Medical Computer uh, Coaching. Uh, James runs an edtech startup which develops virtual reality software for use in training and education, combined with adaptive e-learning software which is powered by machine learning and artificial intelligence platform uh, for individual efficient and effective learning. Um, the future of learning, meet the state of the art learning right here, right now. Welcome to James. Thanks, Mr. It's quite an introduction. I love it when I make up stuff about myself. But look, after that fantastic slam poetry, I was wondering if I could just get you all to do a quick stretch for me. Could I get everyone to stand up? And put your hands straight up in the air. Standing ovation, I'm going to send this to my mum later, and I'll say, just finished my talk, and I got a standing ovation. So what I've been really pleased with today is, and yesterday, is seeing the number of younger people in the crowd um, and the, the number of young speakers. I find often at conferences that we have a bunch of us middle-aged folk trying to tell young people what to do. And while there is some life experience, and that's utterly fantastic, I find, and I found it really refreshing. Yesterday there was the um, $19.76 boss. It was adjusted for inflation, of course, or um, currency, of course. But, you know, and all these young people seeing exactly what they can do. And I thought I would bring something of my own experience into this, in that about 10 years ago, if anyone read my thing, it says, um, oh, it's a bit loud if I look down, education using new, new methodologies and technology, I'm a great dad, and I'm a good cook. And um, I'd probably put the middle one first, actually. But the, I love cooking. I absolutely love it. I, 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 I take a great joy of it. And one of my friends in Ireland, um, he happens to be the nutritional advisor for the Irish Olympic team. And my dad said to me one time, why don't you get together with Andrew, that's the nutritional advisor, and he said, with your ideas around recipes and his nutritional advice, he said, you could get together and contact food suppliers and supermarkets and come up with food and recipes and send them out to people's houses on a Sunday. And I said, Dad, don't be stupid. That would never take off. <laughs> so what I want to say to people and the young people in the audience is, everything hasn't been thought of. You know, we're only at a step. Everything we do is just because it's there to be tried. We give things a go. The fast failure, the penguin. I love all that sort of stuff. This quote um, has been said either verbatim or similar around over the last couple of days. I actually did really well in education. Not particularly well, you know, um, but I was lucky enough to be able to drink quite heavily for two or three months and then sort of pull myself back together and study hard for two or three weeks and do okay in exams. And that's how education is designed, or a lot of education. Ideally, if you're a secondary school teacher, your children aren't, your kids aren't drinking heavily for two or three months at a time. You know, there are services for that. So, but 
I'll give you an example. One of the colleagues I work with, he's utterly fantastic. He's a graphic designer, and he's out of this world. And he's so dyslexic, he can hardly write his name. Now, to put that into he's not called Rumpelstiltskin, okay? His name is four letters, two of which are the same. And he spells it wrong on a number of occasions. He leaves me notes and he sends me emails. And I have to read them out loud sometimes to try and work out what he says. And he knows this. And he sort of says, look, I, I sent you an email. It probably won't make any sense to you, so come and talk to me about it. Um, but the problem is, and I was talking to him once, because we have Tuesday tacos. And I said something about education came up. And he said, you know, I've never passed an exam in my life. And I thought, this really intelligent, phenomenally talented individual, we have failed him rather than he has failed. Because he has been assessed in the wrong way. He is a graphic designer being asked to write essays about graphic design. Not once in our virtual reality lab have we ever said to him, we need to get a really lifelike human walking across a room. Could you describe this to me in words? <laughs> you know? But if he, if he can picture it, which he can in anything, he can design it. And whether that's with a pen, with a pencil, in code, you know. And yet he was examined all the So he was, called, he was badly bullied at school. He, um, never he was called stupid. He never passed an exam. In an absolutely terrible state of affairs. So this is kind of where we're at. Um, student demographics have changed. I was a lecturer for 10 years in um, a local uh, academic institution called Ada Institute of Technology and also at Otago University. Now, um, it doesn't have a laser. That's good, actually, because it shows my hand wiggling. At this distance, everybody's hand wiggles. I don't have early Parkinson's disease. So um, when I first started teaching, 100% of my students were straight out of school. Okay, they came with relatively good NCEA scores in a couple of subjects, and they popped into university, and a lot of them lived at home, and they had very little to worry about. Now, this would take up a level, and I've had a chat with a few people today about, you know, the, the next level of this conversation, I'm afraid, has to go to the Ministry of Education about what we would do with these students as opposed to other students. But for the purposes of today, where we're changing the baby in the bathwater, and I might explain that a bit later on, um, those have changed. When I finished teaching 10 years later, about 25 to 30% of my students had, uh, they were returned to, they returned to study or they had children or they had um, a partner they were looking after because they were in full-time study or something like that. Completely different demographics. We've all heard that lifelong careers have changed. Um, they've gone, probably. Um, we've talked about our spiraling little I walk around a lot. Ten years of education, it, it taught me that a moving target is harder to hit. Either that, or I have to stay quite strictly behind here where I can duck. So lifelong careers have probably gone, okay? If I was giving any young person advice now about a career, I would say become a hairdresser. Because there's a long way before, despite what you might think, I had my hair cut last week, especially for this, and um, it was done by a human, not a robot. And I think it'll be a long time before robots are able to cut our hair as good as this. Okay, so lifelong careers have probably gone. 
students, and we heard, I think David talked about um, likely to be juggling jobs and careers and et cetera, et cetera. So that all kind of linked. And therefore, the ability to attend physical classes from 8 to 4, from 9 to 5, that's gone as well. So all of that top stuff is linked. Now, along the bottom, oh, shit. Um, <laughs> this is actually Hamish's fault. <laughs> along the bottom, we have an example text, which um, was replaced with my own. OK? It's all right. <laughs> and it probably said something like, recognition needs to be given to all learning styles. Because, and if I go back to my colleague who can't write, why are we assessing him that way? If we then skip on quickly to the middle one, um, we, need to, we need to give recognition to different learning environments. Why shouldn't someone who is able to come into um, a, a tertiary education institute, uh, why aren't they able to show what they've done in industry and get recognition for that? And there might be a couple of people out there thinking, oh, but there is. There is something called RPL, RPL, recognition of prior learning. Okay? It is so incredibly complex and expensive that most students don't bother with it because it's just easier to sit at the back of the class. Uh, give you an example. I taught physics, okay, which is unusual because, as I said to a couple of people at lunchtime, I can't add. Um, and um, they, they had this one student had a master's in nuclear physics. I was teaching radiation physics. As you can imagine, there's a big Venn in that Venn diagram of nuclear physics and radiation physics. And I sort of said to her after about the first week, I said, look, I'm teaching a module of radiation physics in an undergraduate degree. You've got a master's degree in nuclear physics. I said, why don't you just RPL this? And she said, I looked into it. It's incredibly time consuming and expensive. I said, is there any chance you could just sit at the back and wonder what you'd do if you won the lottery? I said, and then you know, you'll just hand in the assignments and you'll get 100%. And I said, quid pro quo, you'll never stick up your hand and say, you're wrong. <laughs> and, and you've been wrong most of the term. And I said, you know, this could work wonderfully well for us both. And it did. She was very polite. And I gave her 100%. Um, OK. This is another slide that has a problem. Can anyone spot it? They're all men. <laughs> okay. The first woman graduated in 1804. I am not advocating a return to that year era, but just the icons I was able to get were all men. So these are our new learners. Okay? And if you imagine this, because this analogy is going to go on for a little while, all of our new learners need to get to that destination. And the education system we've got has to get them there. All right? So all of these people, and I've kind of done the holiday thing because it's fun. You graduate, or you finish your course, and you're, you're going to have a bit of time off. I went to Ibiza for a week. Northern Hemisphere was not that flash, actually, going to Ibiza. It would be kind of good going from here to Ibiza. But um, so that's where you've got to get to. So the idea is that we bring all of the learners on a journey so that they get to the destination. I think we'd all agree with that. The research we have is I'm going to use uh, the analogy of a car. We have an existing fleet of vehicles that gets them there. 
The current thinking is, and we know from people like I've discussed about my colleague, not everybody's getting there on time, not everybody's getting there at all, but a lot of people are. So it's not terrible. So we have to modify the existing fleet of vehicles and possibly increase the size of them. Okay, so this is, um, this is our existing fleet. I don't know anything about cars, okay? I, I, um, but I know that we have a lot of these and they're in pretty good condition, which is how people are getting there. Okay, so the existing school of thought is we keep using these, but people are not getting to the uh, destination. Now, um, the solution is we ensure the existing fleet of vehicles, and if you try and play around with this, the vehicles are the um, education system and we make sure that's well maintained and it's fit for purpose. Now, the problem with that is we still have numerous learners not getting there. So, someone mentioned sunk costs earlier, and this is where I'll bring in the, the title of the talk. The um, Louisa, who, as you probably met on the way in, she's utterly wonderful, and I explained to Hamish, she kind of acts as his attack dog, okay? She fires an email out every 45 seconds until you're until you hand in your media. I had just finished washing and changing my daughter, and I got a number of her emails that sort of said, you know, you've been promising this for 16 weeks. Um, you're now the last. This was yesterday. No, I'm joking. Um, and she said, you, you at least need us to, to meet me halfway. What's the title? So I said, it's impossible to change the baby in the bathwater. And that kind of made sense. And then I had to unfortunately backtrack and make a talk around a title. But if you think about, <laughs> um, if you think about trying to change the baby, which you need to do while you're giving it a bath, it's not going to work, OK? And that's kind of what we've got in education. We've got a pretty good system. It's not perfect, but it's not bad. So I also use the analogy of someone needing a heart operation and saying to their cardiac surgeon, I know you need to do this heart operation, but I'm still going to go to work this week. And I need you to follow me around and do the heart operation while I'm at work. So we've kind of done this thing with sunk costs, all right? Have you ever seen someone in a casino with the sunk costs? They've, they've lost a lot of money, but they're prepared to get it back. They can't think that they're actually better off just cutting it and going, do you know what, I've lost that, me in a casino, I've lost that $15, you know? But, so what universities or colleges are actually thinking at the moment is we have the vehicles, we have the mechanics, they're the teachers, they're qualified, and to some extent it's working. So we've spent some money and we're not doing too badly. Why would we change anything? Or if we do change it, do we need bigger, faster cars? Now, I say I don't know anything about cars, but I know what that is, okay? I still don't know what happens if you lift the bonnet. Could be a monkey pedaling a little bicycle or something. I would be slightly more surprised if there was a monkey pedaling a bicycle than a big battery, but I wouldn't really know. I don't know the difference between a distributor cap and a daffodil. So, um, but I do like the way that looks. Right. That's what we need. We need, to, we need to forget about the sunk costs. We need to say, this is completely wrong, what we're doing. Well, not completely wrong, sorry, but enough of it is wrong that we actually have to think in a completely different way. And the problem is, we are starting with the car and saying, mm, maybe if we tinker it a little bit, 
we can make a plane. Well, here's the problem. That's a car being made into a plane. They don't work as either a car or a plane. I love this girl. She doesn't care. She's just going to jump in. Um, has anyone been to one of these events? This is the last one, I promise. They're um, absolutely brilliant. If you ever get the opportunity and you're, in a, you're visiting a city and you hear that there's a Red Bull something going on, there's also one where they put a bunch of um, people with death wishes at the top of a hill and they let them go down on a, basically a modified go-kart and they, they, some of them live. Um, <laughs> their safety mechanisms are hay bales at the really big corners. Occasionally, cattle find them when they're eating the hay later on in the year. So the problem we have is a lot of education is not fit for purpose. Um, the first solution we have is do we tweak bits and pieces? Do we change the style of the car? Do we, do we make sure that they're souped up? Or number three, as you probably guess, is that for me? <laughs> I'll call them back. Sir, I'm actually doing something. <laughs> You're chasing me about the next presentation. Um, as you can imagine, I'm probably hinting towards solution two here in that we design a completely student-centered education. And in order to do that, we kind of have to say, yes, we've spent money. Yes, we've got things that don't work. Let's start again. But it is difficult because of the sunk costs. And it's like logging onto your bank, e or not e-learning, um, uh, internet banking one day, and it looks different. You're like, oh, I don't know how to use this. I'm just going to have to get another bank and forget I've got that money. You know, we, don't, we know Moodle. Anyone in secondary education or in tertiary education knows roughly what Moodle does. I, when, I was a, when I was a teacher, they used to say to me, you're the IT guy. Now, if some of my developers heard that I was called the IT guy because I knew how to print a PDF, they would probably vomit. But people would say to me, James, James, um, Moodle's changed. And I'd be like, Moodle's changed. It's an awful lot of parts to Moodle to have it all changed. And it might be that the menu that was on the left is on the right and stuff like that. And even that confuses a lot of people. So the change has to be done with great care. But the problem is, and people have alluded to this, this conference, and you'll have heard it before, we have a very linear education so that people come in and they all start at the same place and they all finish at the same place, and we don't give people a recognition of what they've done previously, or what their strengths and what their weaknesses are. So then you bring it to an individual and adaptive, and you can then either predetermine that or start to use artificial intelligence to design new pathways for every student, because really that's the holy grail. People need to get to this destination, and yet the, the destination might be the same, and often it has to be in some tertiary education, but how someone's going to get there might be completely different because of their strengths, because of their weaknesses. And then if we go back to that partly filled out slide that I had with things on, they have uh, different commitments. Because if I really wanted to take this up to the next level, I think we need to have conversations with the Ministry of Education and we say, why are um, 
Why are credits measured in hours? Why are degrees measured in years? Because if you get someone who's 18 and living at home, they can do a degree in three years. Even if you're like me and you drink heavily for three months. I don't anymore. I have a child and I don't have much money. So, um, <laughs> but you know, even I could have done a degree in two years and 11 and a half months back when I was 19. But now if you take someone who is 35 and they've got two kids and they're um, working part-time, it should be okay that they do the same degree in five years. And the other thing is we've got to start measuring people with the bluntest tool in the tool shed, which is the hammer. Um, sorry, which is the hour. And I was going to reference David, who, who talked about this earlier, and he said it's like measuring things with a hammer. A hammer can both make a deck or it can make, um, do an awful lot of damage to a car. We measure um, uh, credits using hours, and it's terrible, because what's, what someone can do in an hour is completely different to what someone else can do in an hour. And if you compare that to um, something like golf, I've never played a game of golf in my life, and um, because of that, I wish I hadn't started with golf, because I can't think of any <laughs> golfer. Can someone give me the name of a golfer that everyone else in the audience would recognize? I, was, I could think of Tiger Woods, but I thought, I don't want to use him because he's actually more famous for adultery and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> give me another golfer. Lydia Who? Lydia Ko. Lydia Ko, yes. The wonderful woman. She's about eight or something. <laughs> okay, well, we'll take Lydia Ko, all right? So imagine I was younger. And Lydia Cole was, um, had never played golf, so there's, I imagine she has more natural skill than I have at golf. Okay, so we take the two of us, and, we, and they, what do we need? We need balls and clubs, not Lydia. We need golf balls and clubs, and we say, right, both of you practice golf for 10 hours. She would probably get much better than I would at the end of 10 hours because of her natural ability. So we've got to stop measuring people in hours. This sort of thing as well, multiple choice questions, we use an awful lot of them in education. Multiple choice questions aren't bad. If I was to ask an audience like you, um, put your hand up if you thought this, and I could get a fairly broad um, idea about uh, agreement or disagreement about a particular topic. But for assessment, and when we talk about e-learning, which, which is a term that's been over abused and overused for 20 years, to the point where we actually try and call it digital learning where I work. And, you know, multiple choice questions. I was reading something the other day that some, some people had sent me from Seattle. And I'm, I, I don't know, has anyone here got a very strong radiation background? Good, because I don't need you to, right? And I want to say, and I actually need a show of hands for this. All right, I'm not going to take another selfie, don't worry. It's only, I've only taken three in my life. Um, okay, so there, it was a radiation course, and we were looking at it because they wanted some advice on how to change it and make it so it was useful. And one of the questions was, and this isn't quite verbatim, but is when you are using radiation in a medical environment, do you, A, use as much as possible, B, use the, use, the, use the right amount you need in order to get adequate imaging while not irradiating your colleagues and other patients in the vicinity. C, pass. Or D, just irradiate your dog. Um, can anyone answer that question for me? 
not D. But we do have people like that in the audience, and I'm afraid we, we, have, we have schools for you. <laughs> no, but, so that's how a lot of multi-choice questions are written. You, know, you can usually spot the answer even if you've got no content ability. So you've got to make questions quite, quite difficult to guess. And I like to think we've kind of messed around with what we've developed, and we've done it quite well. So um, we, we like to say we've got statistically credible digital learning. Now, that's the other thing. This is an area where we started. Uh, we started in radiology. It was my background. And this is actually an example of what students were learning on. Can anyone guess what that part they were learning is? It's a hand. It doesn't really look like a hand. I mean, it, you can tell it's a hand, but it doesn't act like a hand, partly because it's not attached to a body. Okay? So the hand doesn't move. The patient doesn't speak to you. And um, it stays, you know, it's just there, it's inert, and you can x-ray it, and you get a picture of a hand every single time. The other problem with that is that bit with the handles on either side, apart from the fact that it's 30 years old, it hasn't changed a huge amount, but can only be used by one person at a time. Okay, so if you take that into a group of 40 or 50 students, you've got one person using it when 50 people need to. Now, um, so... In my introduction, Hamish said, I work for virtual medical coaching. I do. We've also got a joint venture with a group called Skeletics, and they are a 20-year-old company that deals in artificial intelligence and machine learning. And because we were virtual medical coaching, and they were Skeletics, and after the joint venture, we had to come up with a, we had a discussion about what we would call the new company. It became Skeletics Health. So you can see we obviously got most of the uh, credit there. Um, <laughs> So this is kind of what the student could now go through. So they would log in on any device, because it's kind of like an IoT area where they, you know, you're trying not to tie up these virtual reality machines or the augmented reality areas. So they could log on on anything. We've got an iPad here just as a display. Now, the waiting room doesn't look like this. If anyone's been in a hospital, there needs to be at least one person missing an eye, someone with crutches. Um, you know, it has to be all sorts of things. And the waiting room actually... I'm not here. Um, <laughs> so the waiting room does actually look a little bit different now. It's got crutches and stuff like that, but this is just the screenshot I grabbed for this. And then you see, we figured, because in our company, we've actually got more educationalists than developers, which we thought was quite important. And I think that's been a theme for today. Tech's cool, but one of the first questions we ask people when they say, can you do this for us, is why? Why do you want it in that environment? Because if it is just because it's cool, and someone said sexy earlier, so yeah, virtual reality is still sort of sexy, um, but actually it's really, really useful. So you go, if the answer is because we think we can do something useful in it that we can't do in another paradigm, yeah, we're on board. Okay, but then you sort of think we've got to split it up because education is not just assessment, and it's not just teaching. It's, it's, it's teaching, it's practice, and assessment. So in this area, you've got two sides. I'll show you a little bit of one. Um, you can log in, and you say, I just want to practice what, what we've been learning. So you go through here, and you might select, I haven't got my glasses, sorry. I, I moved house two months ago, and I think they're in the old house. Um, so I, I, I can barely see that screen, and I can only just about see this screen. 
So you might say, I want to look at my upper limb today. Um, these are some of the options you get. You, you can then choose your virtual reality environment. Now, in this example, there are eight. Okay, so instead of one, you've taken it to eight. And that doesn't matter. You could have four, you could have 16. We work with a university in Chile that has 18 virtual reality environments for their students to use. Now, the good thing about that is there are a lot of educators in this room, and there is one common denominator with students. They get bored quickly, and if they get bored, they're lost and they're gone. So the problem is if a student uh, in the past goes up to one of the physical machines and it's in use and it's going to be in the use for another half an hour, they'll leave. And you might not get them back. They might come back in a week or something like that. In this environment, you can see which ones are in use, which ones are available, and you can select one and lock it down for five minutes. And then they can wander over there in a minute. Um, so this is the idea behind the assessment now. So that's just the practice. They may have been shown a little bit about a technique, and then they're going to move on, and they say, right, now that I've practiced it enough, I've done some learning, I actually want to do an assessment. So this is kind of, I wouldn't call this the back end, but this is kind of the builder. And as you can see, instead of a linear line, there's a bit of a spider web. So um, people from Pittsburgh, you have traffic lights? What does green mean? What does red mean? We have another light in Christchurch, orange, which means speed up. Okay, <laughs> So just be careful over the next few days because it's not international. Now, so our, our learning starts at the orange ball, which means speed up and you might get there. Okay, or you're not quite ready or slow down, or whatever. It means, as you can kind of see, it's based on the traffic light system. I think some of the developers did this for a bit of a giggle at my expense because I'm colorblind. So um, the idea is every student, regardless of their background, logs on to um, an area, and they don't know where they're logging on, but they log on to an orange ball. Okay, and then depending on their strengths and their weaknesses, they get asked quite, well, the very first thing, they get asked quite complex questions. And depending on those answers, they get sent down different pathways. At the beginning, these are predetermined by lecturers. And after a while, the machines build up enough knowledge about that student to be able to send them down and give them information about their progress. So you can see that you obviously need to end up at a green dot. But the way you get there might be completely different. There are very few people. And they're usually much bigger than that. This is just an example. There are very few people who would take the same pathway. The good thing for the students is they don't know that one of their colleagues is going through eight balls and they're going through 16. Because no one wants to know that they're twice as, you know, they're needing twice the amount of um, education as someone else to get to the same point. Now, flip that around, and this might be a course where the other student had some strength, strengths. And the previous student who only did eight actually needed the 16. So the overall time might be the same. They're just being put in areas where they need that attention and not where areas where they don't. Um, and we really want to, I mean, like I said, we could have all guessed the multi-choice question. But what we want to find out is why and how people know this information, because that's important. The great thing about students these days, and I think you'll all agree with me, is they want to be there. Okay. My first degree was free. And um, so you know, I went along because it was free and I didn't have a job. 
and I quite enjoyed it. And, um, but now it's time consuming and expensive for students to get to a university. And it's actually really hard sometimes. So you don't really need to give students assessments. Uh, well, no, I wouldn't say that actually. You're not yet. Um, you need to give them information on their progress and they will fill in the gaps. So we come up with a, uh, complex, um, statistically credible ways of assessing students and then give this information to them from about week two. Obviously, the data gets a lot stronger the longer they're in the course, but in a, on a dashboard, they can see how they're getting on from very early on. Someone, in, someone else brought up mobiles earlier. Every student has a, some sort of a phone. This doesn't have to be on a phone. This can be done on a computer, but a lot of students on the bus and stuff like that just do little refresher courses and stuff like that. So this is an area where students can use the technology they've already got and start to just do a little bit of revision so that in three months' time, a week before the exams, or two weeks before the exams, they're not starting from scratch. This is an example of a, credibly, a statistically credible question. There are 16,000 possible answers to this question. Now, that doesn't mean there is one correct answer and 15,000 can't do maths. I did admit it earlier, 15,999, I don't know. Um, you know. There are different levels of correctness because there's a slider there where students are voting on their confidence and they're saying, I think this and some of that, but maybe none of that. And so there is one definite question, well, one, sorry, one definite answer which is correct and all the others are degrees, are lesser degrees of correctness and some are more incorrect. So if you, if you present a student with 25 of these types of questions, you really build up a good amount of knowledge about what that student can do. For example, if they get the right question, but they're only 5% confident, well, that's good, but it's not brilliant. You know, in medicine, we sort of think, well, we want our practitioners to be a little bit more than 5% confident, but it's better than being 100% confident to the wrong answer, <laughs> but only just. So, you know, the, the, the students get the information that their confidence isn't good about the right answer. So it could be that they don't have a confidence thing. They're not backing themselves. Or it could be that they're not, they don't really know. Both of those can be found out. And then, because I don't advocate getting rid of um, cl physical classes, this can be taken into um, tutorial sessions. And the lecturers get, then get informed tutorials and they can say, Based on, your, based on the class's knowledge, we need to do this, this, and this. But based on your individual knowledge, we can have small groups, and we can have this on this corner, and this on that corner. So we have really data-informed tutorials. Um, the other thing, I talked about the space needed. Well, it's actually one of the developers who doesn't know I use this photo. <laughs> but if he were a student, he could have been doing some work at his computer and then realized he needed to do a little bit of virtual reality simulation. So he's just literally stood up and instead of using room scale, he's used um, a small circle and he's doing the bit of the practical work that he, sh that he ordinarily would have been reading about. So this is how you can blend this stuff together. We've talked about blended learning for a long time where you give students a PDF to read before they come to class. But then you can sort of say, Certainly, be, certainly get knowledge content learnt before people come to class, but then in classes, 
They could be doing some simulation, they could be doing some conversations, etc. So that's the kind of dashboard they get. The students can get that after a couple of days. The lecturers can get that. And they can compare class on class. They can compare different groups. And you can have anything you want on here. The CFO might be very interested in how much you're saving by using that type of technology. You might hide that from students. Because if you said we're saving $16 per student per day, you could guarantee a letter from each student saying, I would like my $16 a day back, please. And, you know, but you can basically, this is built on uh, Microsoft Power BI, so you can have anything you want on. Again, um, another little aspect to the mobile devices. You can have things like um, these text messages are just sent out on any day of the week, except for Friday, um, when um, students could just be suddenly asked a question about something they did earlier in the week. And guess what? 120 students in that, in that class don't get the same question because it's based on their data. Because why would you send everyone the same question? If you have someone who's got a very strong anatomy background, why the hell would you send them a question about where the pancreas is? It's there. It's a waste of their time. Then they're suddenly disinterested in this, and they won't do them. Live assessment tools, again, getting back to the data, which is very, very important. There's a lot of examinations called, if I use the word OSCE, does it make sense to a lot of people? 10 years in education, I'm not sure what it stands for. Educate, uh, examination. Does anyone know what the first bit stands for? Observe simulation. Come on, Isabel. No. <laughs> no one knows what it stands for. Excellent. OK, so it's an oral examination about certain things. And the, traditionally, the way it's been done is every student comes in and sees a lecturer and they get asked 25 questions. Now, part of the problem initially is you can get the same marks for identifying um, some very complex tasks and to get some very easy tasks. But also, if we go back to the data, if someone has a very strong physics background, why would you be asking them some basic physics questions? It's just a waste of their time and it's a waste of your time. That 25-minute examination could be done in 10, where you've got the data on your phone about that particular student, and then you say to them, this is what I want to dig into. Do you understand this? Because you had problems with it three months ago. How did you get on here? Bang, 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 bang. Brilliant. We're, we're good to go. Okay. So again, it's individualized assessment, not just individualized learning. The, um, the courses, once they get to this level, can then be um, made that you can start to use the artificial intelligence into it, and they start to predict where the students have been, where they need to go, and the course can then start to, predict, um, start to fill in gaps for that student. By this stage, in our experience, and we've been using it for four years, students are getting very, very happy with it, and they accept those pathways. They, they're not relying on the lecturers so much. They do work in small groups still, because you'll find there are clumps of people who need the same sort of information. And those people could get an email. Like if I went back to that sort of spider's web, one of those dots could be, because those dots can contain anything. They can contain video, they can contain PDFs, they can contain PowerPoints, anything. One of them could be that it sends out an email to that student saying, look, you, you seem to be having trouble with this concept. There's a tutorial on Thursday in room X 
about this, we'd really like to see you there. Or you could, even, could be even stronger. We expect to see you there. Now, everyone would be welcome, but those 15 students would get that email about coming along. Look, thank you very much for listening. Um, I don't know if there's any time for questions, because that timer read zero from when I started. <laughs> so, OK. Well, thank you. Look, I think if we can take one really important thing away from James's presentation is this is example text. Insert your text here. <laughs> My sincere apologies for the fail on the slide. What I actually really want to say is um, this is a fabulous example of adaptive, personalized, modular, scalable, mobile, flexible, and data-driven learning. This is incredibly powerful if we can apply this to all sorts of other learning contexts, the fundamentals of learning that, that every other student needs. Um, and a fabulous example of this in um, medical and radiology, I think it's, it's a really great. So please join me again in thanking James. Thank you, James, again. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay, folks, it's time for breakouts. Uh, Instructions same as yesterday, 45 minutes. Uh, there'll be helpers in the room um, to keep, keep to the time. Then there'll be afternoon tea, and then you'll go from there to your second uh, breakout session. But please then return to the auditorium, uh, where we'll have uh, the, the, the J panel and some, um, some final words of wisdom before we finish. And I have just a couple of uh, messages before you go. One is from the climate uh, strike uh, young people who, who couldn't stay but said they had a fantastic time and really enjoyed uh, interacting with you to pass on that. And the second piece of um, information uh, comes from Daisy who said, oh, I saw my new boss in the audience, say hi. So Helen, <laughs> hi from Daisy. It's amazing out there, they can show you how flat your battery is. Like, your battery's getting flat. And I said, yeah, I am feeling yeah. a bit tired. But... <laughs> Am I on now? Yes, I am. Great. Excellent. <laughs> That's helped. Um, so uh, we've just got a few uh, questions here to try and get some perspective from these wonderful folks who have come all this way to New Zealand to, to talk about learning in the future and um, uh, some rapid-fire questions. If we can ask uh, some one-minute snippets from you. Uh, what's changed in your thinking in the last two days based on listening to the speakers and taking part in the Tuakana conversations and the conversations with these wonderful attendees? Grab the mic. Well, I think what's been super reinforced for me is uh, thinking about getting um, the youth at the center of this conversation. So that was my, I've got a few, but that. Yeah. Yeah, similarly, what's been reinforced is that notion that this is a proposition of collective futures, right? Um, that this is everyone's business, that um, our futures are tied to, to the, the least among us and the, the most privileged among us, and, and this, is, this is everybody's work, right? Um, insights and surprises, you know, it's always fascinating to see the digital humans. I remember being blown away by Soul Machines last year and thinking through like implications of that tech this year. 
and what it might look like in 10 years and you know will it be able to do things like foster secure attachment right and will we see crazy things like well you need one ai per child otherwise there's a health and human services issue at play here so uh sparked a lot of interesting questions for me and very interesting thank you for me it's 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 always refreshing uh, to know that other people are doing great work, that we're not alone in our continued learning journey. Uh, and so that's, it's fascinating to see different perspectives, uh, different concerns, the same concerns, the same struggles, the same, you know, the same push, pushes forward. Uh, so that is just, uh, I, I love learning. And so when people are passionate about it, it just takes me to the next level. So I'd like to say thank you again. So next question's a bit trickier. They're going to get trickier each time. Um, just one, one thing that we haven't talked about, but that is really critical for the future of learning conversation. What would that be? Um, not that we haven't talked about it, but um, I think to include uh, visions and futures, youth perspective on the future of learning, like a very heavy undercurrent around what they want, right, and, and what they see the challenges to be, what they don't want. Um, you know, a lot of times as adults, uh, thinking about the future of learning, we like to invoke children, right? But very many times they're left out of the conversation. And there's been a strong undercurrent of learners here. And I have to applaud everybody for that and that inclusive nature, but to pay really deep attention to their aspirations for the future as well. I just want to sort of reinforce that too. Um, I'm always raising my hand and saying, where's the kid in the room on the state board, on the Department of Labor, on the Department of Education? And um, when the woman yesterday was talking about having a co-CEO in their 20s, I'm like, yes, yes. Um, I think the one thing that I, I actually um, admittedly picked up on a little bit here, but the one thing that uh, I questioned was, What's the role of industry in this conversation? What, what, what more can uh, industry be doing, separate from sort of reinforcing and hearing and, uh, from the youth? For me, it's, it's something that I, I don't like to talk about, uh, but I think that one, one thing that, that I would like to see more clearly is where and it's just nasty, but where's the money? Where's the money to, to push this forward? What are the avenues to ignite all these wonderful ideas to, to get youth involved? Um, and it's, it's a nasty one. But a real one. Mm. So, uh, and kind of a, a last, <laughs> last word here, what would be your last practical tip or idea that people could take away and use tomorrow? that the answer to how is yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I reflect on, you know, the, the meeting, your story, both of you got together, said somebody's got to do something about this. We're that somebody and we're, we're 
then you have a conference, then you have a, a Christchurch City of Learning, and then you have another conference, and just to keep going, right? The, the future's always unfolding in front of us. It never stops. You know, the, this tensions, we're going to solve them. There'll be new tensions, so just do it. Do something, right? So, yeah, the answer to, to how is yes. I just got to go back to hang out with youth, ask them the questions, see what they have to say. I mean, Mia, right, was so, mm. <laughs> so impressive. Uh, I love that. And, um, you know, the, the support for the educators is something that I've thought about a lot in the last couple of days and uh, encouraging them to ask the, the students in, in, in their education, what types of problems do you like to solve as opposed to what do you want to be? So I would say to, and, and really encourage everyone to stay connected while there might be times in the journey that you can't and it's not appropriate for you to take action, there will be that time uh, where you are the right person at the right time, uh, but that opportunity is missed if you aren't listening or connected. Okay. We've got a, a, a little bit of time. Are there any questions from the audience for uh, our panel? What did you make for your Lego? Wonderful. Thank you. Uh, so, thank you very much. Uh, so, the, I, I have to set the, the playing field. Um, the, the challenge was a random assortment of bricks and a random theme, which, to which the theme was uh, animals. And so, I, I created an owl that was in the form of a professor. Uh, so, he had a nice bow tie and, a, you know, the pencil protector and the big bushy, bushy eyebrows. That was the easiest question all day. Thank you. <laughs> Andy. <laughs> well, we know what we can learn from America, right? <laughs> okay, in the education space. <laughs> the power of cooperation, right? I, I, you have. 200 change agents in this room. You've got the birth of a citywide ecosystem. Uh, you have a general spirit of let's just get it done. Uh, we do have amazing pockets of innovation in the US, but we're also hampered by restrictive policy, uh, business as usual thinking, um, the idea that you know American exceptionalism a lot of times will hamper us too. So I think that there's a, a lot to be learned, um, you know, from you all about what's happening in this room right now. And then we, we also have some, some mature efforts, you know, like the Remake Learning Network, right, that maybe we could bring here to, to augment uh, things that are already on, on, on the way. Um, and then, you know, the idea of really looking at equity and native populations, um, that is a, a serious weak point for us. Um, so that there's a lot to, to be learned here. I, I've been feeling a little guilty that I've been taking more from learning more than providing in the last yeah. two, two days. Um, yeah, but I've, uh, in you know, what I've learned is sort of the perspective, especially what you were just saying around equity 
and that's something that we talk about. We have sort of a, a different dynamic, but um, it's something we talk about, and this was really inspirational uh, to, to bring that back. But the remake learning, hopefully we can support um, the community or the country uh, with, with being successful in, in these events. It's pretty powerful stuff. And, and coming from, from university, we, we often see silos, uh, and that can be mimicked and mirrored and shown in our own classrooms, our school districts, our schools, et cetera. Um, but realizing that the different perspectives from each and every one of us uh, really give us insight in how, how to change and, and hopefully uh, provide a better future is, is critically important. Um, and that's just reflected between uh, both, of our, both of our countries. Are there any uh, questions on Slido, Ashferi? There's one actually. Uh, while we're talking about the things that we missed talking about um, the last pa the past two days, um, <coughs> we have someone asking on Slido if maybe uh, the aspect of mental health has been overlooked. Uh, uh, mental has health. Have we mental overlooked? health. Have we overlooked mental health in this picture? <laughs> I think quite possibly, but I think there's some incredible um, developments happening in the mental health space with digital tools as well. Um, if you've ever used a tool called Wobot, uh, it's cognitive behaviour therapy using a bot online and uh, will actually help you um, uh, self-assess your moods and self-assess your behaviours over time and improve your behaviours to improve your, your moods. Uh, one example, there are lots and lots of it, these things happening and um, uh, I think for those they find that youth uh, engage with a device and engage with a bot more than they engage with a human and they share things in uh, diary and uh, or journal their, their issues more with a bot than they do with a human, which is really interesting I think. So um, one example, yeah. Mental health and the mental health crisis, right? It's the dirty open secret of our education systems, right? Where we have a system that perpetuates gross inequities, that puts vast amounts of pressure on learners to fit into a mold that may not be relevant to them by any means. So in terms of the mental health piece, we've touched on it a little bit, but I don't think that you could touch on it enough. Right, and that's you know, one of the personal fears I shared that when we think about the future of learning, we're thinking about really just future workforce pathways, and I think part of that's to broaden our ideas about what our, our systems of learning could and should be for. Yeah, they should definitely prepare you for the careers of tomorrow, but they should also help to create uh, healthy, more resilient young people, and, and adults too. Yeah. Uh, there was a question at the back there. Is, sorry, is it Bree? Oh, sorry, another one. Uh, I was curious to know if there's something from the New Zealand mindset that you'd take back to America and education. Um, something you've learned over the last days. To Akana? Yeah? You like that? Great. Okay. Um, sorry. Um, just assuming that you're 
we could wave a magic wand, what would we implement now? Now we're getting into the hard stuff. How much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> 15 minutes. Games, games everywhere. <laughs> I mean, honestly, for me, it's, it's not that I, what I would implement, right? I would create an entirely different system. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, Jason tends to think quite big. <laughs> This, this was mentioned by Jason uh, previously, uh, and I, I think this hopefully matches what, what uh, Jess thinks as well, uh, but the idea of just finding the joy, uh, so if I could just like that would be, an, and I think fundamentally it is, and I believe that 100% that learning is enjoyable, but there's so much gunk in between um, that if I could just erase that, then I would. There was another question oh. here somewhere. I was going to say the devil's advocate here. Um, with uh, AI and digital humans. So how is uh, AI and uh, digital human going to affect people's uh, yeah, individual so free will? Yeah. Sorry, repeating it for everybody. Yeah, so I, I, you don't have to wait for it to be perfected to have implications on free will now, right? So you're being constrained by sets of choices that you do not know are being limited by factors that you don't see now. So it's, it's already an issue. <laughs> I'm over here, uh, so if you... I mean, if you, if you just look at our country, there's, there's proof of that. <laughs> I, think, I think from my point of view, the importance of you, whether you are in a school or what sort of education learning you're in, does it, to me it's all the same, is that, under, that personal understanding of the fact that you are being influenced is the first thing, is that if you understand that every time you're online, that you are, um, the free stuff is free for a reason, mm -hmm. and you're being monitored, even my batteries are being monitored, um, <laughs> and the algorithms are helping you to create a world that takes us further apart. I think that's, that's for me, is, is part of the, the conversation. And then the, the act of doing things, like some, some people use different search engines like DuckDuckGo or things that actually take you out of the algorithm place as much as possible. So, but awareness is pretty key as a, a first step, I think. Any? Yep. I, I think one of the most interesting aspects of the, the rate of technology change we're seeing now is the high-end technologies going through the roof is driving down the cost of technologies that are available to the rest of us. Our youth now have access to tools and technologies that only the very largest multinationals had even five, ten years ago. You know, enormous changes happening there. The technology is not a barrier, the cost of the technology is not such a barrier anymore. The technologies are available for us to use and adapt to all sorts of different scenarios and use cases, and I think that's really important here. This is not uh, 
run a project that's multi-million dollars is actually you can do some of this stuff on the smell of an oily rag and people are all the time, startups are jumping on this and creating prototypes of amazing tech that then gets funded and taken off and scales. I think that's really important, yeah? Yeah, and to, to quickly add on that, there's a, the mentality and the mindset of the maker, the hacker, um, so this, the, even the used technologies can be repurposed. Um, and again, to Hamish's point, uh, what was extremely powerful, um, you know, even just a few years ago, uh, we can, the, especially the youth, can tackle that and, uh, and modify it uh, to make something completely different out of it, um, which also can be streamed and pipelined and, and very powerful in itself. And, and to rewind back to, so, so the start of your question, you said, what if you only look to youth for the solution? I, I think it's not just looking to one sector, one actor, one demographic. It, it's really realizing that this, all of this change has to be stewarded and co-created together. Um, you know, so we can avoid things like technology gaps and resource gaps and, and really, you know, pushing a dominant culture's view of the future versus a minority culture. Yeah, and also I think a lot of it's about in involving the youth, you know, this sort of, at least from my perspective, it started with, you know, we, the old people, whatever, know we have the money and we know what to do to and for the next generation. You know, it, it's not that anyone says that, but you kind of make decisions in that direction. And so I think it's about involving the youth in solving, solving the problem because the, they're the ones that are sort of going, going through that pathway. Are they uh, the, yeah, indigenous? Yeah. So the equity movement in, in the U.S. Is, is obviously very different than the circumstances in, here in New Zealand. Um, we have been horrific to our native populations, and most of the equity agenda in the U.S. is centered around uh, black and brown populations. Um, it's only emerged recently that, that we're beginning to see uh, really equity movement uh, to honor First Nations people. Uh, there's a network of school systems that are being developed uh, from and for Native Americans. Uh, one of the most interesting schools in the U.S. right now is Ashoka Changemakers, um, which is a Native American-run um, school in and of itself that probably does the best job period of future-proofing youth uh, for no matter what future of learning and work comes, comes to mind. But that's something we have to own, right? This has been something that's long been missing from the conversation. And, and just to add to that briefly, I think that especially in our region of Pittsburgh, um, other institutions are, are acting as signals and, and hubs uh, so, for example, museums and, and especially the Carnegie Library system as well. Um, but there is a lot of work to do. Um, very important work. Yeah, 
so the um, again always having the passion to to continue to learn and and hopefully pass that on to others I think it really it, it comes from being from a family of teachers um, and then then again trying to get back to that moment where you can share that learning is enjoyable uh, it can be very individual but it can also be shared and so finding those folks around you um, that that can help celebrate those moments when that that light bulb turns on that clicks um, uh, is, is is really important and 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 then how how to continue that relationship onward uh, and then in turn become the mentor open-ended answer mm. <laughs> so mentoring was one of the most powerful forces in my life and I'm of the view that a mentor's most important job an adult's most important job when it comes to the youth is to instill a sense of love and a sense of hope right that that's it right everything else on top of that is amazing um, so yeah, intergenerational learning is really important to me. It was formative for me. And then, um, you know, for me to be able to pay that forward in, in even small ways is important with even simple interactions uh, with the young people that happen to come into my life. It could be something as simple as, how are you doing? What's going on? Um, informal, just informal talk to more formal mentorship. Let's check in. How can I help you with your goals? So. I would urge everybody in here um, to take mentorship really, really seriously. Um, we're all educators, we're all learners, and, and it's a, an amazing way to, to pass on a lot of the, your life lessons and experiences to, to those that are hungry for it. Well, thank you so much for coming all of this way to, to Otatahi Christchurch. Uh, for sharing your experiences, your journeys, your, your career paths, your um, wonderful insights into um, what the future of learning might look like. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you all here again and Jason to have you here for a second year. Um, and uh, wonderful to um, uh, have you here talking to our attendees and uh, sharing those insights directly and having conversations with them about the challenges that they have as well. Um, I'd just like to uh, ask everybody to um, please give a round of applause to the J team. Thank you. Thank you so much. Can we have the, just the general slide up? And I think we're going to take a, a photo of the team here so that we can send it back to KnowledgeWorks and to Pittsburgh. Can we do that? So they know that they really have yeah, been we've, here. We've got to prove that we we worked. So. Yeah, yeah. It's like this is it. You know, so look studious and uh, hang on, it's, it's it's getting ready. Not too close. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Well, it's just down to us <laughs> and our final thoughts on these um, two wonderful days. 
thank you so much for sharing this journey with us. Uh, this is something that, uh, as I said at the start, Cheryl and I have bet our businesses on this because we feel this is such an important conversation to be having uh, at this time in our society um, and such uh, um, a critical time to be uh, getting people moving and moving forwards for change. Um, Cheryl, have you got some final thoughts you'd like to share with people and um, a, a provocation or a challenge for them? Always. Always. <laughs> My friend Tracy in the audience, um, she used the, the term launch to learn. You've actually just got to start with something. And I guess um, you know, last year we ran a conference for a day and then we had two two-day masterclasses with, with youth from year seven to 10 and an adult masterclass and then um, city conversation. And I guess if I was doing this again, if, of course there are things I think, oh, I wish I'd done more of that, or you know, I, I would have had more youth involvement, or I would have had more of this and more of that. But you know what? It's our job. So if there was something that you took away that you thought, that was amazing, expand it. And if, you, if there was something that you took away that you thought, oh, you know, I, I would have done that differently, or we should have had more of that, create it. Right, so this isn't about us, and it's actually, as we said at the beginning, not just about the people that were on the stage. You know, they were they were part of the icing on the cake, but you are the change, and the conversations. The reason for having you all here together was for those conversations uh, that need to continue. So I don't know what they are like, but I have a key challenge up. So can you put my key challenge up, please? A key challenge. Yep. There it is. Hashtag, accept the nudge. So um, in the future of, in the, the Learning City Christchurch, like we, we acted, we, we launched to learn, we just did something. Uh, in Learning City uh, Christchurch, we ran our first event just because we noticed people were talking about micro-credentials. And then at the end of it said, you know what, we're a movement, we're not any... We don't have any power or whatever. We've just run this one thing, and we're walking away. And someone said, Brie, I'll accept the nudge. Because there's some things that happen if you go to something or you're part of something, someone gives you a nudge, and you go, oh, stop it, and you walk away. Or you just sort of rebalance, and, and nothing much happens. Or sometimes it just takes a while to percolate and you maybe change one thing or you go and find a mentor or you do something uh, on behalf of uh, someone else. Uh, or you go and do some new thinking and learning or you talk over the dinner table. They're all little nudges. So th that, that's part of the accept the nudge. Or there's the bigger nudge that says, actually, we don't need to be running any more of these. You can do it. You can say, actually, there was this part here I think we need to do more of. Great. We'd love to know about it, but that's your nudge. Um, be involved and um, do it, because there's so much work to do out there. It's not up to two people that sort of suddenly take on this work and become this you know, huge uh, event-organising uh, team, because we've got all the, the people to nudge in the room. So I guess um, for... Uh, the nudge that came from us for micro-credentials and then it went to, to Brie and then we had another uh, uh, meet-up that Brie ran and then it was like, okay, we're a, a movement. Actually, you know, we're not conference organisers, etc. Oh, 
some, a group of people then said, you know what, we'll accept the nudge. And so they formed a micro-credential hack and they had a conversation and now it's becoming something bigger and it's become a spin-off. So that's my hope, is that people will accept the nudge and um, so that's one example, but there's also an example from, from Hamish, other Hamish. Hamish. Other Hamish. Where's other Hamish, Hamish here? Hamish Allencarney. Thank yep. you, Hamish. Uh, after our event last year in the masterclasses, Hamish Allencarney started uh, running a monthly catch-up, a monthly meet-up for people who are interested in the future of learning. Um, it's gone on for a year, which is just fabulous, with this really nice core of people who went to the event last year or who are connected to those, who are starting to come along and keep that conversation going. So if you're interested in keeping that conversation going, then please uh, see the other Hamish or email us and we'll add you to the mailing list because that conversation is a really powerful connector and uh, uh, getting the collaboration going and getting the thinking going and keeping us moving forwards along this journey. I think that's really important. Um, if I can just give my challenge, my takeaway, and I think you've probably heard me say it a few times in different ways, that the technology is changing incredibly fast. The opportunity of that change, that doubling, the exponential change in technology that we're seeing, the opportunity is to have a grand vision and to enable that with the technology. Uh, if you can dream it and you can think about a system or a process or an algorithm that will help uh, to change education for the future, to change it for the better, then you can probably do it. If you're a, um, a any walk of life, if you've got some uh, um, tiny niche that you want to fill that you think is important to the future of learning, then do it because the technology is here or it's going to be here tomorrow. And that's a really, really powerful part of the change that we're seeing here. Um, uh, we can uh, launch products these days uh, globally rather than just within our small, um, our tiny little nation. We can launch on the world stage and, uh, and therefore reach enormous audiences. So the opportunities there to make change uh, in any way that you think will contribute to that better future. And that's a really wonderful thing to unite that action and that collective action towards that future is our best opportunity to survive on this planet. We need to change. We need to start moving forwards. We need to unite and agree and move forwards. I think that's really critically important. That's the biggest challenge that I can give to you. Think big. Think long term. Think huge impact. Um, Peter Diamandis is a, a, a Singularity University, started Singularity University and has these grand plan. Uh, uh, and actually, it's how I came to know Cheryl. Um, she ran a program a few years ago called Find Your Billion, which was to challenge youth, uh, teenagers, um, one, of my, one of which was my daughter, uh, to think about how you could impact positively a billion people using the technologies that are emerging now. It's a fantastic framing to be thinking of the future and how much impact we can have as individuals and collectively. So can I just um, add to that, um, talking about youth, because uh, that for me is a, a critical part of the equation and, and I just um, totoko the, the uh, conversation that uh, not all our young people or people of any age have equitable access 
um, to technology. Uh, they stay uh, outside um, libraries trying to get access. Uh, they're, they're very much underserved when other young people have two mobile phones and a couple of devices at home. And so uh, one of my hopes for the, the future is that your nudge accepts that somewhere in that little nudge there's an element of e equity that uh, supports in particular our rangatahi, but all of those who are uh, least served in our society. Um, can we have the uh, sponsors slide up, please? So I'm not sure whether it's in this deck. Yep, yeah. there it is. Wonderful. Look, I'm going to say it again. We couldn't have uh, run this event without our wonderful sponsors. Ministry of Education, City Council, Signal ICT, absolutely uh, wonderful supports. KnowledgeWorks and Carnegie Mellon, thank you for sending these, these wonderful people here to Christchurch. Uh, St Margaret's College for this venue. It's uh, been a pleasure to be here. Uh, ARA, EdTech, uh, Seeds, while I'm on Seeds, uh, Stephen Moe, who runs the Seeds um, podcast, has left some cards with the URL to it out on a desk out the front there when you leave and you uh, drop off your um, lanyard at the door. Um, please pick up a card and, and head along some fantastic interviews there of all of our key speakers in their lifelong journeys, which has been really cool to capture. 21C Skills Lab, Christchurch NZ, Canterbury Employers Chamber of Commerce, uh, PB Tech, Thank you. Um, uh, Ministry of Awesome and, of course, BOMA New Zealand, the BOMA Education Fellows, fellows and thank you so much for being here. Um, of course, we also couldn't do this event without uh, fantastic support from Pixel, our AV people. Uh, they've been absolute professionals and wonderful to deal with. Highly recommend them for any events if you're running them. And our stage manager, Vanessa Reed. Uh, Vanessa, are you out here? <laughs> Thank you. <Hi>, Mike. <laughs> she's going to no, wave from in the corner. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. And the cooks, the food, you know, don't forget about yeah, the food. Yeah, continental for food. And last but absolutely not least, um, can I please ask all our volunteers team to come down here to the stage because we couldn't have delivered this without you. Um, I can see you all up there in the shadows. <laughs> Come on down. Uh, we have had a, a wonderful team uh, who are all incredible in their own rights and doing a wonderful impact roles in, uh, uh, across uh, Christchurch, uh, involved in all sorts of um, marvellous projects and have given up their time to come here and uh, help us to run this event. Louisa, you need to come down here as well. <laughs> Louise is not a volunteer. Louise, our event manager, is my wife, and I strong-armed her into running this event for us. <laughs> um, thank you. Thank you, everybody. It's uh, been an absolute pleasure working with you again. Uh, and uh, thank you for all your hard work and for working with all these lovely people. It's been um, an absolute pleasure. Great. I hope you can get a photo of them all in. Could you do that? Did you? Great. All right, please, uh, another round of applause for these amazing Thank people. <laughs> so. And behind every good woman there's a good man too so actually we're a sort of a foursome here so <laughs> <laughs>
just waiting. It's a misquote, dear. It's behind every successful woman is an ambitious man. <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> you wish. If uh, I can remind you of the next steps, we have a goodie bag, we're gathering materials from all our speakers, um, wonderful readings, wonderful um, uh, things to stimulate your thinking and keep you moving along this journey. Um, we will send out that link to everybody um, so that you've got it on, on your own computers. Uh, we will be sending a survey to uh, get your feedback on the event. Tell us what we can do to improve. Um, we're not professional event organisers. We're trying to do a, a, a big job in a small, small companies, and um, we would really appreciate your feedback to keep making this um, better. And to accept the nudge. We'd Absolutely. love to know what your nudge is. Yeah, we'd love to hear back from you and hear what's happening with your journeys. Yeah. Well, that one. Thank you, everybody. It's a wrap. Stop. Thank you. Travel safely. Norera tena koto, tena koto, tena tato katoa. Safe travels. Got it.